Welcome to the mop-up for April 28th, 2022. I'm David Feldman coming to you from an air shaft overlooking a parking garage somewhere in Manhattan where the temperature is 54 degrees and cloudy. United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres met in Kiev today with Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky. A few days ago, the U.N. Secretary General met with Russian President Vladimir Putin. Today, standing in front of a pile of Ukrainian rubble where apartments once stood, United Nations Secretary General Guterres said, quote, there is no way a war can be acceptable in the 21st century. He called the war an absurdity, a farce. He said, quote, the sooner this war ends, the better for the sake of Ukraine, Russia and the world. United Nations Secretary General Guterres said, quote, I imagine my family in one of those houses that is now destroyed and black. I see my granddaughters running away in panic. Guterres said Putin was guilty of war crimes, but then added, quote, when we talk about war crimes, we cannot forget that the worst of crimes is war itself. A month ago, when the U.N. condemned the Russian invasion, United Nations Secretary General Guterres said, End hostilities in Ukraine now. Silence the guns now. Open the door to dialogue and diplomacy now. He called the war a ticking time bomb. He said the people of Ukraine desperately deserve peace. Any of those words come from the mouth of Joe Biden or anyone in his administration? When did war become America's first option? Even the Bush family went through the pretense of offering Saddam Hussein months to make a deal. Not Joe Biden, no diplomacy, none. Two weeks before the invasion, Joe Biden spoke to Vladimir Putin for an hour. As Russian troops amassed along the Russian border, instead of dialing down the temperature, Joe Biden publicly warned Putin not to attack. On the phone, he told Putin an invasion of Ukraine would be met with swift and draconian punishment from the West. When he got off the phone, he told the world that Putin is going to attack. He didn't offer any peace deal, no olive branches. Joe Biden stayed hard and firm. Yeah. Vladimir Putin was very clear two weeks before the invasion. He said to Joe Biden what he said as far back as December 17th, 2021. Vladimir Putin made it very clear that America must deny NATO membership to Ukraine. Putin demanded that NATO stop courting former Soviet era republics along the Russian border. Putin demanded that America and NATO reduce the number of troops amassing in Central and Eastern Europe. But America and NATO throughout last year consistently refused to consider those demands. Is the world safer if Ukraine joins NATO? No. Is the world safer if more Soviet era republics join NATO? No. Is the world safer with more NATO and American troops stationed in Central and Eastern Europe? No. Why couldn't we at least meet some of those demands for the sake of peace? And so now there's a war. In the lead up to this war, the only talk coming from the Biden administration was how Russia would pay a price if it invaded. 
But Biden also said repeatedly that he wouldn't risk World War III by committing American troops to defend Ukraine. It was almost like an invitation to invade, the same way our ambassador to Iraq told Saddam Hussein that America would have no problem if he seized Kuwait. It's almost as though America wanted the invasion. Biden said to Putin in December, we will not fight you militarily. We will arm Ukraine to the teeth and then we will strangle you economically. Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, warned Russia that if it attacks Ukraine, America will make sure Russia no longer supplies gas to Europe. And who would supply that gas? Well, you guessed it. America. This war in Ukraine benefits, obviously, our military and our oil companies. And because Ukraine is the third world's breadbasket, the war benefits America's big agra. Biden got what Teddy Roosevelt called a splendid little war. The Biden administration thinks America's food growers, gas suppliers and weapons manufacturers will all make huge profits off war in Ukraine without a single American drop of blood having to be shed. I can assure you when this war ends, if it ends and anybody is left to negotiate a peace, Putin will get exactly what he wanted before this invasion. President Zelensky of Ukraine has already given up hope of joining NATO. America will save face while secretly agreeing never to expand NATO into former Soviet era republics along the Russian border. And we will secretly withdraw troops from Eastern and Central Europe. We'll do it quietly. Why? because Americans don't care. We couldn't care less about NATO or sending more troops into Eastern and Central Europe. For what? What are we doing there? So we will quietly save face and pull out. Russia will keep Crimea and parts of the Donbass region. And there will be a permanent state of war between Ukraine and Russia, like we have between North and South Korea. It'll be an armistice no peace, and it will be a permanent flashpoint never officially resolved with both sides, Russia and America, getting to declare victory. Biden will get what he wants, profits for America's military oil and food interests. It will be a stalemate, a win-win. Both sides get exactly what they want, except the people of Ukraine. Their entire cities will be raised tens of thousands dead, and of course, five million refugees so far. This, by the way, is my best case scenario. I'm being overly optimistic, conveniently forgetting that Joe Biden is a fool. I'm offering a best case scenario, assuming cooler heads, functioning heads will prevail. There's also the chance of nuclear annihilation or the war spreading into Eastern Europe and then America having to honor NATO's Article 5 and send in troops to protect NATO countries. This would also mean attacking Russia. More about attacking Russia in a few minutes. I don't mean to sound flippant, but I am dumbfounded by how flippant the American government and the American people are about war and its unimaginable consequences. 
I support the people of Ukraine. I am rooting for the people of Ukraine. I am rooting for America. I'm even rooting for Joe Biden. The world would be better off without Vladimir Putin. The invasion of Ukraine is a war crime. But like the UN Secretary General, I believe America and the world must use all its power to bring an end to this bloodshed immediately. There needs to be a ceasefire. And the best way to support the people of Ukraine is to get in a room with Putin and somehow get a ceasefire. The war is now in its third month. America and Europe are now secretly conceding this is far from over. Countries like Moldova, Hungary and Poland fear fighting will spill into their nations. Vladimir Putin has nuclear weapons. Ukrainian cities right now are being raised. It is the responsibility of the American government, the American people to use everything in our power to end the fighting and get people to the negotiating table. War is madness. This is a slow motion suicide. Nothing good comes from war. But Joe Biden does not speak of peace. Today, on Thursday, he told America he's asking Congress for $33 billion in military assistance for Ukraine. Biden said he will also take action to seize yachts, airplanes and other assets belonging to Russian oligarchs with close ties to Vladimir Putin. Now, invading Russia. Earlier, I talked about invading Russia. You know, we've done it before. Wilson did it, sent an expeditionary force into Russia. Uh, during World War, around after World War One, the Ukrainian military has threatened to invade Russia. And Britain's defense secretary today said that he would be OK with that, even if Ukraine ends up using Western weapons for those attacks. The Ho Chi Minh Trail was a vast network of roads and paths between North Vietnam and South Vietnamese's uh, the Viet Cong, who were fighting for the North Vietnamese. Uh, the trail went through Laos and Cambodia. Some of you might not remember the Vietnam War. You're too young to be to, to know anything about it. North Vietnam, we were fighting North Vietnam. They were the communists and they were using Laos and Cambodia to get their weapons into South Vietnam. So the Viet Cong, who were fighting on behalf of the communists, the North Vietnamese, they were using the Ho Chi Minh Trail uh, to, to get weapons to the Viet Cong to kill American soldiers stationed in South Vietnam. That was the infamous Ho Chi Minh Trail, where weapons were funneled to the Viet Cong through Laos and Cambodia. So Nixon and Kissinger broke the Constitution and bombed Cambodia and continued the bombing of Laos that had been going on since the Eisenhower administration. This was all under the pretense of cutting off the Ho Chi Minh Trail. And those bombs that we dropped are still going off. There's still kids in Laos are playing soccer and soon they discover no legs. Those bombs are still going off and millions and millions and millions of Cambodians and Laotians died because of America's illegal bombing of the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Kent State was about that. And we're coming up on the anniversary of Kent State. So the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Putin knows where the weapons are coming from. 
Ukraine has its own Ho Chi Minh Trail that flows from the West into Poland, Hungary, and Moldova, and then straight into Ukraine to kill Russian soldiers. Putin, like Nixon, might decide to bomb the Ho Chi Minh Trail, but this time it will be different. This time it won't be millions of Asians dying. This time it will be countless Europeans who look like us who are dying. The Poles, the Hungarians. How will you respond? With indifference? Or will you demand that we invoke Article 5 of NATO and send our troops to fight Putin? How will you respond, America? You do realize Article 5 gives America no choice but to send troops into Ukraine if Hungary, Moldova, and or Poland is bombed by Putin. You do realize that Article 5 demands that we attack Russia if a NATO country is attacked by Putin. America's hands are tied. Article 5, NATO. Is that what you want, America? Or do you want a president who dials back, dials back the heat and tries to avoid, avoid war? What do you want? America's top diplomat, U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, said today it was up to Ukraine if it wanted to invade Russia. I think I'm dreaming when I read this stuff. Blinken, a former lobbyist for Boeing turned Secretary of State, said it was vital that Ukraine, quote, do whatever is necessary to defend against Russian aggression. And the tactics of this are their decisions. Really, it's it's Ukraine's decision, but it's your decision, Anthony Blinken, to provide them with the weapons to invade Russia. Do you want this, America? Do you want an escalation? Do you want things to get out of hand? Have you seen what Putin did to Syria, Chechnya? Do you see what he's doing to Ukraine? Do you really want to escalate until Putin attacks NATO, attacks, attacks a NATO country, and Article 5 gives America no choice but to go to war with Russia? Do you want this, America? Are you thinking about this? It was a year ago when Secretary of State Anthony Blinken announced he would recuse himself from all Boeing-related decisions made within his State Department. You see, Blinken used to be a lobbyist for Boeing. Well, I think Anthony Blinken saying his State Department would be okay with Ukraine invading Russia using American-made weapons. I think that is, in fact, a Boeing-related decision. Anthony Blinken, recuse yourself, resign. This is our top diplomat dialing up the heat, saying he'd support Ukraine if it invaded Russia. Anthony Blinken, recuse yourself, resign. Our top diplomat is saying he'd be okay if Ukraine used our weapons to invade Russia. If America doesn't have the money for universal preschool, if we don't have the money to fight the COVID pandemic, it, it, he needs $10 billion to fight COVID, Biden. He need, may not get it. How is it possible, though, America has $33 billion in weapons for Ukraine? 
That's what Biden's asking for today. $33 billion in weapons for Ukraine. The Pentagon budget cannot be audited. We spend, we think, maybe a trillion a year on the Pentagon. They don't already have $33 billion worth of weapons gathering dust to give to Ukraine. We have to spend an additional $33 billion. Isn't the reason we already spend a trillion a year on defense is so we have some weapons to give to countries like Ukraine? Or maybe that one trillion we spend each year on defense isn't about keeping us safe. Maybe that $33 billion in arms that Joe Biden wants Congress to approve for Ukraine, maybe that isn't even about keeping Ukrainians safe. Maybe, just maybe, it's about something else. Hmm, what could it be? Pretty, pretty much what you think it is, and Biden pretty much told us what it is. On the day he asked Congress for $33 billion in weapons, he said he's traveling to Alabama to visit a Lockheed Martin facility that manufactures the Javelin anti-tank missiles being sent to Ukraine. Biden, this is right after he asked Congress for an additional $33 billion for Ukraine. Biden said he is making the trip to the Lockheed Martin facility down in Alabama as a way of showing Americans that they, quote, have an economic stake in the war. He wants to show Americans that we have an economic stake in the war. Americans have an economic stake in this war. He said that out loud. You're not supposed to say that out loud, Joe. He said that war is a job creator and that we have an economic stake in providing weapons to Ukraine. And that's why he's going to the Lockheed Martin facility in Alabama, where 600 people work making Javelin missiles. Lockheed Martin makes those Javelin missiles and its stock is up 25% for the year, while the overall market is down 11%. Joe Biden spent last Thanksgiving with his crack addict son and his family inside the home belonging to war profiteer David Rubenstein. He runs the Carlisle Group and the Kennedy Center. And uh, the uh, Council for Foreign Relations, David Rubenstein. Have I ever mentioned David Rubenstein from the Carlisle Group? Biden is shamelessly selling his new Ukrainian arms package to the American people as a job creator. He's messaging that the war in Ukraine is good for Alabama. You're not supposed to say that. I've never, ever in my life seen a president go to war by blatantly talking about how it's good for the economy, which may be entering a recession. That's a, a new report. That's for later. Look, you can't separate Hunter Biden's crack addiction from his father's complete and utter lack of a moral compass to beat an addiction you need to know right from wrong. You need to surrender to a higher power, and that higher power can't be war profiteer David Rubenstein from the Carlisle Group. If you are a crack addict, 
and you're celebrating your Thanksgiving in the home of a war profiteer, you need to get the F out of that house and away from your father or you will go back to that crack because you are surrounded by evil. I have never in my life witnessed such a blatant submission to the military industrial complex. No pretenses, pure, unabashed messaging out of the White House that war is good for the economy. Peace is better for the economy. Peace is better for the Ukrainian and the Russian people. Putin is a war criminal. He's got to go. Getting rid of Putin through war isn't going to work. It is not going to work. And if it somehow works, then at what price? We got rid of Saddam Hussein. Was that worth the price for Iraq and our soldiers? The answer is no. Maybe we can get rid of Vladimir Putin. Maybe. Maybe, maybe we can get rid of Vladimir Putin. Maybe we can't. Do you really want to find out? There are, as the UN Secretary General pointed out, alternatives to war. Unfortunately for the Ukrainian people, those are alternatives are not nearly as profitable as bombs are for David Rubenstein and his Thanksgiving guest, Joe Biden. Yes, we have much to be thankful for here at David Rubenstein's home this Thanksgiving. We have much to be thankful for because there'll always be war and profits. Biden wants to give Ukraine $33 billion in weapons, but he only wants to give them $3 billion in humanitarian food assistance. $33 billion for weapons, $3 billion in humanitarian and food assistance. So we know what his priorities are. They are to prolong the war. This is slow motion suicide. Poor Hunter Biden. He never stood a chance having Joe Biden as his father. This laptop, his laptop is going to be a drip, drip, drip. The Democrats, they better win. They better win in November because once the GOP takes over, it's impeachment, nonstop Hunter Biden as America descends into a popular embrace of authoritarianism to calm the ensuing chaos from end stage capitalism's final nail in our coffin, climate change. We are on the brink of authoritarianism. Joe Biden is the right man for the moment, only if you're praying for the end of America as we know it. Nobody in the Republican Party could damage my party. I'm a Democrat. Nobody in the Republican Party could damage my party worse than Joe Biden and the people he surrounds himself with. Hunter Biden isn't the only troubled son out there. And I wish Hunter Biden well, I do. Uh, but the only way you're going to get healthy, one addict to another, is get away from your Uncle Jimmy and your father, Joe. You will never be cured until you get away from these people. Val Brokesmith, I think I'm pronouncing this uh, properly. I'm now going to talk about the death of Val Brokesmith, and I'm murdering his last name. Uh, and we're going to talk about who murdered Val. He was a deeply troubled rock musician. 
He also directed Rob Schneider's uh, 2005 comedy special, but we won't talk about that. I like Rob Schneider. Uh, anyway, Val Brokschmidt, deeply troubled rock musician. I want to talk about the mystery surrounding his death, which we found out about today. Like Hunter Biden, Val Brokschmidt had a history of drug use and dodgy financial activity. Not a happy guy, but unlike Hunter, Val might might be a hero. He grew up like Hunter Biden, surrounded by corruption. But unlike Hunter Biden, Val didn't try to dip his beak into that corruption. He tried to stop it. And now he's dead mysteriously. Val broke Smith. I'm mispronouncing his name. I know I'm mispronouncing his name and I apologize. He had a father named Bill who was also an unhappy guy. Val's dad, Bill, worked at Deutsche Bank as a senior executive, very senior. Bill, Val Brokesmith's dad, was considered one of the founders of Deutsche's investment bank. Deutsche, uh, up until 2000, wasn't allowed to make investments, but you know, around the time of the, the new century, banks suddenly were allowed to invest in, say, stocks and real estate, uh, which they weren't allowed to do uh, before about 1999. Uh, so Bill Brokesmith helped found uh, Deutsche Bank's investment bank. Deutsche Bank is a German bank, dates back to the 19th century. And, it, and as it transitioned its business model towards riskier debt and investments, it became notorious for being the only institution willing to lend money to the perpetually bankrupt Donald Trump. You have to be out of your mind or in bed with Russian oligarchs to lend money to Donald Trump. Over a 20 year period, Deutsche Bank lent Donald Trump $2 billion that we know of. And as I've already told you, Deutsche Bank is one of the world's largest financial institutions and may be the number one money laundering shop in the world. Now, money laundering, as we all know, is hard to understand because it's supposed to be hard to understand. Nobody understands how it's done because it's theft wrapped in accounting tricks, right? You can't figure it out. You're not supposed to just know that it's theft and it's not supposed to make sense. Like what makes sense about Deutsche Bank lending $2 billion to a deadbeat, a chronic deadbeat like Donald Trump. I wouldn't lend Donald Trump $5, but somehow Donald Trump gets $2 billion, even though this con artist has a storied history of screwing every bank foolish enough to have ever lent him money. He never pays his bills. And that includes what he owes banks. The banks lent him money for his casinos, airlines, apartment buildings, and then he would declare bankruptcy. He'd screw the workers, the stockholders, and of course, the banks who lent him money. Because he declared bankruptcy, he only paid back his creditors, including the banks, if they were lucky, pennies on the dollar. If they were lucky, they got pennies on the dollar. By 2000, he screwed over Merrill Lynch, JP Morgan, Britain's Nat West, that's a bank, National West, Trump by 2000, by 1990, was a joke. Everyone knew he had no money and that he was that he owed more than he was worth. Everybody knew that. 
But he was groomed in the world of Manhattan real estate, where everything is smoke and mirrors, where you work hand in glove with the Gambino family and keep pouring the cement no matter what and threaten the lives and careers of any building inspector or tax assessor who gets in your way, because this is Manhattan real estate. You cannot build in Manhattan without a complete disregard for the law. The law is just a speed bump. It is why Trump was so impatient penetrable when he got to Washington, D.C. He knows who to call or pay or what file, what dirty, filthy file to send to a prosecutor who then has to decide if they love their wife and daughter enough to drop the case against Trump. A file arrives at your desk. We all have secrets and we don't want them ending up in the National Enquirer, which, besides being mobbed up, was notoriously protective of Donald Trump. We know that. Uh, so you cannot defeat the mafia. You can only limit your exposure to the mafia and most importantly, walk away from it. Donald Trump knows that he's old school mafia. He knows eventually Alvin Bragg, the, the DA here in Manhattan, I don't, I don't want to prosecute. Well, there's no need to make trouble with Donald Trump. My, I just got elected DA. My life is going so well. Donald Trump's lawyer used to be Roy Cohn, who was the Gambino family's lawyer. That's how Trump poured concrete in Manhattan. Roy Cohn fixed him up with the Gambino family. When Roy Cohn died of AIDS, Trump would bellow, where's my Roy Cohen and Rudy Giuliani answered the call. Rudy became mayor of New York City because as a federal prosecutor, he took credit for taking down the mafia. Right, right. Look it up. He took all the credit for taking down the mafia, which means nobody understands how the mob works better than Rudy Giuliani, especially since his very own dad was a low level mafia flunky. Rudy Giuliani knows how the mafia works, and that's what the lead up to January 6th was, was. It was a mafia hit. January 6th was a mafia hit. It was mafia justice, where on one side you have the Constitution, and on the other you have money, you have powerful special interests, but most importantly, you have muscle. You have the Proud Boys ex-cops, ex-cons, the three percenters willing to hang Nancy Pelosi and Mike Pence. Of course, Giuliani and Trump knew they were going to storm the Capitol. That's how you do things in Manhattan. Building inspectors don't approve an extra 20 floors unless that building inspector's car explodes. You like the Manhattan skyline, you like the museums, the roads, the bridges, the beautiful Broadway theaters in Lincoln Center. You think this all gets built by people being nice to one another? The children of the five families all got educated at the finest schools, and now they're working for the finest banks. All the big banks, all the big banks are money laundering operations and who better to bring in the dirty cash and truckloads to these venerable institutions who better to find that money and bring it to jp morgan or deutsche bank than the children and the grandchildren of mobsters 
course, it's not just Manhattan. It's the entire world of high finance and real estate. And that's why Deutsche Bank lent Trump money. Billions, two billion that we know of with zero collateral. And Trump didn't always have to pay back the loans. For example, Trump borrowed $770 million to build the Trump International Hotel in Chicago. 400 million of that 770 million came from Deutsche Bank. And after the financial crisis of 2008, Deutsche Bank forgave the debt. They said, you don't have to pay it. It's not like it's uh, you know, a loan to go to college. We'll forgive the debt. As long as you didn't spend any of it sending your kids to college, we will for- forgive that. And by the way, debt forgiveness of that type is considered taxable income. But the IRS somehow magically forgave Trump for not declaring the debt forgiveness. They lent Trump money, more than $2 billion. Deutsche Bank lent Trump money based on, and I'm not making this up, Trump's, Donald Trump's, quote unquote, goodwill. That's the term they used. Donald Trump's goodwill because he was famous for things besides not paying back his loans. He was famous, right? So Deutsche decided his reputation could serve as Trump's collateral. Flat broke. Trump was able to borrow against his name. And it wasn't until Deutsche Bank was certain that Donald Trump lost the presidency late in December of 2020 that Deutsche Bank finally got around to, amid intense international scrutiny, they finally got around to firing Trump's banker over at Deutsche Bank, Rosemary Vrablic, who orchestrated hundreds of millions of dollars in loans to Donald Trump. Two weeks before Trump left office, Deutsche Bank made a deal with Trump's Justice Department. See, they made a deal because a new Justice Department was coming in. They made a deal to pay more than $125 million to resolve criminal and civil investigations into charges that Deutsche bribed officials in Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Italy and China. Well, We know that Trump didn't owe Russian oligarchs money. We know he owed Deutsche Bank money. And it doesn't take a degree in forensics accounting to understand that Deutsche Bank was lending the money to Trump because Russian oligarchs were putting up the collateral because Russian oligarchs knew Trump was a useful idiot who would gladly take Russian money, dirty Russian money, and launder it through Manhattan real estate. But Trump needed upfront money to start building these money laundering operations, these, you know, like Trump Tower, Trump needed about $2 billion in loans to start building. And that's what Deutsche Bank could provide. And they got it from the Russian oligarchs. And if he failed to pay back those loans, like with the Chicago hotel, the Russian oligarchs said, we got it, we got it, because the Russian oligarchs needed that hotel in Chicago to launder billions, not hundreds of millions that Trump owed on that loan. They needed to launder billions. Of course, it's complicated, 
But how could a bankrupt Donald Trump, notorious for not paying back his loans, get $2 billion from a notoriously corrupt Deutsche Bank? And then surprisingly, here's the really interesting thing. Trump reportedly was able to pay back about $2 billion of those loans. He didn't pay it all back. But according to some reporting over at the New York Times, he was able to pay back $2 billion in the in in loans. How's that possible? He's incapable of paying back all his loans. He never pays any of his bills. But somehow, magically, he paid about $2 billion back to Deutsche Bank. Where did that $2 billion come from? Deutsche Bank lent Trump $2 billion, and somewhere Trump found the money to pay back those loans. The, the perpetually bankrupt Donald Trump somehow found $2 billion. I, I think it's fair to say that we're talking about an elaborate multinational laundering scheme involving two of the single most corrupt entities in the Western world, Donald Trump and Deutsche Bank. Now, Deutsche has been caught countless times bribing foreign government officials, manipulating markets, not paying their taxes, violating international sanctions by doing business with rogue states, ripping off customers, and most importantly, laundering money for Russian billionaires. Which brings me back to our troubled rock musician, opiate addict, Val Brokschmidt, who we found out today is dead, and his dad. Bill Brokschmidt, Val's dad, Bill Brokschmidt, worked for Deutsche Bank until 2013. And then in 2014, Bill hanged himself in his Kensington, England home. An inquest was held by London's High Court, where it was discovered Bill left behind a series of suicide notes. He also left behind a series of documents, internal files, revealing the extent to which Deutsche Bank engaged in money laundering a lot of money laundering and bill's son who we have confirmed is now dead val his son this troubled rock musician with an addiction to opiates he got his hands on the files and he cooperated with the authorities he turned the files over to the fbi and he cooperated with the house intelligence committee it was embarrassing not just for deutsche bank it was embarrassing for Donald Trump. It was embarrassing for the SEC, the FDIC. It was embarrassing to the entire banking world. Now, David Enrich, a former Wall Street Journal reporter and now with The New York Times, wrote in 2020 a book entitled Dark Towers, Deutsche Bank, Donald Trump and an Epic Trail of Destruction. Enrich writes that Val, this is the young man who, uh, was confirmed dead today. Enric uh, confirms that Val's documents were the go-to source for accurate and reliable information regarding Deutsche Bank's tangled web of money laundering for Russian oligarchs. He writes that Val's information, that his documents were all accurate and proven to be authentic. By the way, one of the juicier tidbits in the book is that Jared Kushner in 2016 was making a fortune using Deutsche Bank to funnel money from Russian oligarchs into his own business ventures. So much of the reporting in the press and investigations conducted by the Senate and the FBI come from 
Val's trove of evidence. David Enrich wrote in a profile of Val in the New York Times, he wrote, quote, we might wish our whistleblowers were stoic. Un uh, where, where am I? Sorry. Hang on. Sorry. David Enrich wrote in a profile of Val, quote, we might wish our whistleblowers were stoic, unimpeachable do-gooders. But to let you in on a journalistic secret, they're often more like Val Brokschmidt. They're troubled. Whistleblowers are notoriously troubled. Val Brokschmidt went missing a year ago. On Monday, a body was discovered early Monday morning at Woodrow Wilson High School in El Sereno, California. Today, police announced it was Valentine Brokschmidt, Val Brokschmidt. So far, police say there is no evidence of foul play. The same way with Deutsche Bank. No evidence of foul play with Deutsche Bank. Uh, it died with Val Brokschmidt. Uh, no evidence of foul play with Donald Trump, Jared Kushner, Hunter Biden, Jimmy Biden, Nancy Pelosi, husbands, Nancy Pelosi's husband, Paul Pelosi. There's no evidence of foul play. And the wheels keep turning because there is no justice at that level. There is no justice in America. You know, Barack Obama promised that the arc of the universe points towards justice. He was quoting Martin Luther King, but unlike Martin Luther King, he said the arc of the universe points towards justice, but we just have to go slowly. Martin Luther King, no fan of incrementalism. Barack Obama, big fan of incrementalism. We need to go slowly and the arc of justice, the arc of the universe will point towards justice. 80% of Americans in jail never had a trial, no money in this country for public defenders, but plenty of money for prisons. And yet we're told the arc of the universe bends towards justice. We are told by people like Barack Obama that the world isn't perfect, that life is about compromise. And so people like his friend, Obama's friend, John Stewart, counsel on his show, we, we should work with the oil companies. Kevin McCarthy, the next Speaker of the House, tells us to compromise with the drug companies. Pete Buttigieg tells us to compromise with our health insurance companies. And Nancy Pelosi, our speaker, tells us America is a capitalist nation, so we owe a little more understanding to Wall Street and its animal spirits. We're told we're childish when we demand the richest 1% pay their taxes because the richest 1%, they create jobs even though those jobs pay slave wages and eventually end up overseas. The adults in the room, the Pelosi's, the Obama's, the adults in the room accept the world as it is, so long as they do not have to sacrifice anything, especially their money and their power. The 99% we are told are impatient toddlers whose eyes are bigger than their stomachs. Yes, our eyes are bigger than our stomachs, partly because we can't afford medicine for our Hashimoto disease. But most importantly, uh, we're just toddlers and we don't know what's good for us. So we need the adults, the ruling class to tell us what exactly we need. And what we need more than anything else is civility. That's what we need. We need to be polite 
to one another. That's the problem in America. It's the division. It's this division. Bruce Springsteen does a commercial for some bullshit SUV to find the middle of America. Remember that Super Bowl commercial? You know, let's find the middle of America. And then they had to pull the commercial because he's, you know, drunk driving. Uh, Bruce Springsteen, the boss, with his hundreds of millions of dollars, this past Sunday serenaded John Stewart, poster child for the neoliberal world order. He serenaded John Stewart at the Mark Twain award ceremony Sunday. He serenaded him to the tune of Come Together. I'm not making this up. Come Together. That's what Bruce Obama, John Stewart, and, and chairman of the Kennedy Center, uh, David Rubenstein, who sponsored the Mark Twain Awards. Uh, that's what they all want. They want us to come together. The Mark Twain Prize was awarded to Jon Stewart on Sunday. And David Rubenstein from the Kennedy Center gives out the Mark Twain Award for humor, the war profiteer. And uh, Bruce saying, come together. Because that's what they want. These neoliberal charlatans, they wring their hands over all the division in this country, disingenuously failing to understand that when all the money flows into the hands of the richest one percent, when nothing is added to the ninety nine percent, all that's left for us is division. How can we not be divided when we have a government that allows all the money to be in the hands of a few billionaires and their poet laureates like Bruce Springsteen, Barack Obama and John Stewart? When you have less money, when you have fewer options, you turn to division. You divide your time and your money into tinier and tinier and tinier increments. If I buy insulin for my son, then I have less money to spend on food for my son. But if I take another job, we can have food and insulin, but that will leave me less time with my son. And I'll have to pay for daycare. Division, division, division. You're dividing money and time over and over division and division and division if you're a member of the 99 percent all you have is division a little subtraction no addition mostly division and that's why we're divided but can't we all just get along no the shallower the pond the meaner the fish no we can't all get along five people one loaf of bread division we can't get along bruce springsteen singing come together at the kennedy center for the mark twain awards in front of nancy pelosi biden's press spokesman jen Psaki, union buster john stewart and the guy who put it all together war profiteer and chairman of the kennedy center the carlisle groups very own David Rubenstein. Yeah, we need to come together, but not come together on providing universal preschool, free health care, free tuition at all public universities, affordable housing, and of course, 
getting off fossil fuels to save the planet. We can come together and spend billions and billions for weapons in Ukraine, though, right? The ruling elite, they want us to come together and dial back the hostility on Twitter. Where is all this anger coming from on Twitter? Where is all this hatred coming from? So much hatred directed at our celebrities and our politicians on Twitter. Twitter, we are told, is a cesspool of revulsion. Why? Well, because America is a cesspool of revulsion. America is a cesspool of revulsion. What do you think Mark Twain would say if he discovered that the prize in his name was given out by war profiteer David Rubenstein? He would say, now that's funny. They are clueless. Their money makes them dumber. They are dumber because of their money. Where does all this animosity on Twitter come from? Well, our government leaders are in a bubble. They want Twitter to be a branding machine. Our celebrities want Twitter so they can market to us. But Twitter has that darned reply button. It's one of the few, if not only, places in America where ordinary people can talk back to the ruling elite. So that's where all the hatred and animosity comes from. The reason celebrities and government officials detest Twitter so much isn't because of the death and rape threats directed towards women. They couldn't care less about women. Our government officials, our celebrities don't care that Twitter is a toxic source of misinformation about COVID or climate change. No, they hate and fear Twitter because it's one of the only places where we, the people, can tell government leaders and celebrities what we really think of them. Twitter is toxic because America is toxic. The 99 percent hate 99% of everything in America. We hate 99% of our celebrities. We hate 99% of our government leaders, 99% of the corporations out there and their leaders. We hate 99% of what's being jammed down our throats by politicians, leaders, celebrities, directors, musicians, corporations. The 99% Bruce, the 99%, we've come together, whether Bruce realizes it or not, and we hate 99% of everything being sold at us and told to us. We hate our company, our cable companies. We hate our boss. We hate our president, our Supreme Court, our Congress. We hate our corporations, our celebrities, our movies. We hate Wall Street, the oil companies, the banks, our museums, our charitable foundations, and all the celebrities who are paid millions to endorse these corporations like Bruce did for that. What was it? A Chevy van. And of course, we hate all the corporate celebrity shills for our political parties, especially the Democratic Party. So we have come together, Bruce. We have. You sold your song catalog for half a billion dollars. 
Bruce Springsteen, but somehow you found the time to Sarah nade a neoliberal hack like John Stewart at the Mark Twain Awards Sunday, but no time to serenade Christian Smalls that day at the big Amazon labor union rally on Staten Island. Come together, my ass, Bruce Springsteen. Write us another cryptic song about the ghost of Tom Joad for us, will you? Oh, but you have no idea what Bruce Springsteen does for the veterans and the homeless. I don't want Bruce Springsteen helping our veterans or the homeless. I want my government helping our veterans and the homeless. And we could help our veterans and the homeless if Bruce Springsteen paid his taxes. I don't want Bruce Springsteen donating to homeless shelters. I want him paying his taxes and the government. I want the government running homeless shelters. Only the government has the economy of scale to take care of the homeless. I don't need Bruce Springsteen speaking up for the least among us. I need him paying more taxes and speaking up for a government that will speak for the least among us. Government is the solution, not Bruce Springsteen's charitable work or his songs. Government. There's something wrong, Bruce, with your lyrics if Ronald Reagan was able to campaign with Born in the USA. Something isn't clear when Ronald Reagan can use Born in the USA to campaign on. There's something seriously wrong with Bruce Springsteen's lyrics when Chris Christie, one of Donald Trump's most vocal supporters, has attended close to 100 Bruce Springsteen concerts. There's something wrong with your message, Bruce, when Chris Christie derives inspiration from it. Or maybe you like Chris Christie. Maybe you think we should come together with Chris Christie. You know, one of the memories etched into my soul forever will be watching Harvard's very own Tom Morello from Rage Against the Machine serenading a group of hedge fund managers and their model wives, singing to them the ghost of Tom Joad, Bruce Springsteen's song. He sang the ghost of Tom Joad at a Christmas party thrown by some Wall Street hedge fund asshole for Christmas. He wanted to impress his friends, so he hired Tom, uh, uh, Tom Morello, Harvard's very own Tom Morello from Rage Against the Machine, to serenade these hedge fund managers with the ghost of Tom Joad. And they were jumping up and down, and they were raising their fist to Harvard's very own Tom Morello. I have it on videotape. I couldn't believe it. One day I'll play it. I could not believe and I zoom in on Tom Morello, and he's strumming his guitar, emblazoned with the words, this machine kills fascists. Apparently, it also gets paid by them as well. This machine kills fascists. Go fuck yourself, Tom Morello. Take that Harvard degree and shove it up your ass. Come together. Tom Morello couldn't even endorse Bernie Sanders. Bruce Springsteen couldn't even endorse Bernie Sanders and Mr. Wonderful, the chain smoking John Mellencamp in 2020 endorsed former New York mayor and media mogul Michael Bloomberg. Go fuck yourself, John Mellencamp. Yeah, you were born in a small town. Yeah. Such men of the people. 
But you know who sees through all this shit? Americans. It's why the working class votes for Republicans, because Mellencamp and Bruce Springsteen and Jon Stewart and even David Rubenstein, they're Democrats. And that's why the working class votes for Republicans. According to Jacobin in 2020, Joe Biden beat Trump by putting together a coalition of highly educated, affluent people living in the suburbs. The working class hates the Democrats, you know, the party of labor. The working class hates the Democrats. The GOP, the oppressor of the working class, has become the party of the working class. It's not Stockholm syndrome. It's that the Democratic Party fucking sucks. According to Ronald Brownstein, I'm saying fuck like Jon Stewart, so maybe I can get a Mark Twain prize. Uh, according to Ronald Brownstein, writing for CNN, white voters without a college degree voted Republican in 2020 by a 26 point margin. And if if their income was hovering near the poverty line, they voted for Republicans by a 31 point margin. Why does the white working class vote for Republicans? Why do they vote against their own interests. Sure, there's the ideological temptations of racism, but that is only part of a much larger suite of reasons that Democrats are unpopular with the working class. The Democrats have contempt for the working class. They have contempt for people who aren't educated. So the Democrats pay lip service they take the working class for granted. Bruce Springsteen, he endorses Democrats because they share the same branding. Bruce sings about unions and the working man. He literally pays lip service to the least among us while taking money from the more affluent. You know, $1,500 a ticket to see Bruce on Broadway. He takes money from the affluent who think hearing a song about the struggles of a migrant family is equal to actually doing something about it. The Clintons, the Obamas, the Pelosi's, the Bidens, they have convinced affluent, well-educated, white suburban voters that caring about the struggles of the working class is synonymous to actually doing something about their struggles. Now, people say, why do you beat up on the Democratic Party? Well, let me explain. The, the Republicans, they are beyond redemption. I agree with Noam Chomsky when he said that the Republicans are more dangerous to the planet than the Nazis could have ever dreamed of. Uh, they are a shark. Let's just say they are sharks. They are killing machines. That's what Republicans are. They are killing machines. And the Democrats are the mayor on Memorial Day who warn us about the shark. But they keep the beaches open and they're refusing to spend any money on killing the shark. Instead, 
the mayor, well, he hires Bruce Springsteen to give a concert on the beach about how dangerous that shark is. And after the concert's over, Bruce and the mayor invite everyone to go into the ocean for a swim. We will be right back. We're living every day, we're living every night in the USA of distraction. We wake every morning like the Rolling Stones, cause we just can't get no satisfaction. Democracy's in change, we could bury its remains, but infotainment culture has infected our brains. We're living every day, we're living every night in the USA of distraction. The wisdom we receive, the reality we perceive, is burned into our brains by cable TV. Scandal, crime, and disaster lead the news. Fear and white anxiety shape our views. The fourth estate has crumbled into an irrelevant heap. Critical thinking is all but asleep. Cause we're living every day, we're living every night in the USA of distraction. The pathological pursuit of power and profit drives everything in sight. Not sure we can stop it. Corporate plutocracy has risen to the top. We've lost the power to think, so we shop until we drop. We're surveilled and monitored while they keep us all distracted. So we never notice that our data has been extracted. We're living every day, we're living every night of distraction. The Reagan agenda, a libertarian notion of sweeping deregulation has been put into motion. Our eyeballs seldom stray too far away from the mega monopolies that command the day. Diversity in media is gone, 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 slowly fading out like a sad, sad song. We're living every day, we're living every night in the USA of distraction. The telegenic spectacle of tabloid celebrity has squeezed out any room for social. 
social integrity With profits to be made And minds to be molded The media crushes the truth Even when it's been scolded It's books now more than ever That people need to read Folks are hypnotized By their Twitter feed We're living every day We're living every night In the USA Of distraction neoliberal nightmare that cares more for Wall Street than anybody's health care. We've been bruised, battered, defunded, and dismantled. We've been diminished, infiltrated, manipulated, and manhandled. The sovereignty of citizenship, the bulwark of democracy, is under full attack by the cult of meritocracy. We're living every day. to that big rally this Saturday. So much love at the rally, David. So much love. Great people, great people in Florence, South Carolina. So smart, so discerning. And it was sold out, David. They were packed in tighter than Chris Christie sitting in a coach seat. Get it, David, because of the weight. Can you get it, David? Are you following me? I get it. I get it. it. To a coach seat, David. Do you get it? I get it. You can have that one, David. That's another freebie. I know you people like freebies. I know. I know you love the freebies. What people? Your people, David. The free brews. (laughs) Oh, boy. I can't help it, David. You know, they say that Zelensky is a comedian. But I'm so much I'm so much funnier than that Zelensky guy. I just don't get him, David. I don't get him. I don't get that Nanette Fabre. I don't get them. Anyway, the people of South Carolina love me, David. I do great there because their elections aren't rigged. You get an honest count in South Carolina, unlike Georgia or Arizona or Vermont, where I won in a landslide, David. But they rigged it. They rigged it, David. Thank you. 
walking 13 miles on every shift with not a chair in sight lifting 20,000 pounds a day that don't seem right saving plastic bottles to have a place to pee injuries in this place are the highest in the industry don't believe those TV ads things ain't what they seem don't tell me this sweatshop has become the American dream we need to stand together can't do it on our own we need to stand together and make our presence known we need to stand together to get the union done we need to stand together what side are you on strong working two shifts a day packing all day long while the cameras are running away 100,000 trucks tearing up and down the roads delivering stuff all over the world in 40 tunnels when did this sweatshop become the American dream don't believe those TV ads Things ain't what they seem We need to stand together Can't do it on our own We need to stand together And make our presence known We need to stand together And get the union done We need to stand together What side are you on? your mates can't listen to music gotta pack all those crates start to feel like a robot but soon you understand there's more of them than you that's always been the plan do not believe those tv ads things ain't what they seem and don't try to tell me this sweatshop will become the american dream we got to stand together we can't do it on our own stand together we need the uaw the afl cio we got to stand together we can't do it on our own We need the American postal workers and the farm workers. We need the teamsters and the RWDSU. We need everybody. Call the phone. Get on the phone. Call your neighbors. We need to stand together. Yeah, yeah. We need to stand together. That's what I'm talking about. We need to stand together. 
Welcome back. That is Professor Mike Steinel, Stand Together. It's a song about Christian Smalls in the Amazon Labor Union, where they're voting out on Staten Island this week on whether or not to to join Amazon Labor Union. Another warehouse votes this week out on Staten Island. And while we play that song, we always show a picture of our hero, Christian Smalls, founder of the Amazon Labor Union. And next to his picture, David Zapolsky, Amazon's general counsel, who two years ago said they should make Amazon should work to make Christian Smalls the face of the labor movement because he's inarticulate and not too smart. David Zapolsky, Z-A-P-O-L-S-K-Y, David Zapolsky, Amazon's general counsel and graduate of I believe Columbia, David Zapolsky. Go fuck yourself, David Zapolsky. I'm trying to get a Mark Twain award, so I'm doing what uh, what uh, neoliberal hack John Stewart does. Just use the F word. Well, this is exciting. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. And we have a new favorite here on The David Feldman Show. Her name is Professor Pamela, and she's a professor in the Department of Biology at Brandon University in Manitoba, Canada. She studies lizards, snakes, frogs, toads, and turtles, and she focuses on animal behavior and conservation biology. And she's back to share some interesting animal facts with us. Welcome back, Professor Pamela. Thank you. It's good to be back. How are you doing? Very good. Very good. So you you're going to talk to us about an animal. What 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 animal are we going to learn about today? Well, I was I was thinking about spring, although it's not really very springy where I live at the moment. Still got snow on the way, but you guys probably have warmer temperatures. And in the spring, for me especially, but lots of folks. I know uh, Dan has shared with us the calling frogs that live on his property. So I was going to talk a little bit about frogs. Frogs. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. So frogs in the spring, you'll hear them sing. You'll hear frogs and toads sing. Mm -hmm. Toads don't really sound. Toads are weird. They make weird, weird sounds, but... And lots of variation. And so in the spring, they start to sing. And it's actually the males that are calling. And they're calling to attract the females. So they go to the ponds and they call. But not all frogs and toads live in or breed in ponds. Some of them breed in these uh, really, really fast-flowing rivers so I was actually going to tell you guys a little bit about one species. It's called the coastal-tailed frog. The coastal-tailed frog. Yeah. So these guys live out on the, the West Coast. So up and down the West Coast, I think they go all the way down to Oregon. They live in uh, British Columbia, which, uh, and I've had uh, the great pleasure of actually studying these guys, spent a summer looking for tailed frogs. Um, 
and and they're pretty cool because you know they have a they have a tail, which is not that typical for frogs. But it's not a tail. What any just, guesses what you think it actually is? You just said it was a tail. Yeah. They, it kind of looks like a tail, but that's not its function. Is it a leg? No, but there's actually a very cool, I don't know uh, exactly when I came across this, but it popped up on the internet of a, of a species or of a frog. And I'm not even sure what species it is, but it looked like it had a tail too although in a slightly different location, which was in fact an additional, a third leg, an appendage. Sometimes when you get, uh, um, especially if they're exposed to a lot of toxins, they'll grow legs in right. super weird places. I've once seen like, it, we, we kind of dubbed it like, like the queen frog because it, it had a hand that was like growing out the side of its head. So it could kind of do the, the <laughs> which I just thought was brilliant. And it seemed Something to be fine. Not. It just carried on with this extra. I can't stand the suspense. When is a tail on a frog not a tail? Well, they use it. It's only on the males and they use it to fertilize the females. So it is kind of more like a penis. A, a penis that's a leg. That's a tail. That's a tail. A penis that's a tail. So these guys, sorry. Go on. I want so they they're, they're, it looks like a tail, but it's a penis. It is, yeah. So there's but only there a couple is, of species. Is it in the back? No, it's it looks exactly like a tail, and it's not super super long, but it's fairly evident. There, uh, the coastal tail frogs aren't 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 hugely big. Uh, an inch-ish, so two to three centimeters. And the tail is just a little bit, but it's really obvious, yeah. So, and it's only, so the males have it. And they live in these really fast flowing streams. And so the problem that these guys face, why they need, why they need a penis, is that, you know, usually when frogs are breeding in a pond, the, the male and the female, and the male does this super cool thing. He like, they have these nuptial pads, little grippers, little grippers on their hands. They grab the female with the little grippers, hold on to nuptial her. Pads. Nuptial okay. pads. Yeah. Typically just during the breeding season, outside the breeding season, their, their little grippers go away, but they hold on because frogs are slippery. So that's going to be a problem, right? So he's got to grab on. Um. And so then they hold on to one another and then they'll release their eggs and sperm just into this pond, right? And then the eggs and sperm. Right. These, are rep, these are reptiles. So they're, they're, this, these, these are eggs meeting sperm. It, it, and then the, the, there's no gestation, right? But no. the, 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 so, woman, the woman lays eggs, right? The, the, the female does lay eggs. Yeah. They're not reptiles. They're amphibians. Uh, very, very different. Um, and, and amphibians, that's your frogs, your toads, your salamanders. 
Right. Um, so yeah, usually when they breed in the vast majority of species, it's in this open pond and they just that, so the female will deposit the eggs. So he's holding on to her with his little nuptial pads gripping onto her. And then the female will deposit her eggs and then he'll release her sperm and it'll combine. And then they will, uh, gestate, but it's outside. So this is called external fertilization. But the tailed frogs live in these really fast flowing mountain streams, like super steep. So they can't do this because everything would just get all washed away. So they have their tail, which he does insert and deposit through internal fertilization so that he can deposit his sperm directly into the female. And that gets around the problem of the eggs and sperm just scooting on down the stream and getting washed away. And then, then the f- eggs are fertilized, but they don't grow inside the mommy, right? No. So they are still um, deposited. So a lot of these streams they live in um, that they'll, what they'll do is copulate, but it's, you know, maybe under rocks. So the eggs will get stuck onto the rocks and then they will develop there and then they hatch and you get tadpoles and the other really cool thing, um, so we didn't see, uh, tailed frogs are endangered because they're a conservation concern because a lot of these streams, they've just logged the crap out of those areas. And so these streams are decimated. So I didn't see a lot of adults, but we saw a lot of tadpoles and that tadpoles have these super cool, like super suctiony uh mouths on them and so they stick onto the the rocks because again they're in these really fast flowing steams so yeah anyway so yeah what would happen if you took it's called a tailed frog yeah and you put them in just a regular normal pond with healthy christians who have healthy sex would they be able to reproduce without all the the white rapids? That's a really good question. I don't know if they've done that. There's not in the area that I was working in British Columbia. We didn't see a lot of them. As I said, they're, they're really they need, threatened. They, but the turmoil, they probably they do. The yeah. They yeah. They probably, the yeah. They, they're going to need I, the rushing water is a bit of a, you know, so yeah. in, in a, uh, a regular pond where things are calm and done the way the Lord wants it to be done, uh, a, a, a mommy, how does it work? Mommy lays an egg and then how does the daddy fertilize it? Well, with a lot of these guys, the nuptial pads play a couple of roles. They play, um, so that the, so maybe I'll back it up a sec. So the males come into the ponds first, they come out of hibernation first, they move into the pods, they start singing and then mommy, comes and she checks out all the males and she will uh, select the, you know, the, the best singer. And now he's going to also select. <laughs> so they often you end up with these sort of writhing masses. So you've got the male, he's grabbing on the female with his nuptial pads. And then you've got another male grabbing on so it's like this <laughs> mountain of writhing frog that are all copulating. And so she will be releasing her eggs and then the males will try and time the sperm release so that it 
you know, because ideally if you time it really well with the females, but the nuptial pads, he's also caressing the female and not stimulating her to release the eggs as well. Not necessarily true in all species, but in some. So, so yeah, there's a, there's a lot going on with the- Is, is this, is this onanism? In other words, the, your, the daddy is inside the mommy, but can only fertilize the mommy, can only fertilize the baby if the eggs have been released. Is that how yes. it works? Yeah, they will typically, yeah. The, the, so for the vast majority of them, the tailed frogs, it's external fertilization. So they accept to come out. And then, I mean, the, most of your regular normal frogs don't have any way to get the sperm in. They don't have the tail. So, but yeah, they've so got to they, release they, the eggs and then they fertilize. Yeah. So the daddy goes into the mommy and that stimulates mommy to lay eggs. Can, can she lay the eggs while daddy is still inside mommy? I'm not sure. I don't, I'm not 100% sure. Yeah, okay. I don't think and, and so. Then, okay, and then so, and then he um, excites himself into the water and hopes that it's his seed that lands on the eggs, correct? Yeah, but it's but it, it's quite a the 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 it's actually called scramble competition because the it's a heck of a you've got frogs all jumbled up together and scrambling to and then you've got sperm and eggs flying everywhere and it's quite a jumble. Yeah, I know. I, I lived through the 70s. <laughs> exactly. um, but so it is conceivable that a, a, a woman will like a man's voice and say, this guy would make a great father to my children. But because it's in Hef's grotto, all the stuff just gets mingled. You don't know who the father ends up being, right? Yeah, a lot of clutches. Uh, so uh, frogs will typically lay kind of this gelatinous clump, which is called a clutch, like a, like a bird clutch kind of idea. And lots of them will have multiple uh, uh, fathers, but that's actually a good, not a bad thing. That's kind of a feature, not a bug. Uh, like, because, you know, then you've got genetic diversity and that's a good thing because then right. you've got options. Yeah. That's with the Royal family should start doing. Yeah, they they really, really bred themselves, inbred themselves. Yeah, it's ironically, they they're not like, the only ones. Yeah, they look like toads, actually, because yeah. they're so but if you kiss yeah. them, they don't turn into princes. Uh, any other animals we could talk about? This is just so fascinating. Well, what else did I look into? I was Looking into both my frogs and my toads because they were on my mind. Oh, what is the, the other slightly. Sorry. What's the difference between a frog and a toad? Well, it's there's a bunch of differences. So some of it's reproductive. Frogs will lay kind of a gelatinous mess and toads always lay in a spring. And toads always mm -hmm. tend to be kind of like rounder and humpier. And of course, they have the warts on them, which are. 
have hormones and sometimes toxins associated with them. Uh, Frogs are jumpy. So lots of frogs, not all, big long legs. Toads never have those big long legs. They crawl. So there's kind of a few differences, but that's, those are some of the key ones. Yeah. And can you lick it? Can you really get high licking a frog or a toad? It's, there's a few species of toads in particular that people lick. Yeah. I mean, there's things you don't want to lick. Like there's the, anything that's brightly colored tends to have noxious things, you know, like with mushrooms, but also with toads. Um, but yeah, yeah, folks lick toads. But yeah, it's probably. I can see why people. I could see why people would just want to do that without even getting high. Just, you know, how can you not want to lick? Like a toad. <laughs> I mean, toads are kind of so cute, like so ugly, they're cute, but I don't, I, uh, the, the licking thing's kind of. Wow. I would not lick a toad. No, no, me neither. And I do. We love them, but. Yeah. The, the other tiny weird little fact, because we're just past Easter is, and I didn't really know too much about this, but did you know that male rabbits don't have nipples? Yes, I, I did know that. I don't want to tell you why, but I did know that. <laughs> Which is kind of interesting, but the probably more interesting thing is why do male humans have nipples? It's not like you're using them. Well, I, well, I, I don't want to be too, I don't want to be disgusting here, but uh, we, I keep a lot of manufacturers of batteries and nipple clamps. <laughs> a lot of families have said <laughs> my, my use of nipple. Let's. I don't want to. I apologize. Yeah. You're a yeah. renowned professor. And this is serious <laughs> stuff. I thought men, I, I, from what I understand, in the womb, something comes out of our nipples in the womb, I believe. I think. I'm not sure about that. There are some species of mammals that the males actually lactate, but... Um, yeah, I'm not sure. I'm checking the chat. Yeah, I probably Don't should have gone. I shouldn't have gone into nipple land. Yeah, anyway. In that chat I, room, yeah. they would yes. breastfeed their, the men in the chat room would <laughs> like make their nipples bleed and, and feed a baby. <laughs> yeah, anyway. Um, so there's no, another I animal? Just, I mostly had toads and frogs for us today and that little little dip into bunny land, but uh, apologies. Bunnies, bunny, male bunnies don't have nipples. Male bunnies don't have nipples. Yeah. Yeah. That was, which was, yeah. Anyway, it's interesting. It kind of goes way back to their development. And it turns out there's a bunch of different mammal species that the males don't have nipples, which I I was very curious about because I just assumed that it was kind of the same as it is with humans where, cause it's basically, you know, everybody kind of starts down the same developmental pathway. So you kind of get all the wiring and you form the nipples. Right. And then after the fact, things change, but turns out now, that's you, why true. haven't you been back? It's, I, I don't mean to embarrass you, but this is so <laughs> interesting. 
and so much fun. And I've been begging I, you to come back. I, I would love to. I, it is the end of the semester for us here up in Canada. And I am buried under a mountain of marking. And so I, it has just Let's been. Give everybody a, an A. A bit. I know I should just do that. Yeah. But I'll, it's wrapping up, which is great. And then, uh, yeah, life gets a little bit, uh, little bit better. And I can see Ben has joined us. So. Professor Ben Burgess is about to join us. Well, Professor Pamela, thank you for teaching us about the, the tail frog. And Tailed frog, yep. Tail frog, and I am planning a visit to the great Northwest to watch them in action. How do people Sounds contact? Uh, I am on Twitter. It's Rutherford underscore PLR. Um, though I'm in, I'm in and out of Twitter. So uh, you could just come on back to the show and hopefully I'll share some more animal facts in the near future. Please, let's do this more often. It's fascinating. Thank you, Professor Pamela. I'll see you at office hours. Thank you. Thank you. Be well. Be well. Let us go to Georgia. I believe it's Georgia, where Professor Ben Burgess is standing by. He is a columnist for Jacobin and host of Give Them an Argument. We watched him last week. We watched him in the field signing books. You were signing your book at the University of Toronto? Uh, so I was... Yeah, last Thursday, I was doing a book event at the uh, Duke of York pub in Toronto. So I was just out at a bar, but uh, I read doing a reading and signing for the Hitchens book. But the next night, I was at what I guess was still then called Ryerson University, although they're uh, renaming it. So, yep. Uh, I read, yeah, Duke Adnan York? came up and, uh, and showed me to you. I couldn't really hear you, but uh, but yeah. The Duke of York, that would be... Prince Andrew? <laughs> I'm not sure. I think the Duke of York is Prince Andrew and he has a college. What are they teaching? I don't know. I was just at the bar. No, well, that's probably all it is, is a bar. It's the, named after the Duke of York. Well, Professor Ben Burgess is a columnist for Jacobin, and he has two pieces that I want to talk about. One was about your appearance on Joe Rogan. Mm -hmm. I have to admit, you won the argument that we never had. Okay. We had an argument. I was kind of, I didn't understand why you went on Joe Rogan's podcast. I, I felt you were dignifying someone who mm. is kind of dangerous. Mm -hmm. And you, by a man of your stature coming on his show, you lend credence uh, to his nonsense. But your piece in Jacobin, I went, you know what? Ben's right. If you, you were reaching millions and millions of people, it didn't go exactly the way you wanted it to. But of those millions, maybe a couple of people will change their mind. You talk about meeting some guy in a bar who walked up to you because he saw you on Rogan and you were able to talk him into Medicare for all, I believe. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I do like the idea that, uh, 
the that I I have sufficient stature to to lend my legitimacy to uh, the most popular podcaster in the world who have millions of people who watch a show. Um, I I think that the you know one one hundredth of one percent of the number of people who um, are familiar with Joe Rogan or familiar with me. But uh, but yeah, look, uh, I did uh, during the first hour, especially of the, of the show. I mean, it was a very long conversation. He does that, you know, we touched on numerous topics, but uh, you know, especially during the first hour, uh, you know, we, we went over a lot of, you know, core kind of bread and butter socialist policies, you know, things like Medicare for all things like, uh, you know, why I think teachers unions are important uh, and, you know, why the, you know, working conditions for teachers that unions fight for are the same as the learning conditions for kids and why the postal service is important and Bernie Sanders idea about postal banking and um, sort of general principles about economic inequality and how Mondragon, you know, uh, works in that Federation of Worker Co-ops and why I'd be happier with, you know, a, um, with an economy where a lot more firms were organized like Mondragon and a lot fewer like uh, like Walmart. Uh, and, you know, and there are things he pushed back on, but I mean, there was also a lot of, uh, there was also a lot of agreement um, on on a lot of that, you know, later in the conversation, uh, there were, you know, a lot more, you know, kind of hot button topics that, you know, that were, that were, that were touched on. Some of those were more of a mixed bag. Although I think even there, right. I think there were moments I was really happy with, like, um, you know, made the argument that the anti-CRT laws uh, were an assault on free speech. And, you know, at least in his amiable Joe Rogan way, he seemed to, you know, co-sign the argument. Uh, you know, we had much bigger disagreements about, um, you know, women's sports. Um, and, um, you know, that was actually the, the main one that we disagreed the most about. He does believe uh, transgender people, like transgender well, that, women. Yeah, I think he... Yeah, I think he at least takes the argument they should a lot more seriously than I do. Uh, he had, um, although I, at kind of the end of it, right? So, I mean, you know, my my take is that I'm not going to pretend that I have the medical expertise to say exactly what the hormone requirements should be or anything like that. But as a matter of general principle, it does seem cruel to me to, to say, you know, that, you know, you just can't participate, you know, that this, if, if I had a trans daughter and she, you know, got joy from participating where these sports, you know, like I, I would want the rules to allow her at least the possibility of participating. And uh, whereas I think, you know, he thinks, you know, he's like much more sympathetic to the kind of right wing narrative on this, that, you know, that it's unfair, you know, to other female athletes. And at the end of that part of the conversation, I kind of asked him directly, it's like, okay, so what do you think the policy should be exactly? You know, is there a, do you think there's a reasonable compromise here? And he said, I don't know. And we kind of moved on, right? You know, so uh, that was probably the biggest area of disagreement. But I do think, you know, my goal in going on this, um, you know, and I do try to think about like, you know, Christopher Hitchens uh, said once that uh, the, uh, you know, you should have, you know, one goal to debate. And even though this isn't a debate exactly, you know, this is a, you know, friendly chat with somebody who I think is, you know, right about some things, wrong about others. It's kind of a mixed bag. It's a little all over the place, in my view. Um, but, you know, but thinking about it that way, right? So like the Charlie Kirk thing, the one goal, you know, I guess in that case, maybe there were two, because I also wanted to show that Charlie is full of shit when he starts talking about philosophy. But the uh, the one goal pretty much with Charlie Kirk was to show, look, when people like Kirk 
claim that they're populist now. It's nonsense. You know, they, they don't support anything that helps working class people. And, you know, I was polite or civil because if I wasn't, nobody, nobody in that audience would listen to a word I said. But, you know, but I was trying to be forceful about that goal. With, with Joe, I think it's a little bit of a different context. I think that the, um, because I think that my assumption is that the average sort of reachable Joe, Joe Rogan listener is about where he is. Uh, politically that which is to say that they are you know maybe pretty open to certain left-wing economic things maybe have reactionary social impulses in some ways but are not hardcore zealots and are willing to at least you know hear us out on on everything and so i tried to you know i say in the article i tried to have about the conversation with rogan that i would encourage any grassroots socialists to have with their you know co-worker or cousin or you know like their brother-in-law who maybe doesn't wear a mask at the grocery store and sometimes says, you know, objectionable reactionary things, but also seems somewhat open to what we have to say. Like, and my question is always, how do you talk to that guy? I hope that the answer is just that you don't talk to him or that you yell at him and denounce him because that's not going to get us very far. You know, I think that the way to do it is to try to, you know, steer the conversation towards areas of agreement to try to, you know, say areas where you think they're most likely to be receptive to what we have to say on the more hot button stuff, if they don't seem to be coming from a place of just odious bigotry to, um, you know, not like denounce them, but say, well, here's how I see it. I think about this a little bit differently, whatever, try to move the needle a little bit. <laughs> and so really my goal in that case, in that conversation was just to try to introduce, try to steer the conversation towards sort of core social democratic policies that help working class people you know, unions, Medicare for all, all that stuff as much as humanly possible every time I could steer the conversation to that and to try to seem like friendly and approachable in how I did it. Because I think that's what's going to, if anything's going to move the needle with whoever is, you know, whoever is persuadable in the audience, that's it. And yeah, that little anecdote that I had at the end of the article, I mean, again, it's one anecdote, you know, I could mention others, but I mean, like, I think it's, I think it's sort of, at least, illust- you know, it doesn't prove anything by itself, but I think maybe it's a good illustration of like what I was hoping for, which is just, so yeah, a couple of weeks after the appearance, uh, I was bar hopping with my friend Ryan on St. Patrick's Day in Atlanta and the last bar of the night, you know, this guy came up to us and, you know, bought us a drink, he'd seen us in Rogan, um, works in construction, described himself as a board and raised redneck, uh, also described himself as a fiscal conservative, which was interesting because as we started talking, you know, I, I mean, within not very long, right, he was signing on to any number of like very left wing and even socialist, you know, policies that, okay, sure, that would be fair. That's, that's only reasonable. You know, you should do that, you know, uh, from Medicare at all to universal pre-K, um, to, uh, even the one that really surprised me was on uh, borders because, you know, he kind of said at one point, well, you know, he's not uh, anti-immigrant. He just thinks it's important people come over the right way. And, you know, Ryan and I kind of forcefully made the point to him. Okay. But you understand that most people who just want to, who are just want to, you know, try to get, you know, a decent job and get out of bad and violent situations, there is no right way, right? You know, there's no there's no process by which they could come over if they wanted to, you know, come over legally. You know, there's no line for them to get in. And, you know, he agreed that, you know, immigration laws should be reformed in such a way that, you know, there is a process for those people, right? So which 
<laughs> if you take a long step back and think about that, like it's kind of remarkable because what he's essentially agreed to there, even if he doesn't put it quite this way, is you know more or less open borders, right? That you're saying that anybody you know who wants to, there should be a process by which you can apply to come over legally, that you can show you know that you're not a criminal and all of this, and you know, and, and you can potentially live in the United States. And I'm not saying that you know. I mean, I, I convinced this guy of everything. I mean, I don't think he's like joining DSA or becoming to give them an argument or Feld, Feldman listener anytime soon. Um, you know, I think there are real disagreements about how taxes should work. I think he's very uncomfortable with abortion, although he also seemed confused about exactly what he thinks the law should be when I tried to press him on that. You right. know, but but I think that it's the kind of conversation that I mean, the reason I sort of threw that in there as the illustration at the end is that. I think, I hope, right, it's an illustration of the kind of thing that I'm trying to, you know, to accomplish, right, with doing that, right, that they have said that, um, that, and, you know, and, and I would hope that even people who might disagree with very specific things that I said on the show, because I know there are things that, you know, I don't, you know, there are plenty of people on the left who disagree with me about plenty of things, that's fine, right, you know, but they, but I would, I would hope even people who disagree on some of the specifics, can see that kind of larger point, you know, that this is um, that, you know, if, if we're going to expand the tent in ways that, that we need to do to, to push, you know, left politics. I mean, the, you know, I mean, the left in the United States, I hate to say it, is pretty defeated right now. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, and, and I think if there's hope for the future, I mean, I, I think like, I'm not saying throw anybody under the bus. I'm not saying change substantial, you know, positions on anything in terms of social policy. But I, I do think that like a lot of leftists need to get better at talking to and trying to persuade a, you know, a bigger range of people. Uh, yeah. Before we get to your other piece, yeah. Joe Biden today asked Congress for thirty-four million dollars in weapons to give to Ukraine. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts about Joe Biden's handling of Ukraine? Yeah, I, I mean, my main thought is just that I I think that it's an incredibly dangerous situation. I mean, that there's this proxy war that the United States is leading into increasingly, you know, with uh, with the world's other major nuclear power. And, um, and I think, um, and, you know, I, I, as far as like weapons or no weapons, I think there are arguments on both sides of that, but what really bothers me, especially because at this point, I mean, the damage is kind of done. I mean, that like any legitimate concerns there are about what could happen, whose hands some of these weapons could end up in the long term, et cetera. I mean, it's, it's so much of that's already happened. It's kind of moot, you know, but like my big concern is that if when I sort of take a step back from the specifics and like look at like okay, what's the United States' overall posture right now towards this war? Right? What is it? Well, flooding the conflict zone with weapons, um, and you know, trying to you know, and, and imposing some pretty unprecedented sanctions, and also making all of these statements like. Um, there was the Biden statement where it sounded like he was saying the goal was regime change. And then that was sort of walked back. And then he said, uh, 
that you know he was talking about you know like you know how um about war crimes and people should be on trial which you know i don't necessarily disagree with but like also thinking about the sort of overall sense i get from all of this you know saying that the you know goal is to weaken russia's capacity to you know to make war i i just what i worry about is i think it would be one thing if the united states were sending ukraine weapons uh but also aggressively pushing into like peace negotiations that we were going to be part of that you know america was going to send diplomats to participate in i think that would be one thing but uh right now it, it just seems like the goal is just to inflict as much pain as possible on on russia to you know punish them for for doing this without really any particular sign of u.s interest in, in reaching a negotiated settlement and and i think that really bothers me both because in the short term, I think that because that's going to cause a lot of pain. I think that like the longer the war goes on, there's going to be a tremendous amount of death and suffering. And also just because it's incredibly dangerous because this is like, this is the, the highest point of like U.S. tensions with Russia since I don't even know. I mean, certainly, you know, certainly some point during the Cold War. Putin in December of last year said, troops are amassing along the border. Here's what I want. I want you to tell Ukraine it can't join NATO. I want you to stop courting former Soviet era republics uh, and trying to bring them into NATO. Uh, and I want you to withdraw NATO and American troops from Central and Eastern Europe. Yeah, and I mean, yeah. he got a flat out no from Biden. And it seems to me, yeah. who cares if Ukraine joins NATO? Who cares if, you know, Chechnya or Georgia joins NATO? What do we need American troops in Central and Eastern Europe? What is the strategic value to any of this other than poking at Vladimir Putin? Well, and I'd also say that the idea that Ukraine was ever going to join NATO at any time in the foreseeable future was always a little like, I mean, I don't, I don't think there was any ever any real serious intention to to let them in, right? I mean, because because it was always going to be a stretch because, I mean, especially because because Ukraine's been fighting a civil war since uh, you know against these like Russian backed separatists since 2014, right? You know what, like. They were going to be led into NATO while that was going on. I mean, I think that I think that would uh, I think the sort of immediate risk of all out war with Russia is just not one that anybody was prepared to take. Right. And so it seems like just refusing to even negotiate on NATO expansion, um, it, it just that just seems like something that was being done, not so much because we're seriously considering letting you know Ukraine and NATO anytime soon, but just as a sort of point of principle, like, oh, you know, Russia can't push us around. And um, I, I think I think that's I think that's a disaster. I mean, I think that I, I mean, I, I guess I would just say like, OK, so how is that possibly worth it with what's with what's going on right now? Right. I mean, that the how does this benefit in the Ukrainians that, you know, we weren't even willing to put NATO expansion on the table to negotiate about as an issue. It, it just seems like that obviously should have happened. I mean, it seems like if they're eventually I mean, if this is going to, I mean, assuming that Russia's um, doesn't suddenly get much more competent about how they're doing it and just like win outright, right? And assuming that 
there isn't some amazing reversal where, uh, you know, where they're just completely pushed out of the entire country and assuming there's a nuclear war, like that it, it seems like the, the end state of all of this eventually has to be some kind of negotiated settlement. And what could that negotiated settlement look like? I mean, Noam Chomsky, people got really mad at Chomsky when he, he said, um, you know, the U.S. should push for a negotiated settlement. You know, here's what it would look like. And he like laid it out. But I, I don't see how it could look any different from what he said. I mean, clearly. Why would anybody, what is the, I don't understand what's going on here. The only way this is going to end is through a negotiated settlement. That's how wars end. That's how Vietnam ended. That's how Korea ended. That's how the first Gulf War ended. These, it's nonsense to think that yeah, it I mean, ends it's, it's way out of a nuclear annihilation. Yeah, exactly. It's going to happen eventually anyway. And when it does, I mean, I, it's very hard to imagine any realistic scenario where Crimea goes back to Ukraine. That's that's been you know that's been in Russia since 2014. Uh, it's very hard to imagine this ending any time in the foreseeable future if there's not some kind of accommodation in the the Donbass, or at least the part of it that was held by separatists, you know, before the war, uh, before this new war, you know, this year. Uh, it's very hard to imagine, you know, official neutrality, not joining NATO, not being part of it eventually. And so it just seems like the question is, do you want that settlement you know, in some version or another, do you want it to happen now, right? Or do you want it to happen in the year or in five years, you know, with God knows how much, you know, death and suffering in between and with every... Does the Biden know, administration care about the 5 million Ukrainian refugees, the thousands, the tens of thousands of dead Ukrainians? Do they know that this is all for naught, that there's absolutely no way... That is a really good question. That is a really, really good question. And, and I guess I don't know, but I guess I worry that the Biden administration's priority in this is to, you know, is to try to like teach Russia a lesson rather than the priority being to stop an incredibly dangerous situation that could like the worst case scenario is the end of everything. And like even the well, what happens are if pretty he attacks at the top of the show, I brought up the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Yeah. And how Nixon and Kissinger wanted to stop the flow of weapons to the Viet Cong by bombing and killing millions and millions. I'm laughing because this is so horrendous. Yeah, right. Millions of Laotians and Cambodians to stop the flow of weapons into South Vietnam. What happens if Putin decides, you know what? I know where these arms are coming from. Hungary, Poland and Moldova. So I'm going to bomb them. Well, Article 5 dictates that's it. America, yeah. we're in there. Yeah, no, it's, it, is, it is incredibly dangerous. And, and every week this goes on, I mean, the, the chance of something like that happening, you know, is bored. I'm not saying that's probably what's going to happen, but I think that it doesn't. I mean, look, let's say there's like a one half of 1% chance that this kind of scenario that you're talking about happens. Well, that should keep everybody up at night. Like that, that should be more than enough to keep everybody up at night. I mean, if I told you there was, you know, a one half of 1% chance that you were going to get a billion dollars, you'd be pretty excited, right? I mean, there's a one in 200 chance of that. You know, if there's a one in 200 chance that everybody you've ever loved is going to die, you know, in, in a global thermonuclear exchange or the, the consequences of that, right? You know, then 
then you should be terrified. And I mean, even a conventional war with Russia, even if we could somehow count on a war between two nuclear powers staying conventional, I mean, would, would be just unimaginably devastated. So, yeah. I, 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 you know what this reminds me of? When Bush and Cheney wanted to go to war, they had to go to war with somebody and they picked Iraq, which had nothing to do with 9-11. And they preyed on a sense memory from 10 years before of Saddam Hussein being evil. Right. They had been trained to hate Saddam Hussein from the first Gulf War. And it feels like I'm not discounting that Putin is a war criminal, but I'm saying that it feels like the Democrats are exploiting a sense memory that America has of Russia being evil. And that it's easy to go to war with Russia because generation after generation of Americans were trained to fear the bear, to, to fear Putin. And it could be, I mean, I, I've never seen anything like this. Have you ever seen America gin up a war without any pretense of looking for peace? Yeah, this is this is really something else. I mean, this is um, I mean, I, I have been. I mean, I just it makes me think and I understand that what the United States is doing right now is not nearly as bad as it was it did then, although the potential consequences now are even worse, right? Because we could have a war with Russia. But, uh, but I, I just keep thinking about the fall of 2001. I mean, this is, this is what the atmosphere reminds me of a lot, you know, that, that anybody, who, anybody who says anything that's not, you know, the, you know, that's, that's not, you know, whatever, you know, putting a flag on the car and, you know, and, and, uh, uh, talking about, you know, talking about how you're going to go kill some terrorists, like, like is, is just completely reviled, right? I mean, that you're, that you're siding with Al Qaeda in that case, or you're a Putin apologist now, you know, and, and, uh, if you, um, and, and I think it's, I think it's incredibly, I think it's incredibly dangerous. I think that, um, where's the anti-war movement? Where are the people who are speaking up for peace and a ceasefire? Where are they? Yeah. Well, again, do they it's on the left? Am I, are you seeing it on the left? Uh, I mean, it depends what you mean by on the left. I mean, not nearly as mainstream as I'd like. I mean, there, there was a, uh, you know, before the uh, before the invasion, I thought Bernie Sanders had a good op-ed in The Guardian where he said the United States should be going all out, pushing for peace negotiations. But I think he's been a lot quieter about it since then. Uh, again, Noam Chomsky, you know, talked about that, you know, um, and and he was like, I mean, he was a trending topic on Twitter that weekend, you know, from all the people denouncing him, you know, for uh, for saying that. So yeah, I mean, I think that there are, I think on like, if the left means like Jacobin, then yes, uh, there 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 definitely have been people who who've been writing a lot and speaking up a lot about that. But in terms of anything more mainstream, I mean, I think there's been a real disturbing absence of that. I think that that should be, I I think that, you know, if there's anything. I mean, something I think I've been thinking about lately is the way that Americans, in my experience, use the word we when they describe actions in the U.S. government that we're most likely to say we when we're describing like going to war, things like that, uh, things that, you know, which 
is sort of backwards because it's the area where the public actually has the least input into uh, into what happens. But yeah, that if we are going to exercise any kind of um, you know veto power over this, I mean, people have to be very loud about this right now because yeah, I, I think that I think that it's very easy, especially when I mean, look, Saddam Hussein was evil, right? I mean, that's not wrong, right? The the Taliban so was George Bush. Well, yes, that's very true, right? You know, but it's like when you have that thrill of righteous indignation because you're because you're because uh, you're going up against a truly evil enemy, right? It's it's easy to talk yourself into doing anything, right? That uh, let's let's uh, invade Iraq and occupy it, you know, for for the next decade, you know, let's uh, you know let's let's rip up the Constitution and start torturing people all around the world, you know, and and I think that there's a little bit of the same dynamic here that you know because. You know, yeah, Putin is much like George W. Bush and Dick Cheney and all those people. Vladimir Putin is a disgusted imperialist warmonger. He's committed real war crimes in Ukraine. That's all correct, right? Although it's been amazing, I have to say, watching the United States media suddenly discover that, like, dropping cluster bombs in cities is a war crime. That you know, that's that is that is quite a discovery that the the media has made in the last month. But uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, Putin is a disgusting warmonger. He's committed horrible war crimes in Ukraine. And, you know, and so you see that and you feel that that sense of permission that once you're when you're fighting evil, you know, you could you could justify doing anything. And yeah, I worry about that a lot right now because the the worst case scenario for doing anything in this situation is like as bad as any scenario could possibly be. It'd be World War Three. Yep. We have to wrap it up. We didn't get to talk about Elon Musk. Ben Burgess is the author of Christopher Hitchens, What He Got Right, How He Went Wrong, and Why He Still Matters. Go buy the book now. You can get it over, I believe, at redemmas.org. Yep. Redemmas.org. Listen to Give Them an Argument and read him over at Jacobin. Thank you, Professor. Uh, thank you, comedian. I should say, by the way, it was great in Toronto. Uh, I uh, I got to meet a couple of people in real life. I've, I've uh uh, only seen on the show. So uh, Adnan and uh, and uh, Arjun. Uh, so, um, so are they really real? Are these real people or are they just a collection of pluses and minuses, ones mm-hmm. and zeros? They're real people. They, they... Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, like maybe there were holograms, but I mean, I, I, I did see them outside of the computer. Okay. I'll take your word for it. I'm not sure Arjun and Professor Hussein actually exist, but uh, thank you, Professor. I'll see you next week. All right. Thanks, David. Bye. You're listening to the David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Office hours. I believe it's office hours and hours. Is it possibly? No, it can't be the first Friday of the month. Is May 1st Friday? We'll have to find out. Dan is sick. Well, together again, it's the Hershenfelds, Dr. Philip Hershenfeld, Freudian psychoanalyst, and Ethan Hershenfeld, brilliant, brilliant comedian. You love him on Thug Thug Jew and everybody. Have you gotten to a million yet on YouTube, a million streams? Just uh, just an order of magnitude shy. I mean, just a little shy, just a little shy. Keep watching, keep sharing it. A trillion, yes, I'm at a trillion. I'm. Uh, You're at a trillion. There are trillion humans. Can you? Can Dr. Hershenfeld lean in? I think there's. We had a problem last week. No, no. Towards us, 
I think the the sound, he's hiding now. He's shy. If you could lean forward, yeah, I think the sound, yeah the sound problem uh, wasn't equal, and it's going to get more problematic with the two of you working off the same mic. Look how adorable the two of you are. Well, I want to talk about how feckless the left is, but I don't know if you're following Johnny Depp and yeah, Amber. I, I think that's pronounced feckles. Okay, feckle. <laughs> Uh, you'd be crazy not to be following the Johnny Depp trial. This is somebody who had everything, hundreds of millions of dollars, his own private island, Amber Heard, uh, and he's suing her for defamation. Uh, and it turns out she suffers, according to a psychologist, from histrionic and borderline personality disorders. Dr. Shannon Curry took the stand on April 26 and said that she evaluated Amber Heard for 12 hours and uh, said after a 12-hour examination that she is a border, has a borderline personality disorder and a histrionic personality disorder. What is a histrionic personality disorder? That's where you think. It's also another. That's one version. The other one is where you think you're Abraham Lincoln or you think you're Moses. Or you think you think you're. Yeah, you're you're somebody history. From the past. Exactly. Yeah. 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 I see. You're Charlie Chaplin. Right. So histrionic, I would assume, means you're prone to histrionics, yeah. right? Yeah. What is it? <laughs> Listen, I, I don't want to get involved because this was obviously a hired gun who made this diagnosis. So it's hard to trust anything that is said say more say more about that because those are called forensic psychologists or forensic psychiatrists they're hired by one party or the other in a lawsuit to come to certain conclusions is that right in certain circumstances sometimes the, the forensic psychiatrist or psychologist is uh is hired by a court is uh, you know is impartial in one way or another but very often in this kind of a situation, it's not impartial. And everybody understands what their job is to do, which is make this person look pretty bad. Right. Well, forget the McMartin preschool, that there was a psychologist brought in who was able to get every kid yeah. to tell her that they were molested and forced to worship Satan. And it was a complete scam on the part of the, the psychologist. Right. Yeah. This was all, and she was bribing them with Oreos. Or what was it? How did she get them to say that? You know, uh, one of the things I noticed when my kids were born, I would say, do you want an Oreo or a Fig Newton? 
and they go fig newton and then i'd say would you like a fig newton or an oreo they'd say uh, an oreo they would always go with the last thing interesting yeah. at least that's yeah. what i convinced the judge <laughs> but i don't no but it's isn't that right dr hershenfeld that it's very easy to elicit answers from a kid it's easy to influence an adult not just a kid <clears throat> a sophisticated cop or psychologist could convince somebody oh you didn't see that person didn't he have a gun aren't you here's something that actually happened to me 25 years ago i had back surgery big back surgery and, and it worked few months into the recovery i go i go down my office building into the lobby and there's hot soapy water all over the marble floor and i go whoo i was histrionic i land on my back and set my recovery back a good piece so like any good american i sue right and the defense for the insurance company convinced the super of the building that i had been wearing wooden shoes like the little dutch boy and i mean i never owned a pair of wooden shoes in my life and if i did would i wear them into my office people would think i was nuts and this guy this guy wasn't lying as far as he knew he was somehow talked into the idea that i was wearing wooden shoes and therefore it was my fault and the moral of this entire story never ever live or work in a doorman building <laughs> they will sell you out they will sell you out uh, every okay. time so you can talk anybody not anybody but you can talk a lot of people into things right so i'm looking at johnny depp who was married to amber heard who then went off and had a relationship with elon musk oh is that right yes hmm. There is, as they say, a breed of cat like Johnny Depp and Elon Musk and Amber Heard. They are living a life that seems desirable. It seems on the surface. Yeah. You know, I would like my, my own private island like Johnny Depp. And there he is on that private island drinking himself out of a marriage and out of a couple hundred million i i like to think i could handle all like i'd be different not me i'd be able to handle all of that yeah that's what everybody thinks what is it is is it the 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 money and the fame isolates you to a point where yeah, I'll tell you what it is, David. It's it's you can I have, want it. I want all that money and fame. Here it is. I'm gonna lay it out for I you. I can handle it. Go ahead. There's three 
balls in the air, if you if you will. It's a juggling thing. There's money, there's fame, and then there's drugs and alcohol. Many, many people can juggle two of those. Many people can juggle two of those. But if you try to juggle all three, they're going to fall to the ground. And you're going to lose a finger, and you're going to end up in court and on the front page of the court. <laughs> You can have alcohol and fame. You can have money and drugs. You can have money and alcohol. There's all, but three, most people, can, you can't ride three horses. This is something that we learned. I learned this in my own life when I was trying to pursue three careers at the same time. You can't do it. Two, you can do. Two, you can do. Three, we'll see. That's my expression. Two, you can do. Three, we'll see. You probably can't do three. So what do you think is the best combination? Which two are the best? A billion dollars and the fame. Just leave out the alcohol or or a lot of fame and a lot of drugs, but no money. That's a good one also, because that's fun and there's no responsibility. Yeah. Right. Somehow the drugs seem like the way to go. I don't know why. There's a fourth ball, by the way. Some people attempt this. The fourth ball is a lamborghini so a very fast car then you're really screwed if you try to do all four of those you're dead you're wrapped around a telephone pole what do you what do you think is harder becoming a superstar like johnny depp or keeping your sanity once you become a superstar what what do you think is more of a challenge i would suspect it's harder to maintain your sanity than it is once you're a superstar than it is to become that superstar. I can't imagine living in a bubble of privilege where everybody is telling you what they think you want to hear. I can't imagine that, but I sure as hell want to live that way. I really do. I'm at an age now where I just want people to fear me, respect me, and just anticipate my every need and give it to me. You've hit the, the Mussolini age. Yeah. You know, there's, I, you know, I there's, have nothing else to learn about life. Now I just want things handed to me. I'm done learning life's lessons. Now I just want. Have you heard of the website Fiverr? Fiverr.com? Yes. People will do any number of tasks for you for five bucks. There are people on there who will do all the things you've just asked for, for five bucks to worship you, to do everything you need to just say, you're always right. I'm telling you for five bucks. So you get a few of those people, maybe it'll cost you 25 bucks. You can have that. Can I hire a scapegoat? There's scapegoats on there for sure. Yeah. It's all a click away. I could hire somebody and just say, Oh, I didn't return your call, but it's, Raji's fault absolutely yeah and Raji will get on the phone and say yes I didn't give the message to Mr Feldman it's all my fault that's a great business that we should go into providing escape fallguy.com fallguy.com yeah yeah it's good I like it did you forget to give your wife flowers on Valentine's Day call fallguy.com will We'll take yeah. the blame. We'll make up a legit. Yeah. yeah. I like it. I just, we, let me just write this down. I think we just made a hundred million dollars. At least. All right. 
Uh, let's talk about liberals, the left. Why yeah. they're so if you don't mind. No, I suggested it. I know. That's my segue. Okay. How come? Favus. Favus. I'm gonna I'm gonna <laughs> translate simultaneous Yiddish cast. Favus. <laughs> How come? what does Favus mean? Favus. How come? How come? How come? How come? Favus. <laughs> <laughs> My translation gig very easy. He keeps saying, How come? How come? The right. Give that guy a glass of water. Game of Bisselwasser. This is, you know what? This is what Dr. Hirschenfeld, this is what my son went to Germany for two years, comes home speaking fluent German. He sees his grandmother for the first time. And he start, the first thing out of his mouth is get on the train, Juden, German, get on the train. And or, <laughs> thinking this is what this is what we end up with. This so is let let your father speak, please. How come the right? Has this piece of drack that everybody knows is a piece of drack and is a liar. And he, he's infantile. Everybody knows it. And yet. And, and everybody on the right lines up behind him and supports him. And they're all. And it's, you know, one of my thoughts is that maybe 25 years ago, a bunch of people got together and says, OK, what do we got to do to take over this country? We got to weaponize Roe v. Wade. We got to use that to take over the courts. And then we got to use the courts in order to get rid of gerrymandering so we can win all the congress congressional districts. And they've, they've been keeping up with that plan and nobody has deviated. And nobody has said, no, I'm not going to go on with that. However, on the left, get a president. He's not Abraham Lincoln and George Washington rolled up into one. But who is? They probably weren't even that. But he's basically a decent guy trying to do an impossible job and doing not bad at it. At least that's my opinion. And he is torn apart by the left. Well, what's your position on pronouns? Now, you know, I, I understand pronouns are important to a lot of people, 
But I would not base my national campaign or my evaluation of a president who's dealing with really difficult stuff on his support for pronouns. Let everybody choose their own pronoun. Uh, you know, good for them. And this is the only reason I can figure out why Biden's numbers are in the toilet. Because I, I think the left wants some kind of purity. And if you deviate one centimeter, they hate you. What do you think of that? Ethan, Ethan would you like to respond to that? <clears throat> um, I, I, I don't have a competing thesis, but I would say that I do think that that pronoun stuff is important and it's vitally important and it's the most important thing for many people. No, I'm not making a joke. For many people, it is the most important thing. Well, then they haven't thought things through. No, people yeah. who are suffering because of their gender identity issues and challenges, it's the most important thing. Is it the most important thing for 50 million Americans? Probably not, but probably for 10 million it is. Those are 10 million important people. But I think there's, I don't know if that's the reason because you're saying that, here, here's where I would agree with you. At the beginning, you were laying it out as 25 years ago. I would say 35 years ago, the, the right got together and figured some things out, long-term strategy. They had a very long-term strategy and they have carried it through, like you said, without deviating. We don't do that on the left because we're constantly reevaluating, which is what adults do. If you're in a childish cult, you're willing to keep just motoring ahead, even if you have to lie and even if you have to cheat and even if you have to hurt innocent people. That's their advantage. We have the disadvantage on the left of actually giving a shit about people, about everybody, actually caring about the welfare of the entire country. That's tough to do. You can't do that and stick on one path because there isn't one answer. Because there are 10 million people for whom pronouns are the most important thing, and they matter. So, yeah, we're at a big disadvantage. As for gerrymandering, um, as far as I understand it, the right has taken much better advantage of that than we have over the yes, years. Yes. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so we're screwed. But at least we're, right. we're, we're correct. <laughs> we're screwed, but we're on the moral high ground. Right. I think we sometimes confuse the left with liberals. And I think the left uh, pays lip service to gender pronouns, but the left, as I understand it, is more concerned about class struggle and what Biden, I think the purity test that the left applies to Biden is Medicare for all, free tuition at public universities, uh, you know, less money on defense, more on our schools, that kind of stuff. I think the right wing sometimes uses gender pronouns to paint the entire left and make us look like it's all identity. I think uh, I don't th I think the leftists I know are, are furious at Biden for dropping the ball on Bernie's build back better, the social safety net, not raising the minimum wage. Uh, um, yeah, I, I don't think 
he deserved, with all due respect, I don't think Joe Biden is uh, doing a particularly good job. Doing a better job than Donald Trump would have in his second term. Okay. And so the reason the right does so well is they single out some issues and they fight to the death, to our death for those issues. Yeah. And the, the Democrats don't fight for anything other than money for themselves. They, they right? fight each other is what they do. They, they fight each other. Yeah. Okay. Right now, the right is beginning a little bit to fight each other. And I think that's really good news. Let's see how far it goes. Right. Ethan? Well, I was having two thoughts. One was that um, we continue to spend as much on our military as I think it's the next 10 countries combined. We did that under Trump. We did that under Obama, under both of the Bushes. We continue to do that. We've been doing that probably for 75, well, 80 years now, probably. Uh, maybe maybe longer. Um, so that's number one. That, that's a horror, and that's a horror show. And uh, there's not a lot you can get done when when all of the money essentially is going to to bombs. Um, number two, I can't help thinking. Um, I was reading a play the other day, and the playwright used the phrase uh, it was something like geo angst, geo angst, which is this notion that. We're all suffering from the knowledge or the feeling, and I don't want to misquote the playwright, but the knowledge and the feeling, the suspicion that the earth is no longer super friendly to us. It's no longer a great environment to us. The actual ground we're standing on is revolting against everything we've done to it. We're all living through that. So all of these debates that we have about policy differences or party disagreements or who should be president or who should be, all of that is very much, it's starting to feel like deck chairs on the Titanic. It's, it's a, right. that's what I'm feeling more acutely than ever. We're all going down together. We can be yelling at each other while we do it. Uh, the problem again on the left, right issue is that it's only our side that acknowledges that. And it's only some of our side that acknowledges it. And they, even that side, that part of our side that does, isn't doing what needs to be done to take care of it. So we're all just going down on the ship and um, there's a lot of strife instead of violence. Well, it's, kind of like it's kind of like what you said about you can't have three careers, you can only have two, and that the Democrats should pick three things that they think is important and just repeat it over and over again. And when people important, that are vital, 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 I'll give you one that should be among those three dead children. I know we discussed dead children two weeks ago, but what I'm talking about here is that we have an epidemic of children in this country dying from guns. No other country comes close. Your child, if you're born in the United States, if you're a parent in the United States, your child has a very, very good chance compared to any other country in the world of your child dying from a bullet. And the fact that that's not number one on everyone's platform, that's outrageous. Your child, that's it's crazy. How is that not 
Subject number one. one. I like that. I can go with dead children. I like dead children. I like that. Good. Okay, that's one. And so if you get asked a question about pronouns or the situation in Ukraine, you say, I'm not running for office to help the people of Ukraine or people with pronouns. I'm about dead children. Save your child from a bullet that has your child's name on it. There's only so many hours in the day. Yeah. I can't focus on everything. I'm here for dead children. All right, that's one. What's what's two? What's two? Well, the environment. Uh, the environment. Uh, yeah, but see, he doesn't care about the environment. Look at this guy. Doesn't give a shit. A lot of people don't believe that there's an environmental problem, just like they don't believe in COVID. There are a lot of people who just don't believe. Right, but they're not. You're not going to get their vote, or so you're giving up on the environment. Let me give you something else to worry about. What's topic two? Um, fascism. We had the First World War followed by a plague of the um, flu, followed by an economic collapse. And after that, most of the people in the world said, you know, we need we need a strong leader to make us feel that we're being taken care of and controlled. Mussolini made the trains run on time. So we've got the plague. We've got the war. We don't have the trains. (laughs) (laughs) Thank God we don't have the trains. We don't have the trains. We're this close to fascism. But we may have a lot of economic trouble down the road. And I think already a lot of people. But how do you run on this? You're correct. But how do you run on this? It's very highfalutin. It's high concept. It requires a paragraph. You need a topic that requires just a bumper sticker. Okay. I mean, if we want to win, we're not running anyway. Yeah. Well, maybe the Republicans could run on that saying Joe Biden is all he's about the trains running on time. He's, you know, he's, he's Mr. Why, why can't the Democrats find a charismatic guy? Or woman. Hello. Or woman. Yeah. Why not? He doesn't care about the environment or women, this guy. <laughs> and he started with the pronouns. Did you notice that? That woman from Michigan, run her for president. Right. It was great. I love that. That did you see her speech? I, I, I heard. <clears throat> there was some talk on MSNBC last night that um, Hillary may be raising her head again. You know what? What I would vote for her. I, I, I you know, with I saw her at the Madeleine Albright Memorial. The woman. Who, who, who thought it was OK that 500,000 Iraqi kids starved to death to prove a point that economic sanctions work. I would still vote for Hillary over Joe Biden. At least there's something there's something upstairs. I mean, what, is that what you think the problem 
is with Joe that people don't think he's, I don't know, that he's present. I watched, I watched uh, him on Larry King yeah. 30 years ago. Uh, I just watched it the other night. It's not the same guy. It's a completely different. But he's, know, got, sure. he's got a lot of good advisors, I think, that he listens to. So did George W. Bush. Well, he didn't. I, mean, I, he had, I don't know. I think eventually you need a guy in the situation room like President Kennedy, who says to Curtis LeMay, enough. I, I think, you know, find the best. Eventually you need somebody who can see through the uh, the advice from the bureaucrats. Sure. I don't know. Um, yeah, check out that speech by that. Uh, that that. Um, she was QAnon, right? When, yeah, the her opponent in a fundraising letter claimed that she was grooming children. You know, all these fantasies of pedophilia. By the way, it doesn't take a professional psychoanalyst to figure out why are these guys so obsessed with the other the other guys preying on children. Clearly, they have some weird fetishization of children. It's it's a bizarre, ubiquitous fantasy on their part. Or they're all just actually cynically playing this game. In any case, this politician used that ruse to raise some money. And then her Democratic opponent in the on the floor in, I think, the Michigan uh, House um, called her out on it. And it was a beautiful speech. It was passionate. It was concise. It was convincing. And she became a superstar overnight. L look it up. I can't remember her name. Yeah, my uh, sister was telling me about that. Uh, very quickly, who is responsible for that amazing portrait behind you? It's amazing. This is, uh, this is a beautiful work by my partner, uh, Kirsten Rolfs. Um, and that is a portrait of her own grandmother, who was as beautiful as she is. I mean, look at that. Look at that mug. She was uh, apparently a bit of a fashionista and a, and a party girl in Hamburg. Um, before the war, I'm putting uh, which war? The 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 Zweite the Erste Weltmilchama but the Zweite Weltmilchama. <laughs> and in between, was there a, was there a war? Uh, it's beautiful. And how? And is she showing anywhere where we can yeah, see the art? I just put her name in the chat, uh, and you can share it. You can check out Kirsten Rolf's art .com. That's K E R S T I N. And R O O L F S art.com. She had a solo show here on the East Side a few months ago. And she I remember you came. You, and, and did, did you guys have dinner tonight together? We did. Yeah. We had a lovely uh, vegan smorgasbord. It was a vegan smorgasbord. This um, is this is more. This here, is, I'll show you one more. This is corner right that's, here. Uh, she did a, a portrait there of. Wow. Uh, me and my father when I was a baby. And that's oh, I've seen the picture. Hang on for one second. That picture, I've seen that picture of your dad. That's yeah, off that a picture of your dad, yeah. right? That photo is in my apartment. That That's a photo my mom took. And uh, I think it was at the Bronx, too. Right. Yeah. Right. I've seen that. She's amazing. Yeah, she's a yeah, terrific sure. painter. And this is my favorite of her style. She does these oil. It's oil on canvas, but black and white. It's, it, it's a beautiful uh, effect. 
will she paint the logo for fallguy.com well i'm telling you that reminds me i'm doing a roofing job i hired these guys it's called kazalt roofing and he made a good joke he 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 thought it was like gavalt like oi gavalt roofing (laughs) and i thought the oi gavalt roofers i could see their logo which is a guy falling off the roof with his hammer Uh, very quickly, COVID's over, apparently, right? Everybody is not wearing a mask, breathing on me. I'm I wearing a mask whenever I go out. I'm wearing masks also because I these, these acting jobs, I have one tomorrow night and one on Monday. you got to show up with a negative test or you don't work. Right. right. So, uh, brag to me about your career. Okay, I'm going to plug something. On, yeah. on uh, May 17th, right here at the Comic Strip on the Upper East Side on 82nd Street, the famous Comic Strip, I'm doing a fundraising show for the Tannenbaum Foundation, which works to promote justice and build respect for religious differences. There it is, the Tannenbaum Foundation, and it's uh, on May 17th. Uh, contact me through my website for details. Come out and see that. Some very funny comedians, including Michael Riccosi and uh, uh, Holly Harper and Ben Kirschenbaum. But also, so that's May 17th. Please come to that. Also, Tomorrow night, I'm shooting a, a, uh, this film, uh, a scene in a film. And then on Monday, I'm shooting this thing. What, 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 what? What's the, what are you shooting? That's called Bound. It's an independent feature. And then on Monday, I'm shooting a scene. My scene is with Samuel Jackson on Monday. Wow. Yeah. Will you it's get a, a picture for us? I will get a picture um, and uh, I'll get him to, I don't know what, but uh, it's called The Kill Room. The Kill Room. So that's it. Wow. Get, I want to see a picture of you with, and Uma Thurman's in this movie. Yes, she is, yeah. I'm appearing absolutely nowhere in the next month. <laughs> I just wanted to make that point. <laughs> My phone has not rung in seven years. Fantastic. Uh, go watch... Th- Go, yeah. Hmm? Thug Thug Jew. Thank you. Watch Thug Thug Jew and keep commenting and sharing. But it's let's, very important. Let's push him over a million, guys. Come on. We can do it. I thought you were going to say, let's push him over the railing. <laughs> <laughs> um, the balcony right here. No, I was going to say one other thing. Just everyone keep in mind. It's always sunny above the clouds. Right. Except at night. Yeah. Except at night. It's, it's actually not. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Hershenfeld. Thank you, Ethan Hershenfeld. I hope to see you next week. Bye. Thank you so much. You're listening. Thank you. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Friend all of us on Facebook and all of us on Elon Musk's thing. And Office Hours is every Friday night at 8 p.m., Come join us. Go to my website to sign up and you can join our virtual studio audience by going to my website and signing up. And while you're over there, sign up for my newsletter. We don't share any of your information. We will be back with the brilliant Emil Guillermo. But here's some music from Professor Mike Steinel. Thank you.
I were Mike Steinel. I wish I could do that. My life would be so much better if I were Mike Steinel, who is a jazz trumpeter, composer, educator, member of the University of North Texas Jazz Studies faculty for I don't know how many decades, author of the highly acclaimed Essential Elements for Jazz Ensemble, Volumes 1 and 2, Building a Jazz Vocabulary. His latest book on jazz is Running the Changes. Go to MikeSteinL.com and learn how to purchase his latest release, Song and Dance, the Mike Steinel Quintet, featuring Rosanna Eckert on Origin Records. What an amazing, amazing guy. Just unstoppable. Emil Guillermo is the host of the PETA podcast, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. He's also a columnist for the Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund, otherwise known as ALDEF. And he joins us today from California. Welcome. Two years old. So I want to talk to you about the election in, in, in the Philippines. Bong Bong yeah. looks like yeah. he's going to win this thing. Well, there was another poll that came out and he's got something like a 20 point lead uh, over the next uh, highest, uh, you know, uh, person mentioned There's the mayor of Manila. But the person who the good governance folks in uh, both overseas and in the Philippines wants is the current vice president. They have a a different kind of vice president president relationship there where they run independently and the vice president Lenny Robredo had a birthday over the weekend and about 300 Filipinos here in in the United States who can vote their dual citizens they cast their ballots voting has started uh absentee here in uh in well overseas and then they get the ballots and 
embassies and consulates here in the in, in the United States and abroad. They send them back in the final vote or the vote voting day election day in the Philippines is on May 9th. So, yeah, it, it doesn't look good in the polls right now. But people I talk to, like those who are dual citizens, are saying, well, you know, there's like there could be a late surge. They've got a lot to make up, you know, to, to catch Mar Marcos. But I think what we saw last Saturday is the beginning of a lot of, I don't know, when we were in San Francisco together, you recall I covered the anti-Marcos protests in San Francisco. Right. And that anti-Marcos fervor, you know, you got a little glimpse of that uh, last weekend. It's It was a thing that was really so powerful and strong in the 80s when Marcos was in power. And I think it was helped somewhat because Reagan and Bush propped him up. And so you had a, um, you know, people at, at demonstrations and protests when Marcos were was was coming to visit San Francisco. You had people from the the entire community, both pro Marcos and anti Marcos. Plus, you had progressive and liberal uh, Americans, white, actually, you know, of all stripes and colors going there to protest the U.S.'s involvement in the Philippines. And so it was not uncommon to have hundreds of people for, for anti-Marcos protests. If we can have just a little bit of that uh, in, you know, right now throughout the world that we're uh, just, just showcasing the problem of the second coming of the son of a dictator, you might see a late minute surge. I think that's still kind of a possibility, but it's a long shot. Who are you rooting for? Well, I would like to see democracy reign, right? I would like the, 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 the appearance is that it's a democratic election, but Marcos is part of a family um, that left the Philippines in 1986. They, they weren't going to Hawaii on vacation. They were pushed out. They were uh, allowed to go. Well, the U.S. allowed them to be in exile in Hawaii, but they left the Philippines uh, in, you know, very unceremoniously. And I just don't see how 40 years later, Filipinos can allow the Marcuses to regain power after the Marcuses plundered $10 billion from, from the, the nation's treasury, after uh, tens of thousands of people tortured. Uh, you know, the, the stats for both uh, Marcos and the current president, Duterte, are, are nearly comparable. I think Marcos tortured more people than Marcos, uh, than Duterte killed. Um, I think that's really because I, I remember asking you about a month ago if Duterte was as bad as Marcos and you said no, nobody's well, as bad as Marcos. Mark, in sheer, in terms of sheer numbers, uh, Marcos tortured more people. I think, and he, and he forced more people into exile. Uh, if you look at the number of alleged drug dealers that were caught in the web by, uh, you know, Duterte's anti-drug, uh, whether they call them extrajudicial killings. Um, I don't know the exact number right now, but a, a year ago, there was a UN report that said something like 12,000 people were killed and Marcus only killed officially killed about 8,000. But you know, the, the number of, of tortured people, you know, that that's pretty extreme on, on the part of Marcos. So, you know, all this really goes back to what Duterte did for Marcos in 2016, which is he essentially took Marcos. Marcos was like couldn't be buried. He was in a refrigerated 
Museum in northern in the northern Philippines and in the Ilocos region. And he was just waiting. He was essentially in cold storage until, you know, he got the sign that, oh, he could be buried and given a hero's burial. Duterte gave that to him in 2016 and not not after. I mean, there, there had to be Supreme Court rulings. And as soon as the Supreme Court ruled that Duterte could do it, almost like within like six hours, boom, Marcos was in the ground. And that was the beginning of this rehabilitation that we're now seeing come to its seemingly come to its fruition six years later with maybe perhaps the emergence of Bong Bong, Ferdinand Marcos Jr., a.k.a. Bong Bong Marcos, uh, a.k.a. BBM, they call him in, in the press. BBM's rise. We're going to see him. We might see him reinstalled come May 9th. One of the events that precipitated the fall of of Marcos was his assassination of Benigno Aquino. Is that the name? Well, Benigno, uh, most people go hard on the G. Benigno. Uh, it depends on how hard or soft you want the G to go. Um, but Benigno, we'll go soft on the show. And, and he has a son. Uh, the wife became president of the, the wife Philippines. became president. Yeah. Corey Aquino. Yeah. And, and and Duterte's predecessor was Benigno's son. Yeah. Where does he factor into all this? He's no, the, the, the Aquinos aren't really a factor. Here's here's when you mentioned the Aquinos and you mentioned people power was great in 86, 87 after because essentially it was a a nonviolent revolution where they pushed Marcos out. The sad thing is, once the Aquinos got to power, they could not really envision the same thing that the uh, the, the the head of the family, the assassinated leader, uh, Benigno Aquino, the senator who was in exile in America, went back, and that's when he was assassinated in 1983. But they didn't have the same kind of vision. Uh, Corey Aquino was more figurehead, uh, and people power she got us she got the philippines to people power but subsequent to cory aquino very few filipino uh leaders have been able to to lift up the country maybe the closest one was for was uh ferdinand marcus's um associate a guy named um uh, ramos um he was in the army educated at west point he was a kind of an elitist filipino and I think this is one of the problems with all of these people in government in the Philippines. Basically, you're dealing with oligarchs. You're basically you're dealing with rich Filipinos, elitist Filipinos, and they try to talk a good game when it comes to the people. But it's the Philippines is still a one percent ruling the you know the the ninety nine and. In fact, when I first was looking at Philippine society and Philippine politics, that's when I first heard the term oligarchs used. Now, oligarchy is something that you can probably apply to America. Um, uh, it was the first time cronyism. I I had never heard. Right. Of first time I heard. You're right. The first time I heard of cronyism was the Philippines. Yeah. Right. And then the you know kleptocracy. Once once Marcos plundered ten billion dollars from from the treasury. Uh, I think that's a term that, you know, you hear it applied to, to Russia and Putin, 
that that's uh, something you can apply certainly to, to Marcos. And, you know, given where we are globally, right, the geopolitical trend now of strong men, Ferdinand Marcos Jr. Bong Bong is I, I don't know how strong a guy he's going to be, but he's from a family that has strong man, the strong man legacy. Right. He, the, Ferdinand Marcos declared martial law, something that uh, that uh, Congresswoman can't spell correctly. Martial law. She she sees it as a remember that Georgia County Congresswoman. She spelled it. Oh, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Right. She spelled it M-A-R-S-H-A-L-L. Like, you know, I'm going right. to deputize you. I'm martial law. Right. So but right. uh, anyway, no, I don't know how, how what a tough guy Bong Bong is going to be. Maybe he's sort of like the buffer between the extreme of 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 his father. And maybe he's sort of like, a you know, a meeker version. But it still comes at a time when we uh, are seeing Is he the military. Is he, like, I would assume Ferdinand Marcos had. In fact, I'm pretty sure he was a World War Two hero. Ferdinand well, that's Marcos. what the, it's. It's a claim. It's not certain if he really, you know, if he bought the medals at a at some, you know, medals R us shop and just pasted them. But he had a military background, the military yeah, life. It's not even clear if that's the case. I mean, he, there was a lot of embellishments about what Marcos did or didn't do in terms of that military background. One thing is Bong Bong Marcos, Ferdinand Marcos Jr. does not have that kind of background. Uh, he's kind of like a little, you know, he, I think he was like a disco rat or a playboy type. So the military, he would be a tool of, you know, a puppy for the military, right? Uh, I it looks like that might be the case. Marcos, here's the thing about Marcos. Marcos was not a, necessarily a military guy, but he definitely knew how to uh, how to control them. And he had generals. He knew the generals uh, who were in control of the military and they and they did his bidding. I don't know what the situation is going to be for for Bong Bong, but Let's hope that there's still the chance that there's this last minute surge if there's this anti-Marcos feeling, this anti-Marcos fervor. The problem with that, and this goes to what's going on throughout the entire, you know, the, the whole world, the amount of disinformation that goes on in social media in the Philippines challenges truth, challenges um, all the negative stuff that is out there uh, that's part of history. Um, about the Marcoses, the Marcos family. It's just hard to believe that all it took was 40 years for for people to forget. And, you know, it's not just the current generation of young folks who aren't even taught some of the things that Marcos did. It's, you know, they're exposed to social media, but it's also um, a a factor of, you know, the, the Philippines right now is after Duterte, you know, Bong Bong Marcos may be seen as, oh, well, maybe he's less violent than Duterte. Maybe he's less, you know, maybe what is, Duterte was elected in 2016. He can't run for reelection. Now, he's he's term limited out. He was going to run as a vice president. That was a talk. I don't know what his what he's going to do next, but he his daughter has decided to run for vice president. So uh, there's some optimists, some Filipino optimists are saying, well, maybe uh, Duterte's daughter uh, becomes vice president and maybe Lenny Robredo with the good governance folks, maybe she uh, becomes a, uh, in a becomes a president. But as I said, you know, we're, we're dealing with this subset of people in the Philippines, the, the essentially the oligarchs. And I think 
even though Lenny Robredo is is backed by, you know, the good governance types in the Philippines and here among Filipino Americans who can who are dual citizens and can vote. Uh, you know, I don't know exactly what Lenny Robredo stands for in terms of what she would do to either improve or make better uh, the Philippines for for regular folks. And if you well, want to let's, how- talk about, let's talk about Duterte's legacy, because, you know, fr- from my point of view there, he's done a couple of good things. There's now a Philippine space program. He's yeah. been he's banned outdoor smoking. Yeah. 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 That's good. I mean, he's look, he's he's actually softened a little bit, you know, as as build, build, build. he got build, build, build past. Yeah. We can't get build back better, but he's building infrastructure. You know, the, the Philippines money laundering, the Philippines is growing. It's still not as respected, respected as it could be. But, uh, you know, you go into sections of the Philippines and you, you know, like Makati, which is the financial district. And you'd say, wow, you know, it's it's pretty modern here. But uh, like, you know, you you know, then you just go further off and it's it's squalor and it's, uh, you know, people are are not doing well. So I, you know, people withdrew the Philippines from the International Criminal Court. That's a good thing, right? Yeah. yeah, But he doesn't have to listen to it doesn't have to abide by anything i mean it with i mean tell me what he did right could he get reelected if there oh, were no, a term no that, he's he's not eligible for re-election and i i don't could he get, is he gonna leave on top uh you know well look here's a here's a mark that he's not a bad guy uh, the mark that he's not a bad guy is that he could declare martial law and say i'm gonna stay a lot longer you know but right. i i think he's i think he's too smart for that so he's got enough problems. The legacy of the extrajudicial killings, the thousands of extrajudicial killings, which he poo-poos as saying, well, look, I was just clean. I was just cleaning up the streets. I was cleaning up the, you know, the drug traffic. I was, you know, going after, um, you know, the, the drug problem here. Isn't it, isn't your life better? And you have a lot of people just shaking their heads. Yeah, we feel safe. You know, it's like a, it's a extreme law and order sort of situation there. But I think they have to do a whole lot more to make, make people's lives better. Uh, right now, I, I think it's good for, for people at the top, you know, who go back and forth between the, the U S and the Philippines. And, uh, I don't, I'm, I, I'm here in America and I, I don't go back to the Philippines, but I have tons of relatives still. And I know a lot of Filipinos who came here in the eighties and in the two thousands and they've, they've come here to work and then they've gone back to retire in the Philippines. So, I think that is going to help influence and maybe offset some of the young people who don't know what went on in 1980, 1990, and 2000, you know, under Marcos, you're, you're, you're seeing an influx of people from America going back there. But for the most part, I see a lot of like people just staying here, being dual citizens and voting back there. So I don't know, David, it, it just would be a bad look if bong bong Marcos gets elected president of the Philippines on May 9th, given right. the, 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 the battle now between democracy and autocracy, it would be really, even if Bong Bong is a light version of his father, it would still be uh, 
you know, a bad, a bad look for democracy, a win for autocracy. Right. Tell me about the killer monkeys. Oh, oh, let me say one thing this week before we get to the killer monkeys. And then Lapu Lapu Day was April 27th. And Lapu Lapu was the first the first ruler official. Well, official ruler is hard to say because it's 7200 islands and every island has its ruler. But April 27th, 1521, Lapu Lapu slayed Magellan. Now, Magellan, everyone knows Magellan. No one knows Lapu Lapu. And I just think that we, we need on the David Feldman show, we need to correct that, that people know Lapu Lapu. Here Do is, they boil him alive? Is that how they killed Magellan? They, uh, I don't know specifically how they killed him, whether they beheaded him or they castrated him first and then beheaded him. Uh, it had to do with some heavy metal into some private parts, though. All, all I know is that Lapu Lapu was the man who killed Magellan and staved off colonialism in the Philippines for about 40 years. He didn't kill off colonialism because the Spanish still came came at them. But that was a that's taking a stand. If you and, and so how do we look at Lapu Lapu today? We should we should honor and revere him. He's the man who stands up to colonialism. He's the man who who thwarts colonial. He is Volodymyr Zelensky, right? Standing up to Putin. He, he I'm just trying to extend the metaphor, David, as far as I can. It can go quickly. Yeah. We, we, tell me about the uh, monkeys, the monkeys. OK, here's the thing about the monkeys. PETA, you can listen to the PETA podcast. There's this thing there's. America has an undocumented monkey problem because every time a monkey moves, it has to be uh, there has to be a veterinary check. They call it a certificate of veterinary inspection, a CVI. And without the CVI, uh, the animal welfare laws say you can't move the monkey. And so what do the big labs, the big labs like Charles River in Cambridge, Mass, what are they doing? They're moving monkeys without CVIs. And so when and the problem here is if you don't know the paper trail of your monkey through the documents, because there are undocumented monkeys, you don't know how how or what danger the public is when these monkeys escape and and they can pass on disease and viruses like herpes B. Herpes B is not like regular herpes that, you know, some of your listeners may have. It's a killer. Herpes B is a killer. In, you know, West Nile virus, uh, tuberculosis, this is stuff that monkeys have. You can only tell if they're being transported safely if they have that that certificate of veterinary inspection. PETA went through a, a bunch of documents from this. They went to different states. Two thousand monkeys were transported. They found two thousand monkeys transported without CVIs. And remember that crash in in Danville, Pennsylvania. In January, remember, it went from JFK with a bunch of monkeys from Mauritius. They went on a van. The van crashed in Pennsylvania and the van and it tipped over. Monkeys were all over the road. People would go up to the cages and one woman opened up a cage and a monkey spat in her face. She had to be quarantined for, you know, an indefinite period. But, you know, no one takes the thing seriously about this transport of monkeys, but it's serious. And, you know, um, we wouldn't have this problem if 
scientists and researchers just realize the monkeys are of real no really of no value to science. They 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 don't do what the scientists think. It's essentially a, an experiment medium that they use that they don't that, that nothing comes out of it for you know to benefit science or humans. So if they ended animal experimentation, specifically primate experimentation, you wouldn't have this problem. But right now we've got this undocumented monkey problem. Yes. Boy, you know, 20 years ago, I'd be able to make light of this. So I know, long. isn't that, you, you can't, all right, how about, you know, there's this other no, stuff. No, 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 oh, no, okay. no, no, no. I, I, I know exactly what you mean, though, because there's so many, I, I, uh, there are a couple stories out there I wanted to make fun of, and I said, I know what it's like to, to, to say something and to cross the line, but I didn't do it in an iClub. I did it in a meditation, and the meditators got mad at me. I was watching The Wolf of Wall Street two nights ago. They were depicting the excess on Wall Street, these wild parties that yeah. they would throw. And one of the parties involved as a monkey with a suit and tie on. And I remember laughing. And then I said, you can't laugh at that anymore. Hey, Emil Guillermo, host of the PETA podcast, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. Read them every day over at ALDEF, the Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund. Emil Lamont on Twitter. Yeah, are you, yeah. still, are you still on Twitter? Are, should we get, should we leave Twitter on uh, mass or are we staying away? To me, to me, Twitter is like show business. Yeah. I mm -hmm. didn't leave it. It left me. <laughs> <It's kind> of, <laughs> I, I, like, I don't know. I'm on Twitter. I'm, I feel I'm the same way. I, you know, I, I resisted going to TikTok because TikTok, you know, the Chinese, you know, give the Chinese all your information. They already have it though. So I'm thinking TikTok is the next place to go. Don't you know? Are you on TikTok? Yet? I, I, you know, I have my podcast. I, I want people to listen to my podcast by any way necessary. So we promote it on YouTube and Twitter and Facebook and, and not uh, TikTok. I not TikTok yet. Not I, yet. I, I think I th look, when an old guy like me is saying, I think I got to go TikTok. I look, I'm and, you know, I'm serious about it because I'm taking dancing lessons. So, you know, really? well, you know, I, I know a few, you know, I could do the tinnacling, you know, and I could do the Are you really taking dancing lessons. That, that's good. Hey, we have to wrap it up. <laughs> I'll, I'll salsa with you when I see you next. OK. Okay. Thank you. Thank, hey, OK. Yeah, check my daily show to amok.com. Yeah. Okay, great job. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to The David Feldman Show. Welcome back. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Friend me on the Elon Musk machine and follow me on the Mark Zuckerberg machine. Well, we're in for a special treat this evening. Usually, usually this hour is given over to the Reverend Barry W. Lynn. 
who ran Americans United for Separation of Church and State. And he's a lawyer, a barrister, member of the Supreme Court bar, and an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ. I don't think we're going to see him tonight. Oh, no, we are. Oh, this is, oh, ah, okay. Uh, well, let me introduce our very special guest. Dr. Joan Lynn is a geriatrician. Did, did I pronounce that properly? Yep. Geriatrician. Geriatrician. A geriatrician, hospice physician, health services researcher, quality improvement advisor, and policy advocate who has focused upon shaping American health care so that every person can count on living comfortably and meaningfully through the period of serious illness and disability in the last years of life at a sustainable cost to the community and... I can't wait to talk with you and Reverend Barry W. Lynn. I'm going to let the Reverend control most of this conversation. Do you mind if I ask Dr. Lynn a couple of questions? Go ahead, please. Can you okay. hear me? You know, both, yes, of the, both of us have laryngitis tonight. So okay. if, if it sounds too croaky, Kill us. <laughs> what? Get what? Kill us. No. No, no, no don't do that. <laughs> Send us to bed. Uh, I've had some experiences. A friend of mine needed nursing home treatment. And it was simultaneously pretty good and a little scary at the same time. My friend now is home from rehab it is a for-profit industry nursing homes i i didn't know that yep. is that seven, correct 70 percent is for profit the rest is either government owned or like a county or a city um or veterans and or uh run by churches uh synagogues and, and other religious anchors um Yep, it's it's majority uh, for profit. And it's mostly paid for by Medicare, as I understand it. No, no not at all. Mostly paid for by Medicaid. So oh, Medi because Medicare pays for a short time after a hospitalization, but otherwise it's all Medicaid. And private. So I mean, if you go into a nursing home today, you'll have to pay privately. So if you're over 70, 80, and you have no children to take care of you, and you need special attention, you have to go into a nursing home. I, I, would, I would assume the state. Um, yeah, I mean, you, people string together all sorts of things. I mean, you can, you know, if you can find one, you can hire home health aides to take care of you know, your personal issues of getting dressed and clean and going to the bathroom and so forth. If you have enough money. Um, you have to be rich. You would have to be a millionaire to afford that, I would assume. Yeah. I mean, it's um, it, at home with you know, not counting the costs of maintaining the home and the taxes on the home and, you know, the heat and the light and the water and everything. Uh, just the home health aid 
is about 35,000 a year um, for on the order of eight to 10 hours a day. Um, if, if that's not adequate, if you need somebody around all of the time, then the cost goes way up. So the cost to have somebody home who has no one for volunteer help is over a quarter million dollars a year. Quarter so you, a million you know, yeah. I'm sorry, quarter of a million dollars to, to be at home and to have a full time. Around the clock. Nurse. Well, around the clock aid, I mean, it wouldn't be a nurse, but it's five FTEs. Um, it's, it's three, you can think of it in a simple sort of way. It's three to cover the five days of the week and then two on the weekend. Um, that comes up a little short, but then you have to have some training time and some recruiting time and some turnover and occasional vacation. <laughs> so right. you end up with five FTE. So if you have five FTE and you're paying them even just 30,000 a year and paying their taxes, you're up to 40,000 a year. And so that gets you to 200,000. And then there's the cost of the nursing and the supervision and the training and keeping the house. You know, you have to, you have to get the food in and, and all those things. Right. So, yeah, it's on the order of a quarter million a year if you need round the clock care. There's a, a shock awaiting a lot of baby boomers because we <laughs> that's for sure. Deny, we deny death and we deny old age and we deny that we're ever going to get sick because this is America and it's unimaginable to us. We just don't want to think about it. Uh, the boomers are getting a bit of a wake up call taking care of their parents. Right. Right. How do other countries handle aging? Well, I mean, most countries make this part of their public health system. Um, so they um, provide, now, you know, they still do expect a lot of family help um, and they, they vary a lot in how they put it together, but it is part of um, the overall you know, social contract. Uh, even in relatively poor countries, the public health office will be looking after the well-being of elderly people. Um, so we are kind of an so outlier in having no real system. Is it, is it fair to say that in America, we warehouse people who need round-the-clock care, well, put them in homes as opposed to... In, in 1978, when I first started working in a nursing home, there were a lot of warehouse kinds of situations with people being drugged and basically cleaned and turned until they died. Um, that really doesn't happen very often now. There are some bad nursing homes, but not really very many. Um, you know, nursing homes really try to um, accommodate people's uh, preferences and their lifestyle and and. Uh, have some variation in you know when you can eat and exactly what you can eat and what activities there are. So, you know, I mean, it, it depends to some extent upon sort of how sick the clientele is. Um, if you have mostly people who are profoundly dis disabled with dementia, you're in a very different spot than if you have mostly people who have a very serious physical ailment and can't get around, but they, their minds are sharp. So, you know, in that sort of situation, you'd have bingo going on. And in the dementia situation, you'd have, um, you have some music and you'd have uh, some art therapy and maybe a dog visiting, uh, something to try to keep people a little bit engaged. Um, but, you know, 
we have come some distance from just warehousing, although there still is a sense of that because people who are in a nursing home long-term, not just for short-term rehabilitation after hospitalization, but who are in a nursing home to live, um, are really not going to live anywhere else. So one um, uh, playwright has called it uh, God's waiting room. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. there's a sort of sense that that is kind of true, but it is really hard to do the same level of care at home. So unless you have a child or a spouse who is willing to give themselves over entirely to your care, um, it is really hard to put it together to be at home, um, you know, as a solo person. And half of women over 85 will have no one to uh, volunteer to help. So, you know, it's, it's especially a women's issue. We foolishly married men a few years older, men die a few years younger. So women have on average seven years of widowhood and much of that is alone. So men mostly have a built-in caregiver, Women mostly don't. And how do some women know when it's time to go get help? Is, does the state intervene if, if you're alienated from your kids? How, how do you know when? Well, I mean, usually when, there's some calamity and you end up in the emergency room and then somebody has to help you figure it out. Um, right. But you know, so you have a stroke or you have a fall or, you know, you get COVID or something, you know, and now you're kind of displaced from your usual environment and somebody has to take notice. But, you know, every few months in some paper somewhere, there's, you know, some person who died months earlier who was just discovered when, you know, they didn't pay their taxes or something. (laughs) Right. Uh, right. So we now, you know, in other countries and actually in some places in the United States, um, there are people sort of appointed to know what's going on in the community. Um, this is especially true in uh, Mormon areas in Utah, where whether you are Mormon or not, somebody knows whether you have a family and whether you're alone and so forth and checks on you, you know, every once in a while, make sure that they know what's going on. Um, and mobilizes services. We don't do that in general. In general, you don't even know if your neighbor is in trouble. Right. Let me just uh, ask uh, Joanne a question to move this. Uh, When you talked about, well, you can go on Medicare. Of course, Medicare doesn't cover any of Medicaid does. Now, what do you have? Let's say you're a person who's worked his or her entire life. You're in a a two-person uh, family, you have no kids to take care of you, but you have some savings, but you don't have very many, do you? The average person, even if they have a decent job through their working life, hasn't had a chance to save money. Yeah, I mean, we, we also don't think we need to because we somehow think that this is somehow being taken care of. Um, almost half of Americans still think that Medicare covers long-term care. Why are they in for a surprise? I thought um, it did. I thought Medicaid does, but you have to be quite impoverished to qualify for Medicaid. Medicaid is the poverty program. Medicare you're entitled to as a person of age or certain disabilities. Um, but if it's uh, a Medicare center. does not cover long-term care. 
What about a rehab center? It covers short-term rehab after hospitalization. So right. if you have a hip replacement, you can go to a nursing home, usually just for a couple of weeks, and then you, you go home with more therapy at home. Um, so yeah, Medicare covers that. Medicare covers, um, I think it's the first 20 days of skilled rehab. Then it covers 80% and you're liable for 20%. And then at 100 days, it covers nothing. So it's limited as right. 100 days. You know, uh, we'll move on because I want to ask you about COVID, but uh, I've learned to be very respectful to my kids. <laughs> For sure. I've, I've learned I'm getting to an age now where I'm non-combative, whatever, whatever you want, whatever you say, your wish is my command. And I still don't trust them. <laughs> I still well, in Germany, it is assumed, and China, it is assumed that the children take care of the parents. Um, now, China, with their one-child policy, has made that kind of challenging, because if the one child lives somewhere very distant, that could be really a challenge. And also, the one child could have died um, you know, before the parents needed the help. Um, but uh, in Germany, for example, you pay higher taxes if you have no children because it's assumed that the children will pitch in and help. Um, in the United States, there are statutes on the books in most states requiring children to take care of their parents, and they have almost never been enforced. So we are in that wonderful ambiguity that is so common in American policy, where we don't really know what we expect of the family. On the other right. hand, family care is now the biggest cause of uh, personal bankruptcy. Um, and including uh, the millennials um, who often are called to take care of grandma because the generation in the middle is making more money. So the kid at 22 who's just starting a career and maybe having trouble finding a good job, they say, you know, well, why don't you take care of grandma so I don't have to leave work and, you know, I'll support you. But it means that the kid then doesn't, the kid who's, you know, in their mid-20s doesn't get Retirement savings doesn't get social security savings. Um, and, you know, when they try to enter the job market at 30, they're really under a lot of suspicion. And we don't, we aren't in the habit of thinking that having taken five or six years to take care of your grandma is a noble thing. We think of it as worthless, you know, right. and useless for your career. Mitt so, Romney's, Mitt Romney's Bain Capital. <laughs> I know that they were, putting their money into drug rehab centers that I don't think work. And now Mitt Romney's Bain Capital is going into nursing homes. This is the new frontier for Wall Street, isn't it? Well, the, um, the future of nursing homes is something that really deserves a lot of uh, consideration. So in the 50s, nursing homes came under some of the same federal policies that allowed the building of hospitals. So they were built like hospitals with long corridors and, and usually two to four bedrooms um, and nursing stations and so forth. So they were built like junior hospitals. The, um, the COVID experience has made it quite clear that uh, there's a real advantage to smaller units. Um, so, but how can we get smaller units in a, in a largely urbanized 
um, you know, country. And there are good models. There's a wonderful one in Detroit um, that took a multi-story building and carved it up into um, communities. And, you know, so each one is 12 to 20 people. And um, a, a uh, regular staff takes care of that group. So they all get to know each other well and function more like a family, have um, a central kitchen where people can come and cook something up. And, um, you know, it, it, it is much better in terms of infection control and also just much more natural. You know, we do not have very many times in life when most Americans spend time in uh, you know, two or three bedrooms um, other than with your yeah. spouse. <laughs> but um, so you know, that uh, the well, future of nursing homes deserves some real attention. I, I, I apologize to the Reverend, but we don't get you on the show too often. Last question, and then, I, then I'll be quiet, I promise. We first saw you at office hours. The, I think it was like the second week of the lockdown, and you told us exactly what would happen with COVID. I kept asking you how how much longer. Well, you know what, and you said, "No, this is not this. This ends with a whimper. You know, <laughs> it's just gonna just go away very slowly, and then come back, and then go away, and this is gonna change everybody's life." The the consensus seems to be it's no worse than the flu now and as long as you're not immunocompromised like 70 percent of this country i mean half this country is pre-diabetic but we seem to have convinced ourselves that you don't need to wear a mask if you get it it's not so bad just keep getting vaccinated if it seems like in my humble opinion it seems to me that this administration that everyone has succumbed to the right wing and just decided all right you know <laughs> get vaccinated and do whatever you want yeah and i mean that's what, what we really we really blew it with not getting massive vaccination at the time it first came available we could have avoided a couple hundred thousand deaths and a good deal of suffering um, we obviously don't yet know the real impact of long COVID. Um, I mean, I avoid the thing like the plague because of um, the, vir the viremia clearly affects all of your body parts, including your brain. So, you know, probably there are some long-term effects, even for people who don't have, you know, the syndrome of long COVID. So you're saying to avoid the, I think the message is avoid the plague like it's the plague. Yep, Exactly. But um, the, before I let it go that, that your claim that it's not any worse than flu, um, the estimate now is that um, among people who get it, it is about four times more likely to cause hospitalization or death. So that's better than what it, what it looked like at first, but that's still four times more deadly. You know? right. um, so don't think of it as just like the flu. Uh, there are, there are deaths from the flu, but there are very few. There are still a couple thousand deaths per day from COVID. So, you know, it is, it is still more, more serious <laughs> than, um, than the flu or something minor. Um, I think we have 
in a sense, corporately as a country, kind of decided to ignore that and right. to get back to something close to normal. Okay, I I apologize to the Reverend. Take it away. Let's go back to nursing homes for a minute. When my mother was literally incapable of staying with us, both of my parents stayed with us for a protracted period of time. My father died. My mother tried to stay with us. She just couldn't handle it. She went to a very what was by common standards, a very good nursing home in Washington, DC. The people who worked there uh, had a pay scale I'd like Joanne to talk about, but it was not much higher than were they to walk one block away and work at the local McDonald's. So how do you get people to do this extraordinary care in a nursing Work. It's the most, the important, most important work. Everybody's going to do. Exactly. How do you compete with the fact that the fast food place two blocks away is paying more to its workers? Yeah, I mean, we need to figure out what is the analogy to unionization. Um, you know, of the steel workers in 1910. Um, it's very hard to imagine how you engineer a strike of this level, the, you know, this critical person-to-person -person work that is scattered all over the place. But we need something like that. The, um, the nursing home aides and the home health aides nationally make an average of under $13 an hour. Uh, that's not a living wage anywhere. Um, so, you know, people keep talking about going to $15 an hour. And I keep saying that's way too little of a demand. We've got to talk about doubling the pay scale um, and providing um, certifications that give you additional income and additional clout and, it, um, and that you, know, you give you benefits, um, both vacation and, and sick leave and your own retirement security. You know, we have this very large number of women about half are, are women of color and about a third are Im recent immigrants um, who will come to their old, own old age with back trouble because they lifted people's bodies and, um, and with no retirement savings of their own. And that should just be outrageous. Um, so somebody put in the chat, uh, we should have them pay them instead of the owners damn straight. <laughs> and there are owners and managers making millions per year. Um, and the way that the nursing homes are now set up, um, the for-profit nursing homes are often umbrella companies that have multiple subsidiary companies doing every little piece of what happens in a nursing home. So they'll have a company that does the food service and a company that does the nursing service, and a company that does the building maintenance and, and so on and so on. They might have a dozen companies under them. And they, each one of which is set up to make a, a small profit, which means that the umbrella company is making one heck of a profit. And they aren't readily suable because the entity that actually manages the nursing home has no capital. So 
you know, the, the nursing home manager and the head nurses and so forth are hired by a company that has no pockets, not just no deep pockets, no pockets at all. So, but it's owned by the all these companies are owned by the same person. Yeah, well, the same group. Yeah. 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 So, um, CMS has been trying to figure out how to enable at least awareness of this uh, situation. What is CMS? What is CMS? Um, Medicare and Medicaid, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, the federal agency. Um, so, you know, they are trying to engineer transparency. So, if you go on to the Nursing Home Compare website now, or now it's just called Compare, um, you can find out at least the first layer of who owns this, this nursing home. But, um, and they, they do plan to put up much more about what their track record has been. But um, what we really need is that, you know, most of the money goes to the direct service. And that's really hard to trace when you have these umbrella arrangements, you know, sort of what exactly do you count? And if, if the food service contract is inflated in order to give money to the umbrella company, you know, how do you prove that? <laughs> so um, it's a very challenging set of issues and there is no really good reason to think that increased funding to nursing homes will go to the direct care workers. Um, you know, it, it, it would in very good nursing homes already. Nursing homes are uh, folding like crazy. And everybody right now is all enthusiastic about home and community-based services. And, you know, all of us who are relatively healthy will think, oh, that's exactly what I want. I want services in my home. But services in your home are both very expensive, as we talked about earlier, and very isolating. Yes. So, you know, so you have somebody coming to your home whose primary language is not yours, whose primary culture is not yours, maybe three, four, five of them over the course of the day. And, um, and you have no contact with your buddies because you can't get out. <laughs> and, um, you know, if you're adept at computers and, and telephones and so forth, terrific. But if you have hearing deficits and vision deficits and maybe a little confusion, um, you're really alone. Um, so I've had many um, uh, people who became residents of nursing homes who were previously home care patients uh, say, this is like summer camp. You know, if I'd known this was this good, I'd have come much earlier. You know, food shows up. I don't have to have multiple locks on my doors. I'm not scared of being broken into. Um, you know, there are activities. It's, a, it's, it's kept clean. Uh, there's a nice yard. <laughs> you know, what more could I want? Um, that's very different than the way people think of nursing homes. Um, so, you know, we have to be open to the possibility that um, being convivial is at least more uh, important to some people than um, being on their own in their own house. What does the uh, legal system have to do well, in so many cases, and, and people who listen to this show all the time know, I, I have limited amounts of faith in the judicial system we have today. But are there organizations that are working seriously, not just at a single individual who wants to sue a nursing home, but 
suing systemically as we do with prisons and other institutions to try to make systemic change? Do such legal entities even exist? Yeah, there's one that's very good um, for the Medicare Medicare Rights Center, which does sometimes get into Medicaid uh, and nursing homes. Uh, they are very good litigators and have um, won substantial gains for Medicare. Um, there's a very good advocacy group called uh, Consumer Voice. Um, it's very small. I encourage all of you to sign up. <laughs> they are very effective advocates. There's another one called Justice in Aging, which does sometimes litigate. Um, the most um, the most common litigator is actually the Department of Justice, which has a division um, that looks at uh, healthcare fraud and healthcare um, issues, and they have some very good litigators. But still, you know, we're tackling a very small, you know, tip of the iceberg, um, and not um, not going after everybody. And many states, the 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 entities that are the most dominant donors to state-level um, uh, campaigns are nursing homes. You might be very surprised that it's not pharma and it's not, uh, you know, some big manufacturing. But every um, congressman that I've talked with has somebody from the nursing home industry on speed dial because they've given them money to climb the ladder. And um, so they are disproportionately effective. And so in many states, if, a, if an entity owns, say, you know, 20 nursing homes and their standard of care is really pretty poor and they're getting lots of quality uh, dings uh, and inspections and maybe a few litigations, um, very little is done to protect the people in the other nursing homes um, to tell them that they're part of a chain that is behaving badly. Um, the newspapers have very limited interest. I mean, they'll get all excited about, you know, COVID uh, deaths in a nursing, in a veterans nursing home in Massachusetts. Mm. But, you know, where are the news stories now about uh, COVID deaths? We're still losing a couple dozen nursing home employees every week from COVID. Um, and where are the stories? You know, it's um, something that um, we like to kick the can down the road and pretend that it isn't real and pretend that we don't have to deal with it. But there you go. What about, <laughs> calling, what about calling the police? I know somebody, a friend of mine, called the police who did a wellness check at yeah. uh, Police are, I mean, there's a real role for police and there's a role for um, uh, adult protective services and, and, and for the fire department that sends out EMT, you know, emergency medical techs. But um, it, realistically, the police are quite um, unfamiliar with this level of disability. So, you know, I mean, they, they might they obviously would take action if, as sometimes happens, there's a rape going on or someone's getting beaten up. I mean, sort of conventional you know, felonies. 
but simply not taking good care of this person <clears throat> is largely beyond their skill level. Um, I remember once having a um, court-appointed guardian of a patient of my, a resident in a nursing home of mine, and he would never come meet the, the resident. And I finally got him to come meet the resident by uh, threatening to go back to the judge and having him unappointed. And um, he walked in to meet her, walked out in the hall and threw up. <laughs> He'd just never seen anybody this sick, this disabled. Um, so the nurse and I looked at each other over his bent body. And she said, um, I guess we aren't going to get much help here. <laughs> yeah, but he was the one with the authority to make decisions. Um, so the, the police are in the same kind of situation. I mean, they have a little more familiarity, but not a lot. And they haven't seen a lot of people in one place who, you know, none of whom can walk. <laughs> when, um, if, if you want to, uh, you're coughing a bit. And if you want to take some, I'll tell an anecdote. I, I will never forget one night when they were having a, uh, some kind of anniversary of CNN's Crossfire program. And I was on it with Jerry Falwell. And then afterwards, there was a huge reception right off Capitol Hill. And uh, a lot of people watched Crossfire at the time. And um, so people would come up and senators would come up and say, oh, I just saw you on television. And I'd introduce them to Joanne. One of those senators was Senator Chuck Robb of the state of Virginia. And he was our senator at the time. And some of his policy decisions were strange, but he said something so astonishing. Joanne starts to talk to him about long-term care. He looks to the aide next to him and he said, you know, we, we ought to look into this. What's it called? Long-term care. That's how ridiculously uninformed people of moderate competence at the time and, were. And this, now, is the son -in -law, this is the son-in-law of the man who gave us Medicaid and Medicare. Correct. So, Joanne, what's... This, I, I know the answer to this, but what kind of reception are you getting in regard to finding ways to fundamentally deal with these extraordinary costs of long-term care? There's a very clever proposal. You've been working on it for years, and I, maybe you could explain that. It's called the WISH Act, and it is um, H.R. 4289, um, House of Representatives. And it's catastrophic long-term care insurance, where if all of us paid 0.3% of our wages and our employers paid 0.3%, so it's uh, $600 total out of a, an income of $100,000, we could build a fund that would pay for a substantial chunk of long, long-term care so that if you, you know, kind of rolled the roulette wheel and either won or didn't or lost, depending on your perspective, and got to live a long time with serious disability, um, you would have some financial resources beyond Social Security. Um, this would pay in current dollars, $120 a day, which is enough to get about six hours of um, home health aid paid for, but it would come as money. So you could pay your daughter, you could pay to fix the roof, you could, you know, do whatever was most important for you and your family. Um, 
it's um, it, it's fascinating because everyone that I talk to on all sides of the political fence, with only one exception, <laughs> a fellow who gets hives whenever you say tax. Um, but other than that, out of maybe three <clears throat> 300 people, everybody says it's the right policy and that it doesn't have a chance in hell <laughs> because it is a long-term policy. It requires a tax, and it's about something that everyone thinks somehow you are going to be able to dodge. Guess what? None of us know whether we will be the people who get 15 years of serious disability or 15 days. It's the biggest risk in your life. It's the biggest risk to your family's uh, financial well-being. It's the biggest risk to your kids' um, employment and careers, and yet we don't have insurance for it because private long-term care insurance is essentially unavailable to most people um, at anything that they could afford, and then only for uh, around two years' worth of coverage. Um, so what you really want is coverage that goes as long as you need it. And you, know, you could save or insure privately for the first year or two um, if you were confident of having something happen farther out. But um, it's just fascinating. And, and the other thing is that it, there's just no will. So if everybody on your call um, would just call your congressman and ask what they're going to do about long-term care, uh, they won't have the least idea what they're going to do about long-term care. They may say something blathering like, well, you know, we support uh, home and community-based services. And you say, well, exactly how and exactly how are you going to fund it? But the main thing is for people to start bugging their leadership about um, this issue. We will double the number of seriously disabled elders between 2015 and 2035. There is no way to assume that we are going to double the Medicaid budgets. <laughs> so um, at the present time, 50% of people who are working and are 55 to 65 have zero retirement savings, not just for illness, but just to live on. So within the next decade, I mean, this is only a decade away, we will have huge numbers of elderly people who cannot afford rent and food. They'll be able to get medical care because Medicare will cover it, but they will not, they will be on the street. And where is the planning for this? This has been known as a problem since about 1960, when all the boomer kids were, you know, trottling off to elementary school. Um, and now it comes home to roost. And what are we going to do? Are we actually going to go back to warehousing people? Are we going to offer up, you know, take your poison and be dead rather than be a burden on the community? Um, or are we going to rally and do something more useful and give people a chance to live comfortably and meaningfully at a price we can afford? And to do that requires doing something like my catastrophic long-term care insurance in the WISH Act. But um, it's really, really hard to get any sustained attention because people just want to run from it. Even though older people are 
the ones most likely to vote and vote in their own self-interest. Well, I, I mean, the usual person at 75 still thinks that they are somehow going to evaporate, <laughs> that they will get to 98 and die in their sleep. This is very unlikely. It is less than 6% of Americans appear to die suddenly in old age. And those are disproportionately men who probably are in the VA system and whose medical care is not visible in the Medicare system. So it is very unlikely that people simply, you know, go to, you know, go play golf one day and die in their sleep. It does happen, but it's really, really rare. Um, so, but people are not wanting to deal with that. They, they want another day just like yesterday. You know, they don't want to um, kind of come to terms with reduced function, um, you know, loss of function, small strokes, uh, Parkinson's, uh, uh, just frailty, you know, when you get to be very old, my mother basically died of frailty. She just, she was a good exerciser. She took care of herself, all those things. And at 96, she just didn't have enough muscle to get out of a chair. Um, you know, so you, you can live in a rewarding way at that time in your life. And I think she did, but it, you know, depended on having four kids who all pitched in to help support her and some hired aides who helped her get to the bathroom. And, you know, um, it's not easy. But, you know, I sometimes have communities that I work with. I say, walk down the street, any street, in, any big street in your town and, you know, go six or eight blocks and then tell me all the things that made it plausible to raise children. And you'll see playgrounds and you'll see elementary schools and you'll see school buses and you'll see daycare center and, and pediatricians offices and so forth. And you say, you know, yeah, we've done some things to make it plausible to raise children. Now, in that same walk, what did you see to make it plausible to live well in old age? And you might have seen a nursing home. That's about it. Maybe some curb cuts, you know, so a wheelchair could make it across the street. Probably not delayed lights. So that a person walking slowly could make it across the street while the light was red. Um, you know, we just haven't thought that through. An article in the Washington Post about two weeks ago um, said that there were very large numbers of women who could not reenter the workforce after COVID because of caregiving challenges. And it turned out that for every person who couldn't return to work because of childcare, there were four, count them four who could not return to work because of care of an adult. You know, and, and those people will spend themselves into poverty and they haven't yet learned to turn the corner to political action. Everyone thinks it's their own personal calamity. You know, sort of the lightning struck me. What a shame. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's not. It's built into our system. We do not have a way where large numbers of people can make their own arrangements to take care of themselves in old age. We've made it impossible. So there. The, they'll, be, <laughs> they'll be accused of, they, they will accuse these baby boomers of being careless when in fact it's the people in charge who couldn't care less what happens. Yeah, I mean, 
the boomers the boomers contributed because you know we simply did not pay attention to what we were going to need. In 1965, when Medicare passed, the average age of death was still under 70. The usual causes of death were fairly abrupt: heart uh, heart attacks, strokes, um, infections. Um, things have changed a lot since 1965, and we haven't updated. So Medicare actually does not match the needs of its current population. You know, so Medicare was put in place to cover surgeries and then later on to cover drugs um, and, and doctors. But the, the crying need in 65 was being unable to save up enough for a surgery you needed. And Medicare fixed that. <laughs> you can't keep your hernia if you want it because some doctor is going to persuade you to have it fixed. Um, so, you know, surgeries, procedures, um, now mostly drugs um, and doctor's visits are fairly well covered. But we now have a population which ends up needing personal care, needing food delivered, needing help to go to the bathroom, help to get dressed, um, help to be just to be kept safe. And we never built the Medicare system to do those things. If, and if anything, we built the Medicare system to avoid doing those things. So we have built a care system in which Medicare is an entitlement and you can run up any bill in Medicare. But in long-term care, you have to spend yourself into poverty before Medicaid will pick up. And Medicaid is a state-run endeavor. So it's not even just 52 programs. Some states split them up. So California has something like 10 or 12 Medi-Cal programs um, that are run by the counties. And so there's no uniformity as to what qualifies and how your assets will be treated. So in Washington, D.C., where I mostly worked, um, a person with a modest income, but above the Medicaid threshold, who had to go into a nursing home would have that income confiscated all but about $35. And then Medicaid would make up the difference. So, you know, let's say the, the threshold was 3000 in current dollars, $3,000 a month. Um, less than that qualified you for uh, Medicaid. But if you were sick enough or disabled enough to need a nursing home and you made you know, your social security or pension income or whatever was um, you know, 3,800 a month, you, you would still be enrolled in Medicaid, but your $3,800 a month would first go to the nursing home and then Medicaid would make up the rest. And that's the way probably a majority of the states do it now. Although some states, you just have to be terribly, terribly poor. And some states have the threshold for Medicaid eligibility at half of the federal poverty level. So, you know, good luck. You know, at best you're eating beans and rice um, and living in a hut. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's yeah. I see people keep saying suicide and, and those sorts of things, but we could do better. I mean, why is it that I can order a hundred thousand dollars worth of medication, <laughs> such so to speak, uh, with a sweep of my pen, that on average gives you maybe a month and a half or two longer life but I can't get to housing and food. I mean, surely housing and food was more important. Um, but, you know, we, we, we made 
Medicare and entitlement, but not the basics, not housing and food. Um, so, you know, the kind of revolution we need is um, a much more fundamental revolution than either party is envisioning. And we will probably live to see the bad effects with large numbers of elderly people dying younger than they needed to, miserable, with no assets and living on the streets. If you read the book Nomadland and saw the movie Nomadland, you'd be struck at the difference. The movie Nomadland made it look almost noble and um, uh, kind of um, rewarding right. to live this yeah. life. Yeah. The book made it pretty clear that people were pretty desperate and that lots of times they were really suffering to make that little bit of money that they, you know, that, that, that would allow them to live in their Volkswagen. Um, and, and when asked, what will you do when you get sick? They'd say, you know, I'm going to shoot myself, um, you know, or I'm going to go out in the desert and die. Um, you know, we could do so much better. It's not that expensive, but we have to put the money in the right place. I shouldn't be able to write for a hundred thousand dollar drug that gives you at best a couple of months longer survival. We ought to be smart enough to say, no, actually, I want that hundred thousand dollars to go to housing and food. When you say a hundred thousand dollars, that's for one person, one one person, one dose. Hmm. I mean, oh yeah, we have multiple drugs in the hundred thousand dollar range. And remember that cocaine. I'm sorry. I hope it's cocaine. Ah, uh, no, no, it's not. It's mm. mostly chemotherapy drugs and that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, these are uh, custom made drugs. They're often um, immunologic drugs that are custom made for you specifically. So they're very expensive. They are reasonably effective. I mean, they, they meet the criteria of being safe and effective. But um, but they're just disproportionate to the merit that they're giving. Um, there was a marvelous study that never got to happen. It was um, set up by a guy named Tom Smith, who is a, an oncologist, ethicist, and economist who is now at uh, Hopkins. But this was set up when he was back in Richmond, Virginia. And he wanted to offer people with calamitous cancers and uh, adults, I mean, older adults with um, pancreatic or non-small cell lung cancer that at the time were just guarantees that you were not going to live very long. Um, he wanted to give them 90% of what the medical care system would ordinarily spend on them as cash. Keep them, keep hospice available for them so that they would have good pain control and see how many people would take the 90% of what the medical care system would spend on them rather than the treatment uh, for various reasons, mostly to do with the internal revenue service. He never got to actually run the experiment, but I would love to be that, able to do that. that. Sorry. It would be the, it would be the sniff test. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The you know, doesn't pass the sniff test. That's uh, sorry. 
Don't well, don't listen. It's, it's not the snuff not test. Kidding. It's the sniff test. No, that's, that's a different. <laughs> the, uh, but I mean, we, we are so um, we're so uh, kind of aligned with healthcare as a right and Medicare as an entitlement that we've allowed it to sort of swing the pendulum over into the kind of loony zone. <laughs> um, you know, I mean. Um, you know, it, it is dangerous to talk about making it less than a full entitlement because um, there are profound forces aiming to make it less, um, less available in ways that would be more important. But I think that the public could start demanding more thoughtful um, care planning, you know, um, there's a big movement now called the five M's and one of them is what matters. So there's, you know, mentation and medication and so forth. But the one that, that is different is to know what matters to the patient. And, you know, when you're right up against it, what matters are things like legacy with your grandkids and being comfortable and, maybe saying the rosary or whatever is important to you spiritually. Um, and the question of whether you're likely to die in you know, June or in August becomes kind of a flip of the coin. I mean, people, yeah, it matters a little, but at what price? Are you going to bankrupt your daughter in order to get two more months when you're 88? Almost none of my patients would do that. Um, you know, so... Um, we have to get back to what it is that people really want out of their medical care system when they're very sick and very old. And um, they want reliability. They want trustworthiness. They want 24-7 to have somebody who knows what's going on and knows them. They want to be sure to be free of bad symptoms. And whether you get three more months or not is much less important. You know, if you're talking to a 22-year-old with, you know, a testicular cancer, um, you know, where they're gambling, you know, their whole 60 years of life. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, survival is it. It's not the case with 90 year olds. You know, I mean, we, we get to be more reasonable about the fact that there is an, an end in store uh, just from living it. I mean, just from realizing that it's getting harder and harder to climb the steps and, and you know, my vision isn't what it used to be and my hearing isn't what it used to be. And, and damn it, I'm going to lose a tooth. And, you know, I mean, it's just, so you kind of piecemeal make peace with the fact that there's a mortality in, in store. I mean, think about our death certificate, our death data, where on the news almost every day, you'll find something that says, um, you know, COVID is now the third most common cause of death, second to heart disease and cancer. That was the headline from a day, day or two ago. Um, okay, does it matter whether it's killing 40-year-olds or 90-year-olds? Of course it matters, but we don't even have statistics for that. Most countries set a, a, a number of years that they want to try to get everybody to. And beyond that is considered bonus. Mm -hmm. So they might say, 
You know, we're going to set our priorities to eliminate illnesses that take people before age 80. And we're delighted if people live beyond that. But our priorities are to give people a life that is productive and comfortable and is part of our community um, at least that far. We don't. We count the same cause of death for a 96-year-old as for a 16-year-old. Contrary to all of our intuitions. But, you know, that's what we do. We even say that a particular treatment, you know, like a COVID treatment, has this effect on morbidity and this morbidity and this effect on mortality. No, actually, nothing can have an effect on mortality. There's a mortality in store for each of us. It's 100 percent. The timing of mortality, we have some impact on but mortality itself is the human condition. But that's, that's a very uh, minority view. <laughs> Most Americans continue to think that mortality is optional until they're up against it. Mm-hmm. What do you think? <laughs> Reverend, you see, Reverend, you see why I wanted her on the show? Now do you see why? Okay. It's a, um, it, it, like so many of the issues we talk about on this show, they do require a kind of vision that is almost absent from elected officials. And until people manage to make these cases directly and in the faces of the leadership of both of these parties, um, we're going to have a hard time coming up with these solutions that really deal with the issues. But I, I thank my wife for joining us here tonight. And everybody on the show, call your congressman and ask what they're going to do about long-term care. It doesn't even matter if you don't know a lot about it and you say something's wrong. Just start beating the drum. Mm -hmm. We've got to push people to have it be an issue in the upcoming election. Well, you're batting a thousand giving our listeners marching orders. You told us to call C- Is it CMS, the Medicaid, Medicare, Medicare, uh, federal oversight, not to approve an Alzheimer's drug. And For sure. Showed- and they didn't, they did they the right ab- thing. Because you came on this show and gave us marching orders. You're batting a thousand. <laughs> so call your congressperson, and I'm using the term person loosely uh, and tell them, is it the WISH Act? Yes. The H.R. Wish Act. 4289. Did it pass in Congress in the House? Oh, no, least? no. It's never, made, it's never made it to committee. <laughs> it just been introduced. Thank you so much, Dr. Joanne Lynn. Please, please, please come back. Please. Thank you. It's fun to talk with you. Oh, it's, it's an honor. with my laryngitis. <laughs> and the Reverend Barry W. Lynn, follow the Reverend over at barrywlynn.com for a treasure trove of his sermons, lectures, appearance, great television shows, maybe even the show, you know. And uh, follow the Reverend on Twitter at Barry W. Lynn. Thank you, Reverend. And if you want to help, incidentally, if you want help in how to do advocacy, go to drjoannelynn.org. 
the blog that is right there gives all the resources and how to go about oh, finding your congressperson. Oh, I should have thought to mention that. Just Dr. Dr. Joanne. Dr. Dr. Just Dr. J-O-A-N-N-E-L-Y-N-N all run together. Dr. Yep. No, dot org. Dot org. Dot org. Yes. Fantastic. Yeah. I'm always nonprofit. Mm. <laughs> it's the way medicine should be. It would be better, better off. Thank you both. It, it really is a, a privilege. Thank you. Have a You're good listening evening. to the David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Let's go to Norway. Norway, Joe and the Tofu Cam. Hi, Joe. And then we're going to do Professors and Marianne. Sorry to keep some people waiting here. What do you got for us, Joe? Evening. Yes, I've, I've got uh, a request in the Discord from Dan about what to do with tofu. So I thought maybe we could uh, have a tofu three-way. We prepare tofu three ways. So I was going to do a, a coconut curry for my kids' lunch, make a miso soup for breakfast, and then stir-fry it. Dry stir fry green beans and tofu for another dish. We'll see if we can get them all done. Then wow. Uh, this is, you know, this has become torture for me. And if you're enjoying Joe in Norway and you want to put some good into the world, go to rahima.org, R A H I M A dot org to help feed and take care of refugees in the San Francisco Bay Area. Well, it's time for the professors and Marianne. Joining us is Professor Marianne Cummings, particle physicist. We have Professor Adnan Hussein, Professor Ann Lee, Professor Jonathan Bick. What would you like to talk about? Any response to Dr. Joanne Lynn? Would anybody like to chime in on that? Yes, David. So I can tell you about my personal experience with this subject. Um, my father uh, developed Parkinson's disease, and um, he came to live with us. And fortunately, he had the foresight and luck to uh, purchase a long-term care insurance policy. This was a time when... Uh, the insurance policies for long-term care were not that expensive. Um, the industry soon learned that uh, they m totally mispriced the market because uptake uh, of this use of this insurance was much higher than they had anticipated and the costs were much higher. So uh, most of the insurance companies that offered these policies have stopped offering them because they lost huge amounts of money on them. And uh, he had to have someone 24 hours a day with him for the last year and a half of his life. And uh, if it wasn't for that insurance, it would have been devastating. Um, you know, we were able to keep him with us in the house, but there was a full-time home health aide that lived there with him. And 
you know, he had, they had, he had to be with him every minute that he wasn't asleep uh, because Parkinson's, you know, affects your mind. And it's my grandfather had it. It's a, it's my grandfather was, ter- was terrible. Yeah. Um, so this, this is a vital topic that, that people don't even think about. You know, they make these offhand remarks, well, I'll just kill myself or whatever. Well, nobody wants to die, right? Be- just because they need extra help. And, um, the, you know, the U.S. government could take care of this if they wanted to, as Dr. Lynn described with H.R. 4289 in the House, the WISH Act, um, that would go a long way toward dealing with this. Uh, but yeah, um, Medicare does not cover long-term care. It, at most, provides 100 days. And um, Medicaid, you have to spend down all of your assets uh, except for your house and your car, and I think it's two thousand dollars in cash. And I, I don't know how you live on two thousand dollars, but um, yeah. So, I mean, it's absolutely critical that this gets done, and and this sort of leads me into uh, my other su- subject for tonight. Um, but maybe others want to respond to this. Uh, this issue. Well, let's uh, continue. What What would you like to talk about? We'll go around and ask everybody what they want to talk about. Well, I thought your um, comments in your opening monologue uh, were on Ukraine were uh, very good, David. I think you oh, touched on a lot of important points there. I feel uh, like a, I feel like I'm, I don't, I, I just feel like I, I, I'm reading Paul Krugman today. Like everybody is not, I don't know. I just don't, I think anyway, nobody's saying anything. Uh, look, I mean, it, it's difficult, right? So um, what I'm about to say is going to probably cause some uh, chatter in the chat. That's not going to be complimentary to me. Uh, But I think it's important to say this. Uh, Today, the U.S. House of Representatives voted overwhelmingly to pass legislation that would allow President Biden to use a World War II era law to quickly supply weapons to Ukraine on loan, sending the measure to Biden's desk hours after he urged Congress to approve tens of billions of dollars worth of additional aid to Ukraine. The vote was 417 to 10 to invoke an extraordinary eight-decade-old law created to battle Hitler, um, and it reflects a growing bipartisan sense of urgency in Congress to bolster the Ukrainian military as it digs in for an ugly and protracted artillery war in the south and east of the country. Uh, This is an excerpt from today's New York Times, by the way. Uh, The Senate passed this legislation unanimously earlier this month. Unanimously. Not one dissent. We're getting into uh, Patriot Act territory here. Passage of the Act enabled, uh, this was the Lend-Lease Program, 
of uh, Roosevelt. Passage of the act enabled Great Britain and Winston Churchill to keep fighting and survive the fascist Nazi bombardment until the United States could enter the war, said Representative Jamie Raskin, liberal Democrat of Maryland. President Zelensky has said that Ukraine needs weapons to sustain themselves, and President Biden has answered that call. The, legis the legislation invokes the Lend-Lease Act of 1941, originally proposed by FDR to help arm British forces battling Germany. The legislation allowed the president to lease or lend military equipment to any foreign government, quote, whose defense the president deems vital to the defense of the United States. My comment here is, it's hard to make an honest case that the invasion of Ukraine is vital to the defense of the United States. If we believe America supports freedom and democracy, we must provide Ukraine with the weapons necessary to protect its citizens, said Senator John Cornyn, Republican of Texas, and one of the bill's original sponsors. Biden on Thursday asked Congress for $33 billion in additional defense, economic, and humanitarian assistance for Ukraine. The funding, more than twice the size of the $13.6 billion package Congress passed last month, is projected to last for another five months. According to an administration official who detailed the package on the condition of anonymity before its official release. Roughly half of that figure is expected to fund new military assistance. So I'm asking you to imagine if we spent $46.6 billion every six months on health care. We could have Medicare for all that has no deductibles, no co-pays, covers all Americans for all illnesses and injuries, including dentistry, vision, and hearing. How many lives would be saved if we did that? Are you are you certain about those numbers? If we spend fifty billion dollars every six months? Hundred billion. Hundred billion a Did year. <laughs> that would pay for Medicare for all. Uh, if you if you consider the the savings from uh, not providing tax exempt status to for profit insurance company uh employer provided coverage yeah and the and the amount of savings that you would get from a single payer system and negotiating drug prices right um amazing amazing so uh you know uh we could also uh use 46.6 billion dollars every six months to uh and we wouldn't need that much to provide COVID and other vaccines for everyone in the world to prevent death, serious illness, and reduce the chances of future variants. How many lives would be saved if we did that? Really? $46 billion would inoculate the entire world from COVID? Well, that's just in the six months, right? So if we did that, however many times it took. I, I haven't done the math on all this. Right, but that but seems... I'm pretty that sure seems that it's not going to take that much to to provide vaccines for everyone. Um, public education. We could have the best public education system in the world with highly qualified teachers that are paid well, state-of-the-art buildings that have proper ventilation to prevent the spread of communicable diseases like, oh, I don't know, COVID or another uh, pandemic. 
Um, housing. We could build enough public housing to end homelessness in the United States and bring down the cost of housing for everyone else. Global warming mitigation and harm reduction. Imagine investing $100 billion a year to protect our infrastructure from increasing frequency and intensity of climate-related natural disasters, implementation of renewable energy sources that would not only reduce uh, climate-causing uh, uh, climate warming gases, but reduce global conflict in the race for fossil fuels. Oh, and investing in health care, vaccinations, public education, housing, and or global warming mitigation does not risk a war, expanding a war, or causing a, nu a nuclear catastrophe. When you weigh the costs and benefits of fueling war in Ukraine, it's hard to see how you can rationally support such a course of action. Now, I'm all for humanitarian support and rebuilding Ukraine after the war is negotiated to an end, which is the only way it's going to be ended, as you said earlier. I am not for supplying weapons that are going to lead to increased deaths, destruction in Ukraine, and risk spreading the conflict to larger geographic area that will cause exponentially greater suffering and destruction. So you really have to ask yourself, what are you trying to accomplish? Are you trying to reduce human suffering? Or are you trying to make sure that lines on a map are invi inviolable and, and uh, you know, when you consider that lines on the, on the map change all the time, it's just a matter of when and where. Wow, great. Thank you for that. It, it, thank you. Anybody want to respond to that? Well, I would just want to add, uh, you know, there was uh, a little little buzz in the last couple of days about Biden, the Biden administration looking into the possibility of uh, student loan forgiveness. And of course, they were using weaselly words that weren't really, you know, committed, but okay. Uh, maybe there's maybe that 33% approval rating might have gotten the attention of somebody in his administration, like, oh, my God, we've got to do something. Um, but uh, today, apparently, somebody uh, had asked him about that, and he said, no, he wasn't even going to consider the guaranteed $10,000, you know, loan forgiveness. And I'm like going, all right, because somebody bandied about a number, because that would mean like over the next year or two, like $44 billion. Yet, without blinking, um, $33 billion goes to, um, goes to Ukraine. Now, I want to talk a little bit about that. I don't know what you want me to talk to you about now, but, you know, apart from the war, let's remember that Ukraine was possibly the most corrupt country in the world before this. And I posted an article from the Kiev Post. Let's see, this was October, October 10th of last year. Uh, self-servant of the people. Remember, uh, his Zelensky's comedy show was called Servant of the People. It says, Zelensky's offshore schemes. And just to read a little bit from this rather long article. 
Zelensky promised to take down the oligarchs with their untouchable offshore assets and break their magic walls of influence throughout the country. That's what he ran on, among other things. The October 3rd revelation, and that was the latest uh, tranche of information that was, um, that, that was put out by the in International Consortium of Investigative Journalists that, uh, who were sifting through the Panama Papers release. They found, um, among others, the international financial schemes of 38 highly placed Ukrainians, most of any country by a factor of two, the second being Russia. But it named prominently Zelensky, that Zelensky and his friends had set up, quote, their chain of offshore companies when they still produced comedy shows long before they ever considered going into politics. Um, when Zelensky was about to be elected, he handed his share over to his closer advisor, Sahari Shafir, but the papers revealed that under their arrangement, dividends would keep flowing into a company owned by Zelensky's wife. This is great. Anyway, much of these assets- He also owns London real estate, doesn't he? Well, yeah, I mean, real estate, but the point is, I mean, what raises red through flags, offshore, I don't think- through an offshore through an offshore account, he owns London real estate. Well, I mean, yeah. And what raises red flags about a lot of these offshore companies is the, com sorry about that, the complexity of their, of their financial arrangements, that the complexity alone is enough to set up red flags because when, uh, when something is complex, it's much easier to steal. Um, What's more troubling, but here's just one other part I'll read, is there's evidence that Zelensky's offshore companies revealed payments from entities owned connected to Ihor Kolomoisky. Couldn't recall that name the other day, but that was right. his billionaire that supported him, that owned the media company that produced his comedy show, that basically he was his hand-picked guy to run. Some of that money may have been stolen by Kolomoisky because they don't know where that money, uh, he had a private bank, it was called Privat Bank, uh, the only private bank allowed in Ukraine, and uh, somehow it came up billions of dollars short, which were pilfered by this guy, Kolominsky, and a couple of his associates. So even as late as last, uh, last fall, Kolominsky faced no criminal charges from the $5.5 billion bank fraud that forced Ukraine to bail out the nation's bank, his bank. They basically nationalized it. He faces some civil lawsuits, and there's one criminal investigation in the United States. He's not allowed to come into the country. But, okay, and you can read the whole rest of the thing. My point is, is that we've got a country so corrupt, money leaks through that government like a sieve to their corrupt oligarchs. And Zelensky is, uh, unfortunately, no exception. So not well, only he, are he ran a network. He he wasn't just a comedian. He's a lawyer oh, yeah. who ran a, a he owned a television network in Ukraine. Uh, he didn't own it. I don't know if he owned it, but certainly uh, Kolomoisky owned the media company that produced that had several outlets, media outlets, and that show was one of the ones produced for it. And yes, uh, apparently uh, Zelensky and his friends had set this all up. Uh, one of it was another article that I read, but I mean, the first one was set up as early as 2012. So he isn't just some hapless guy that has been, you know, found himself by fate 
in the limelight to be the hero of Ukraine. I mean, you bring that, you send that money to Ukraine and you don't know where it goes. If that's for humanitarian purpose, you have no idea where that money is going. Apart from the fact that any weapon that you bring over there is just gonna prolong the war and no talk of uh, settlements, no talk of peace negotiations. There apparently, I'm sure there are adults somewhere talking because we did have there was an exchange of prisoners the other day. I mean, there was a Russians let go of a prisoner, that Marine that they had kept there for a number of years, and we let go of some guy that was supposedly spying here. So somebody is talking to somebody, but there certainly doesn't seem to be any public indication that there is a move to settle you know, on any terms for a, a ceasefire at the very least. So yeah, I'm uh, I'm upset. I think I'm more upset that I don't hear anything from the squad. I'm very upset that uh, Bernie Sanders feels that he has to go along with this, that he's not raising. I mean, he's the one voice of any moral authenticity, if there's any in, in D.C., and uh, we don't hear from him. It's just, well... Maybe ultimately this is the end of the uh, Americans' hegemonic unipolar world scenario because the rest of the world is making plans without us. Um, apparently uh, Turkey and Iran and Venezuela are in talks to expand the banking, this MIR, M-I-R banking network that, uh, that Putin has been working on, Russia has been working on since last summer to get themselves off of the... Uh, Western dominated money system. So, um, uh, Professor Hussein, you, you, Anne raised? Yeah, I just um, had a couple questions and points for uh, Prof. John and Professor Marianne um, about this. I mean, I think very good points about the utter corruption of the system there. We're flooding this place with all kinds of weapons. Um, are we sure that these are actually going to, you know, um, go to the Ukrainian army to fight against the Russian invasion? Or will it, like so many of the other sort of foreign aid or resources of the country, be kind of privatized, sent into the black market? We find these things being, you know, circulating in conflicts all over the world uh, because people can make some money. I mean, what kinds of accountability do we really expect from the most corrupt government, you know, receiving all of this aid, all of these weapons, these are dangerous items. I mean, there should be much more control over, over these things. And I do worry about proliferation of not just small arms, but now some of the heavier weapons that we're sending, you know, these are very dangerous. And um, we could find them, as I said, appearing in conflicts, you know, elsewhere with other, you know, bad actors, etc. That's kind of a proliferation issue, it seems to me. So I wondered if there's been any thought about that, uh, what people thought about that. But then the second point is that this is a lend lease. So this is the loaning, you know, of weapons. Um, 
this isn't outright aid. So do the Ukrainians understand and is there some, you know, understanding that um, they're not actually going to be saddled with, uh, you know, a big bill at the end of this? You know, these are, are, are loans. This isn't, you know, act, maybe they'll all be written off at a certain point, but it could end up being exactly the kind of mechanism that we see um, you know, in other cases of, you know, poor countries that are under stress that end up having to take out loans from the IMF, from other international, you know, kinds of lenders uh, because of, you know, extreme needs uh, that they have. And then they're saddled with this debt and it gives incredible leverage by those countries or those global institutions over you know, so this is supposedly some big fight about the sacred sovereignty of the Ukraine. But it seems to me there are a lot of things that are potentially developing here that completely undermine, you know, their potential sovereignty. I mean, uh, so that's just another question that I had about the application of this Lend-Lease. Is this outright aid or is it actual loan, you know, where you know, this is being, you know, accounted up. And at the end of the war, they'll have to privatize even more, you know, of their, you know, assets uh, under some kind of, uh, you know, uh, restructuring regime, because, you know, US has, has provided all kinds of expensive weapons. I mean, this seems sort of um, short-sighted, um, especially since, you know, what is Ukraine really fighting for um, on some level? you know, this sort of that ultra nationalists and oligarchs, you know, can preserve their hold over this country. I mean, really, that's, you know, the one thing about Russia, we keep hearing about Russia's oligarchs. The one thing that Putin did do is after 2008 and so on, when he really had his uh, full grip on power, as he said, okay, you profited, you took a lot out of the country, you know, in that Yeltsin period of everything being privatized, now I'm going to demand that you spend a certain amount of it in country, you know, on, you know, you have to do things, you know, for and in Russia, you know, there was a little bit of disciplining of these oligarchs. And it seems like what we're fighting for is for oligarchs in Ukraine to continue to be able to plunder and do exactly what they want with no restraints upon them. And that just seems to me, you know, really ridiculous kind of policy. I, I think that in this particular uh, legislation that they passed that a, um, <clears throat> the purpose of it is to make it possible to get the uh, weapons to Ukraine quickly. Uh, so it, it, it allows the president to bypass uh, certain hurdles that would slow things down. Uh, it may just be, because I don't think they're calling it the Lend-Lease Act. That was the original name in for World War II. Uh, it may just be that they're going to give them this $33.6 billion, which is on top of the $13 billion that we already gave them. Um, they may just give them outright. It may be that they want some of it paid back. I don't think that's clear yet. Um, yeah. Professor Ann Lee? Well, it's, it's more um, manipulating of the Treasury. I think uh, I, I agree with Adnan that uh, some, um, some weapons could be diverted, but it's largely, if you look at the way 
weapons are being donated by uh, various NATO countries or EU countries, they're, they're sort of clearing their inventories. For example, they don't make Stinger missiles anymore. They're all going to be used up in this crisis. And I was looking at a uh, detail that they're not all that damn accurate. In other words, there's like a 10 to 1 ratio of firing uh, a lot of these uh, uh, shoulder-fired weapons. They're, they're not, you know, as, as much as we like seeing these great little uh, social media things of tanks getting nailed, uh, a lot more miss. And uh, with all due respect, uh, as I said, they're clearing some inventories. Uh, the, now, the whole point is that this, the new word is backfill. So the U.S. military-industrial complex is going to get an incredible windfall from backfilling um, new... Uh, and there's a whole series of, of cost, uh, cost-effective or profitable fighter planes that will go... Uh, they're intermediate-type planes that have a lot of... Uh, they're profitable in the sense that they're not that expensive to make, and they're fairly good at doing what they do. Uh, F-16s, uh, for example, they only have one engine as opposed to, to F-18s, and that may not seem important to you, but you know you're replacing, you know, jet engines a lot. These are this is all about money. Uh, similarly, uh, you know, we're clearing stocks of artillery shells, and and um, so are a variety of other countries. So. Uh, on the one hand, you know, we're, we're looking at hundreds of uh, what are called M777 howitzers, 155-millimeter uh, howitzers, that hopefully will get used and, and uh, aren't going to be diverted. The real diversion, and this is what Adnan's speaking to, is that all of these very small disposable uh, loitering drones are going to be a real problem once we see this uh, pop up somewhere else. They're small, easy to transport, nearly any idiot can use one. Um, uh, we could see a whole wave of weird terror things in the future. There, there's all kinds of other possibilities. Now, the problem, of course, is that it's about capital. I mean, when we're sending people down to leverage oil with uh, Venezuela, for example, even though we have this whole one uh, Guaido business, uh, you know something else is going on. Um, we're tracking down some oligarchs, but not all oligarchs. We're seizing some yachts, but not all yachts. So it's just... It, there's all kinds of stuff going on that that is not being really accountable. And if Republicans were real Republicans, they'd track all this crap down. But they're not. Uh, they're more interested in winning in 22. So they've got a whole uh, uh, impeachment agenda ahead if they they take over Congress. For example, the first item on their agenda is to impeach the head of uh, DHS because. He's just the first target. And today's new Twitterverse target is the disinformation um, governance, uh, it? disinformation governance board, governance board of DHS that everyone thinks is 
ministry of truth when in fact you know it's designed to actually disentangle and combat Russian disinformation so every member of the GOP who's pro-Russia is against it of course which is like this totally baroque way of looking at our the uh, the question of of disinformation and it's all unfortunately interrelated to the current um, you know state of disinformation during this war and the you, the, you, the Ukrainians can only operate or, or have are more adept at operating a Russian MiGs and Soviet era equipment they need training to use American weaponry who's training them in Ukraine oh no they're being trained off-site they're being trained in Germany and uh, other places there's there's a whole set of stories about that uh, there, uh, there's a lot of US training going on in Poland and Germany etc that's why there was that uh, 40 nation um, you know ministers of defense meeting in Rammstein that that you could see that they were just this is the beginning of a whole new coordination of NATO in in that sense now on the one hand this favors the Russian narrative of being against NATO on the other hand you know it's better to have coordination on the one hand I mean you know this is because uh, and, and I agree that stupid things could happen because there has been more ratcheting up of uh, nuclear threats which the reality is I don't think anyone's going to do it because the second they do it all bets are off uh, in terms of uses of uh, tactical nuclear weapons but who knows uh, and we've certainly seen a lot of disinformation attacks uh, just in the last couple of days so can everybody hear me yep Putin made it clear that if America would stop courting former Soviet era republics and trying to drag them into NATO, if he stopped, if America stopped trying to put Ukraine and Georgia into NATO, if America and NATO would pull troops out of Central Europe and Eastern Europe, uh, he wouldn't attack Ukraine. Uh, the right would the the right or the, the Democrats would say you cave on that he's insatiable you give him that then he'll just keep asking for more is that true I don't know how they know the mind of the man I, I really don't know how they can do that that they can predict his actions with any certainty uh, I mean, most people were wrong about what he was going to do and how he was going to do it. I, you know, I didn't think he was going to invade the whole country. I thought he might invade uh, the areas that were, uh, you know, already in conflict in the east. Um, most people said he's not going to invade at all, including uh, the president of Ukraine. Uh, so for them to say they know what he's going to do is a bit bizarre um but if we were to give up that you know no no nato for ukraine which we're, we've already given that up and we pull the troops out of eastern and central europe what do we lose by doing that 
a lot of military contracts. <laughs> I mean, look, is he a he, is he a threat to I, Europe? I, I, look, you know, um, I don't think any of us have in depth military expertise. So you go to people who do and who have been right about things in, in the past or who have analyzed things and have been right. And when, again, anytime you look up Noam Chomsky on the subject of Ukraine on YouTube for the last 30, you know, even if it's re recently after this, you know, 2014 coup, he will talk about that, but he always goes back to just basically the fundamental promise that was broken to uh, Gorbachev. Now, when we let Germany reunify and Gorbachev allowed East and West Germany as a German unified Germany to be part of NATO without any retaliatory, with any, without any other uh, restrictions, he just had the promise of James Baker that NATO would go no further East. And military analysts, you know, from the entire political spectrum have said going, pushing NATO East would long-term result in instability and unnecessary conflict. You'd be flirting with possible nuclear war. Um, the idea that people know, as Professor John says, was what uh, Putin is going to do. I mean, Putin didn't move when he had it. There was a civil war raging near Russia's border. They didn't make a move. In fact, I was just reading something earlier on about that. It, I, I would, I want to, uh, I, to, to be able to source it. I do have sources. I just don't have them right at hand. But uh, one of the uh, papers I've read recently uh, was a guy who was uh, one of the NATO uh, advisors. He was in the intelligence unit of, of Switzerland. Uh, Jacques Baud, I think his name is B-A-U-D. And something that I didn't know, I thought there was some Russian soldiers that had come in that Russia said at least, quote unquote, military advisors when uh, the Ukrainian uh, army was racing toward Donbass and it, to do battle with the rebel provinces. It turns out, according to the, o, to the OC. OSCE, which is the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. The only organization, by the way, that's been keeping any metrics on this war consistently. Um, they have found no evidence of Russian troops inside of that Donbass region. There were, there, there were Russian citizens. There were a few Russian volunteers, mercenaries, and understand there was a, a significant portion of that Far East area of Ukraine where people had dual citizenship. Because as somebody pointed out, you know, like, like the border with Mexico, the border crossed people, people didn't cross the border. There were a lot of people who thought themselves Soviet Russian citizens and then suddenly they're not. So, but they, but it was only, uh, you know, after the, it was only it, it, before this this year, there was only this invasion that there's been any Russian troops at all. That came. That was stunning to me to find that out. I thought there would be some Russians in there. I will uh, I will post that article in in the chat because there's so few military people who have any credibility who are writing. 
in a way that isn't, you know, a mouthpiece for either Russia or for the Ukrainian or American government. So um, I should put that in there. So that's just a long-winded way of saying that Russia has shown for the kind of forbearance that the United States would never show if anything even close to equivalent was happening near their border. Probably out of necessity because we've got the luxury of, you know, two big oceans and relative isolation and they have to deal with 23 neighbors of varying degree, various degrees of hostility. So, uh, so any adult in the room would sit down and think, okay, these guys actually do have, unlike us in Iraq, we just destroyed that country. The, the Russians have no long-term interest in destroying countries at their borders because that would, uh, that would directly affect their people and their lives. Um, this is something that we could possibly sit down with, you would think. But um, our country has been whipped up. I mean, this is propaganda. There are people who, most Democrats, as late as 2019, really believed that the Russians, you know, affected the voting machines and rigged the election for Trump. So paranoia isn't only on the Republican side. So we've been whipped up with anti-Russian propaganda, and so it needs a release. People are frustrated, COVID, the economy. Having a war is, uh, you know, one of those go-to things if you want a little pressure release valve in your in your population, at least for a time. Um, until, you know, victory isn't certain. <laughs> and, you know, this is, we're going to be grinding our own economy into the dust before, you know, before Russia is, is conquered. I don't think Russia will ever be conquered the way they want to conquer it, short of, you know, the unthinkable. So, well, again. the Ukrainians are attacking inside Russia. The Washington Post is reporting that they are shelling. Uh, I think it's Riga, but not Riga. Uh, uh, no, Riga's in Latvia. They, they're shelling no. uh, southern Russia. By the way, uh, if you listened to Stephen Cohen, he's been dead for over a year and a half. But if there there is old interviews with Stephen Cohen in the last few years, he actually cites attacks on Russian ships at Russian targets from Ukraine that, you know, is not being, were not being reported in the Western press, but he, you know, being an expert on Russia, followed them. He said, this is insane. I mean, one of these days, those attacks, he says, are, is going to blow up into something much larger. So, yeah, uh, so this is not new. I mean, it's new for us hearing it, but apparently is not new for Russia because they've had to endure similar attacks, um, incursions into their airspace. I mean, there were, I mean, Noam Chomsky talked about that too. He said, this is just in, in um, an interview with, uh, with Amy Goodman in 2015. I mean, he says, it's just insane. All that time ago, he said, it's just insane what our foreign policy is over there. You can imagine what it is now. Professor Ann Lee, natural gas, the pipelines. We're, uh, we can't hear you. We're having trouble hearing you. I'm unmuted. 
Ah, now we can hear you. You you say that the war is following the the path of the natural gas pipelines. Yeah, the the recent attack on Bryansk uh, seems to be if, if indeed it was a Ukrainian attack, exactly one that affects it reminds the Russians that there are a lot of pipelines in Ukraine. Uh, but but it it wasn't attacked in a totally vital area. They just wanted to suggest to Russia that they have the ability to launch, you know, several hundred kilometers into Russia. Well, let's change the subject and I'll ask uh, Professor Hussein what he would like to talk about. And I think I'm going in order, I think. Sure. Um, uh, I have been watching quite a few videos of the Amazon labor unions press conferences and note that they that uh, voting for the LDJ5 uh, unionization is taking place. It started on Monday, and I guess they will begin tabulating the results sometime in early May. So this is the time for solidarity, uh, for support. And for political engagement and involvement, I was delighted to see that Bernie Sanders and AOC attended, I think you made reference on Monday, uh, to the uh, presence that they had um, at that press conference and at the rally. Um, and um, I think uh, I've been trying to think a little bit about why this was so successful compared to the Bessemer uh, case. Uh, every situation will have its differences, but also why this is such an inspiring and fresh seeming unionizing drive. And um, something that I had said when we were talking about our disappointments about the Bessemer uh, uh, case was that um, uh, Christian Smalls and his crew uh, in this organizing fight made clear demands. They didn't just ask for abstract union recognition. They kept putting clear demands. This is something that I said, I don't understand why when you're unionized, union organizing, you don't talk about what you are going to be asking for in your first contract and you make that part of the organizing struggle. Instead, right. we end up with these abstract discussions about why we should have unions and solidarity and collective bargaining, but it's you're asking for recognition of the union. It's so abstract. Give workers something specific about why they should be motivated. And what I liked is that apparently in all of their leaflets, all of their flyers, they said very clearly things like, we want $30 an hour. Okay, you know, that's what we're fighting for. We're fighting for more vacation time. We're voting, fighting for breaks. We want better health care options. We want, you know, return of the uh, stock option that that uh, workers could 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 have. We want an end to this almost automated worker performance monitoring system that leads to their firing. They don't even talk to anybody, but they miss a certain time target. Something gets filed. You know, it's robotic, you know, control over the human worker. It was very specific. So I liked that. It wasn't just about recognizing the union. It's about making clear demands. Number two, no corporate consensus style union, you know, uh, arranging, no backroom negotiating, but these are demands that arise from worker grievances and desires. And they identified who's the enemy here. It's Jeff Bezos, it's management, it's not 
abstract, make it personal. It is, you know, that's who you have to fight. So it's not about like having consensus with management and we need to work together. It was about conflict because this is a conflictual situation. So I liked that that was clear. Um, other point, I didn't really realize this until uh, recently, is that a, a Amazon labor union, you know, has very clearly said union officials are going to get the same pay as an average worker. They're not really? taking, yes, this is something I heard and music to my ears because the whole point is you are workers. Some of you may be doing different functions, but you're all together. That shows the solidarity. That's been the problem with these other unions is that they're filled with union executives. Okay, look, this is what the workers want to get rid of. They want to get rid of the oppression of executives. They don't need a whole other set of executives. They need workers fighting together. Some people will be articulate to make the demands and, you know, uh, devise the strategies and help get people organized, but they're still workers. So that was such a great, you know, policy by them. And then the last kind of thing that um, I noticed at some of the... Uh, some of the press conferences and rallies that they had is these people did not sound like the left, okay? Like what we've come to think of as the left. There was no campus type discourse here. Nobody was going on about intersectionality. And they were just plain spoken, you know, people, you know, I, I've seen some union struggles where people want to make it seem as if it's some kind of performance of, you know, left identity politics. We're talking about workers here, you know, and um, there were some people who had some rough edges. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, there were people who were, it started Christian Smalls. I remember one, uh, you know, he's trying to kind of speak in a, you know, calm sort of uh, uh, way. He almost caught himself, uh, you know, saying a swear word and he sort of stopped and all his uh, friend and co-organizer, I'm forgetting his name, was the second to speak. He just F-bombed his way through the whole thing. And it was beautiful. And it just unleashed like this energy where everybody felt free to come up and express their true feelings and grievances. And it wasn't politically correct. It was a little, you know, rough edged. And, you know, some people might say this vulgar sort of, you're here on national, you know, kind of television and all that. It was beautiful because that was authentic. That's how people are talking, how they're feeling. And it made the space for them to be comfortable to come together and fight for what they want. So, uh, I'm just very excited by this. And I think we need to take lessons from what was successful, what's unique and distinctive about this union organizing drive. Because if we go back to just our standard corporate business unions, they're not going to be successful. Like in Bessemer, they were not successful. Right. Oh, great. And it was great that... to see Bernie out there and Bernie throwing some threats. Okay. He's saying that the Biden administration needs to you know walk the walk and this is the role that the po elected politicians should be playing the inside outside the proper relationship is come and make demands on the administration saying you got to walk the walk that means 
no more, uh, you know, uh, federal contracts, no more, uh, you know, bailouts and funds from, you know, federal government to companies that are violating workers' rights to organize and illegally attempting to union bust and suppress unions. This is what Amazon's been doing. It's time for our elected officials to uh, be allies here. And that's not just by showing up to the rallies, though that's good, but, you know, push on that. And I think it's very useful that Christian Smalls, everywhere he's been going, is he's saying, if you want to be in solidarity with us politicians, pass the PRO Act. Okay, you've got things you can do. You don't just need photo ops with us. You've got work that you can do. And so I really hope, um, you know, that we might see a turning of the page, possibly something that, um, you know, we might want to think about for those who are not happy with our Democrats and Republicans, the duopoly. You know, how about at least on local races? Let's let's uh, look at the possibility of, you know, Adolf Reed's, uh, he was involved with uh, organizing a labor party, you know, a few couple decades ago. Um, what about a working people's party? What about a, a union or a labor party to represent working people at the political level? That would be very powerful. And I think there's a lot of disenchantment with uh, with Democrats and Republicans, at least on local races, at least in you know municipalities, uh, start organizing politically around the worker struggles because this is you know really where the action is. It seems. Let's end on that. Something upbeat. Right. Thank you, Professor Jonathan Bick, Professor Marianne Cummings, Professor Ann Lee. Read Professor Ann Lee over at the Daily Co's under Annie Lee. And of course, Professor Adnan Hussein, who's on Guerrilla History, who's on the Mudgeless podcast. Well, on the um, Mudgeless uh, podcast, we've got um, a scholar uh, going to talk about um, Urdu poetry. Uh, Pakistan has been in the news, so we'll get a little sense of the culture that's coming up in a couple of weeks. And on um, guerrilla history, uh, we've got a bunch of episodes. Um, one is about uh, um, that's coming up, uh, should be released uh, next week about um, women uh, in uh, the Thomas Sankara's uh, movement. Um, so in Africa, so uh, women in Africa struggling for equality and um, political liberation. I think people will find it very interesting. Thank you. Well, and, uh, now, just one oh. point, Alan Minsky, oh. I'm on my way Saturday to Shaker Heights outside of Cleveland, door to door for Nina. Um, you and me will be there. I'll be there, too. Oh, you're going to be there? Okay. Meeting at the meeting place at what, 12 noon? Okay, maybe I'll see you there. Saturday, 12 noon? Mm-hmm. Did you say Okay. Well, we go. Now, this Ann, is Jonathan, Adnan, David, where will, we, where will we meet up? Half an hour later? <laughs> this is this is Sunday? Uh, Saturday. Saturday, man. Saturday. Okay. Let me take care of... Uh, we're being tortured by Joe in Norway on the tofu cam. This was especially painful, Joe. You really, this looks, that's the oh miso, oh miso, miso. <laughs> that is, ah. Uh, miso with tofu, shiitake mushroom, and wakame seaweed. 
Oh, me so touch, hungry. A touch of tahini. If you have a little oh, extra so tahini hungry. around. Then I did a quick, quick fried tofu with uh, green beans and a kick up manise sauce. And then we've got a um, uh, curried, uh, coconut curry tofu with carrot, cashew, and uh, paprikas. Red pepper. I can eat that in three minutes, all of that in three minutes. I just wolf that down. I wouldn't even taste it. That looks great. Thank you. You, you need a cookbook, my friend. Maybe I need to write things down. Huh? Hey, um, office hours. Is it office hours and hours? That'll be next month. The first is on a Sunday, so I wasn't sure if we. Oh my God! I'm normally. so. Yeah. yeah that, so next okay. next week. Yeah. And uh, everybody should sign up for office hours, either to talk, teach, or perform, or watch. Go to my website to attend office hours every Friday night at eight p.m. Meet better people. I promise you, will meet better people. All right. Speaking of better people, let's go to Los Angeles, where Alan Minsky is standing by. He is executive director of Progressive Democrats of America and Professor Harvey J.K., author of FDR on Democracy. Minsky and K. Together like PB and J, like Thelma and Louise, like Mac and Cheese, like Sacco and Benzetti, like meatballs and spaghetti. Allen's in LA, Harvey J's in Green Bay. When they get together, they got a lot to say, cause they're Minsky and K. about democracy Miss King K That's right Miss King K to say thank you professor mike steinell hello there professor harvey jk and alan minsky let's talk nina turner how's it looking may 3rd 
is the big primary in Ohio. Everybody's voting already. What do what do we think is going to happen? What's the price of a vote in Cleveland? I want to guarantee the outcome. <laughs> um, a little bit of organizing still. Marianne, I don't think I'm going to Shaker Heights. I don't think that's where I'll go on midday Saturday. There's multiple events. I'm looking at the Nina Turner, uh, just a page somebody sent me, and there's tons of things going on on Saturday. Marianne, I'm going to put my um, email, you know my email, so yeah, please email me and let's connect by phone before that, around 11 on Saturday, and let's try to meet up if we don't end up going to the same get out the vote push within the district, because there are multiple ones on Saturday. So Nina Turner was talking about your economic bill of rights. She's embraced it wholeheartedly. Wholeheartedly. It's on the very top of her agenda on her website. Yep. So that must make you. Well, it, it thrills me and but makes me every day that the uh, <laughs> says, what are we five days? Let's see. Friday, Saturday, Sunday, five days away. So my anxiety level rises. I, I mean, I, Alan has to does remind me it's not the only race in in this primary season. But for me right now, it's the only race in the, that I'm worried about. Well, if she wins the primary. She goes to Washington, D.C. Yeah. And so, too, then does the Economic Bill of Rights. <laughs> that's as, that's the way I see it. OK. Right. Yeah. And also we, we, we we've introduced this specifically in 2022 calling upon Democrats to run on this both, you know, vision for a better society, plus the specific package and legislation that uh, goes along with it. And if Nina wins, clearly it's going to be, um, it's going to be, the other campaigns are going to pay attention to it. Maybe they'll adopt it during the campaign in ways they haven't yet. And, uh, you know, we're making the proposal because we think it can win. And, um, and we don't think the Democrats can win without it is a good way of thinking about it too. And how does it look? That how is it? We're flying completely in the dark because yeah. of there's there's so much that's unique about this race in that the district was set or may not even be set. In fact, one thing that's unique about it is there's a remote chance the election will get annulled. Not very likely, but they're going to set different district lines still possibly before the next. I mean, like just after this election that will then pick up in 2022 and the, you could conceive of the situation where the loser right this would probably only be in Chantel brown's case if she's the loser would uh, you know maybe demand a re-election because the district has changed but it, it was decided so late that there are no polls that anybody had that i've been digging around for polls from inside campaigns outside campaigns there don't seem to be any polling information yet very, very low early voting totals, extremely low. Uh, if it goes along with the model from the last race, that would be to Nina's benefit. And then um, because... Why? It, why, why does that benefit Nina? She won on election day and lost in the early voting last time. So, okay. Okay. And then um, the avalanche of television advertisement and hit pieces on Nina are going to be condensed only in the last 10 days of the election. They did have about a month to run last time. So what is that impact going to be? Um, you know, something that just hasn't been studied because it's not usually this compact a time frame uh, to try to take down a person. And if you're living in Cleveland or Shaker Heights, what is Chantel Brown delivered? <laughs> Anybody? 
I, I can answer that, but I, you know, I so hate, you know, the logic of it. I don't know that I even want to, you know, articulate it. Well, what is she running on? Okay, what she's running on is, um, you know, competence and I'll be a team player. Um, probably the second one would be true for who her team is. Now, what's the motivation for her race, uh, for her campaign, is um, to make sure that the progressives and the economic policies of the progressives and the socially transformative and environmentally transformative politics that they represent and policies that they represent are, um, you know, they're no longer in the crib. They're sort of in like the toddler years, but you know, don't make it out of the toddler years. You got to you got to kill the charismatic leaders and not allow this to get a grip in the Democratic Party. Okay. Professor Harvey J.K., uh, we have Ohio May 3rd, and then what are we looking at next? What's the big primary coming I, I, up? Honestly, I've my mind is so focused, I couldn't tell you. Alan, that's, that's Alan's thing. Electoral politics has never exactly been my 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 right. big thing. But um, I, this this one really it's it's I will tell you this Wisconsin isn't for a while. OK, and I've and I also have some interest in the Wisconsin race. I've I've I, it's funny. I, I don't think my endorsement is mattering at all, but I was pursued and I was and I endorsed a candidate who's not running well, but he's been getting some really good endorsements and the Wisconsin race may well in the next few weeks, just really shake up a lot because of the fact there are four candidates and the number one candidate, Mandela Barnes, who is Lieutenant governor currently has failed to lay out anything of a, a really significant platform on his website and he's running a really lackluster, mediocre campaign. And as a consequence, Alex Lassery, who's the uh, son of the owner of the Bucks, Milwaukee Bucks, and has himself been involved with the Milwaukee Bucks organization, and it's a billionaire family. He laid out a significant platform online, not as progressive as I would like, but a decidedly pro-labor kind of platform. And he's literally within two points right now. It, it's very close still. I mean, it's like 18, 16, you know, and then the, 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 those who trail behind him. And the candidate I've endorsed is Tom Nelson, who is the most progressive candidate, has shown up for everything labor needs him for. He shows up on the environment. He supports. Um, he actually has he embraced online the Economic Bill of Rights and the Wisconsin Economic Justice Bill of Rights. Uh, he and I met and talked about stuff. I'm meeting with his campaign manager next week for the kind of like just as a social kind of thing. But her, oddly enough, she comes from Cleveland, but she's up here in Wisconsin right now. So, uh, right. So the owners of the Bucks is down by two points. That means he just he can win it with a three, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, they're the defending NBA champions. They're in the playoffs right now. Yep. It seems a little right. unfair, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's it's fascinating oh. to me to watch Wisconsin in that respect. I mean, everyone wonders if, uh, if anybody can actually beat Ron Johnson in spite of his idiocy and stupidity and pure grossness. 
we have a governor's race where the incumbent governors won by, you know, it was a very close election. The polls that are out indicate it's still it's tight. On the other hand, the person he's running against may not be able to beat him. Uh, I'm forgetting they've got, I think, two candidates in the Republican primary. But the but the Democrat himself is not very dynamic. He won because he was an, a statewide figure as the state superintendent of schools. So, you know, there's a lot happening. I get, you know, it's, it's very worrisome because everything's proceeding. Everything's proceeding as if it's just like a, a normal election year. And it's not, you know, all the other times they say, well, you got to vote or, or else it's all over. But this time, you know, this is like stage A to, in, that, in that very kind of threatening uh, scenario. This is, this is very worrisome, very worrisome. Very threatening because... Because if, they take, because, you, because if the House goes and maybe the Senate, then you can just imagine what the Republican agenda will be. You can just imagine it. I still claim that it won't be Trump in 2024, but frankly, does it matter? It's going to be... If it's not him, it'll be DeSantis. Hawley's still not out of the running. Um, I mean, think about the folks that the Republicans will put up. Look, there it's been a long time since we've seen a party like like the Republicans in the United States. And I think Americans, you know, Americans are more likely to vote for Democrats on a sort of national level, but it's also the case that the Republicans have a guaranteed 40% turnout, right? I mean, that's their and in midterm elections, it wouldn't surprise me if the Republicans are far more motivated than the Democrats. Right. I mean, and then this futzing around about student debt. You know, it's it's just it, it's it's unbelievable. You do it right now with the stroke of a pen. He could forgive. He could have done it. He could have done it a while ago and they could have started revving up young people in favor of the Democrats. But right now, what's it what, what's what's he going to do? He, he's going to keep waiting. What's that about? This is not like, that was like that was like Obama. You know, everyone was saying, when did when the Democrats when's Obama? What was it to, to endorse the uh, Marriage Equality Act, whatever it was called? This is like, what, are they, what right. do they wait for? Right. Right. Well, they're doing because, by the way, if he doesn't do it, the anger has just built up because the, the people talk about it and talk about it. And young people like my former students you know, they're 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 just they're getting utterly fatigued at, at with anger. <laughs> Are we in a recession? No, That's a just, good question. Was there new just, economic data I missed today? I, I, we're not. I don't think we're in a recession. Well, we, it takes two quarters in a row for our GDP to grow to to decline. We, yeah. We've had one quarter now. Uh, we're down uh, 1.4% at an annual rate, according yeah. to the Congress. So, so by the way, let's go back a little while. Let's go back like one to two years. When was it that never all the reports, you know, all the pundits, neoliberalism is dead, right? Well, right now is the test of whether or not neoliberalism is dead. It's not dead at all. It's, it hasn't been voted out of office. It hasn't been. Right. You know, right. And, and if, if we've had a, a, a quarter of of uh, recessionary economic activity, then this quarter coming up requires, if not if not a stimulus that would that would 
make a difference immediately. It could. We at least have to show some kind of uh, some kind of promise of a stimulus in order for people to, to not act, you know, like uh, all hell's going to going to break loose. I mean, you know, when I heard it was Deutsche Bank, that for, you know, it was last night. The news was Deutsche Bank predicts a recession. And I was thinking, uh, wasn't Deutsche Bank involved with uh, Putin and, uh, and all that kind of stuff? And, uh, you know, you almost wonder to what extent you can even, you know, you can't trust bankers anyhow. But uh, they've but been accused was- of market manipulation. So maybe they're just trying to manipulate the market. He gets two quarters in a row of that's a recession. Yeah. Going into the midterms, going into the summer. So that. Isn't that what sank George Herbert Walker Bush? He, he, his poll numbers are as low as Trump's was, and Trump was like the most unpopular president in modern history. This is a disaster. Yeah, this guy is a disaster. Isn't he? Is he doing? I, I is he doing anything right? You know what I've been reading in defense of. Biden is that we're not we're not aware of the way in which federal agencies and and cabinet and, you know, and the cabinet that they're doing things okay at the ground level. But the media, our media, which it doesn't pay any attention to ground levels. Let's think how long it took for them to pay any attention to what's been going on amongst working people and and the labor movement, for example. Okay, but it's also the case that that if if. Biden and the Democrats can't do anything of any consequence legislatively, something that will capture media attention, then, yeah, this is not it doesn't look good. No, it doesn't at all. Alan, are you optimistic? Um, You have to. um, I'm trying to find the economic report. I was going to Cleveland at uh, leaving my house at 3.30 in the morning. I probably won't sleep until I'm on the plane. haven't slept much recently. And, um, and I missed this stuff because I'm trying to scramble and get out of town. So this was the official report that the, the G- GDP of the United States went down that much last quarter. Yeah. Uh, it's from the Commerce Department. Um, that's very bad news. Yeah. Um, look, um, um, Biden, I think, is... Um, um, you know, president in time where there have been a, a sort of wave of crises. Of course, one of them is the self-inflicted. Um, it's all uh, self-inflicted. It's all no, self-inflicted. Well, okay, you could argue Afghanistan self-inflicted. I actually supported that policy. I supported but, Afghanistan. That's the only thing he's done right. The rest is self-inflicted. Right. No, 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 no. There's the Russia invades Ukraine. Um, That's and self-inflicted. And pin that on Joe Biden. Um, and... Um, um, the you know, Omicron, you know, um, extending the COVID pandemic to the extent that it did, um, you know, a lot of people felt Democrats felt there was going to be a big honeymoon for Biden because the, you know, the vaccines were rolling out in the, you know, the pandemic would be over. The economy would open up, uh, that narrative didn't play out the way he would have hoped it would have. Um, and now you have, uh, you know, sky high oil prices now that's that is of course there's a lot of geopolitical um gamesmanship behind that 
Um, and, and of course, the huge self-inflicted wound of the failure of Build Back Better. I mean, if you just had, say there's going to be no movement on anything in Congress when you control both houses and you control the presidency, it's all going to be in this one package. And a lot of it is really promising. The public likes it. They want to see it happen. And then it fails. Is it surprising that the poll numbers are like that? But I'd say also on top of that. And you know, I don't mean to be ageist or anything. But, um, you know, getting old and slowing down is and the way that people psychologically respond to people when they're looking for, you know, quote unquote, leadership and strong leadership. You know, they're not getting that. And a vice president's a complete mess. There's nothing there. I knew a um, president. I didn't know him personally, but I, I remember reading about a president who was in a wheelchair and showed more dynamism. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, no, there's no doubt. I mean, there's that that's FDR as a you know, huge. Uh, yeah, no, it's, it's just a uh, spectacular uh, figure. In, how you know, is Ukraine, how is uh, Ukraine not self-inflicted? You don't think, tell me, what do you mean? So what do you mean self-inflicted? What, what's self? You, what, do you, you, what, you what do you mean by self-inflicted? You don't think Biden could have started the wheels going for peace talks before the invasion? You don't think we could have appeased, pardon the expression, Putin by promising Ukraine wouldn't become a NATO nation and that we'd stop courting former Soviet republics to join NATO? You don't think there was any effort? Do you think there was any effort by Blinken, our, our secretary of state, to stop the tanks? I don't know. I don't know. Um, I think I think most um, apparently, you know, the CIA was saying in the days uh, um, leading up to it that he was going to invade. Most, um, you know, um, analysts, foreign policy, geopolitical analysts around the world did not think that was accurate. They thought. But, that but, if, you, but if you know he's going to invade and you're the president of the United States, what do you do? What do you do? Well, the CIA has never gotten anything wrong in that region before. They've always been right. So, you know, they thought well, the Soviet well, What do you do when you get on the phone with Putin? Because Biden spoke to Putin for an hour, two weeks before the invasion. And Putin spelled out what he wanted. And Biden said no. <clears throat> By the way, if you want to talk about self-inflicted, had Biden given way, that would have been self-inflicted. Given way to what do you mean, given way? Oh, if Biden had said, well, you know, if, if Biden had had those conversations and Biden had said, we'll, you know, we'll make sure <laughs> that Ukraine doesn't get into NATO or anything yeah. similar to that, that would have that would have boomeranged much more. Th that would have boomeranged. I mean, why do you Suppose assume that, that everyone uh, thinks like you? Don't make that assumption. Don't make that assumption. I don't actually believe that Ukraine right now has had any ill effect on this administration when it comes to popular polls. Oh, no, I think it has. Sorry, I, I don't agree with you there. I no, think, go ahead. Um, and, but, but I agree with your, your broader point. I think that, um, look, again, Biden is just not, you know, a historic figure with, who has built up any kind of gravitas such that um, he can have influence in geopolitics in a strong way. Um, you know, you, you look at the uh, leaders from around the world who've had that, 
I mean, go to Bismarck or somebody. I don't know. You know, I don't even know 19th century European history that well. But there obviously are a lot of figures in history. Joe Biden is not among them. And so in a, as these crises are going on all over the world, the fact that he is not able to not just be strong and have a strong role in trying to resolve the conflict or have some kind of positive impact in it, he's, he's perceived as weak. And that's going to pull very badly with the American public. But had he, don't you think he could have said to Putin, or at least tried to make some kind of deal with Putin to prevent the invasion? You don't think that's impossible to do? I think um, I think Putin's very difficult to negotiate with. Putin, okay. you know, look at look at um look at um and what's RT in, in Sputnik? What are those? You know, why are they here in the United States of America? What's their role? Why is Russia funding them? Why is he cozying up to the Pacifica Radio left? You know, in the programming, it's because he believes it. He 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 uh, runs the country with all the power and authority he has in Russia in the service of the people, as if he were. Is he cozying up to? <laughs> is cozying up? Is, he, is Putin cozying up to Pacifica? Network? Radio has had has and 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 RT have had, you know, you know, basically American left progressive programming has been their signature product, right. and the reason that they're doing that, in my feeling, and I, I know the project well. Tom Hartman was on there. I visited Tom at the studios. They would call me every three weeks and try to get some deal to get onto Pacifica on KPFK for Sputnik Radio. So what's the purpose of it is to, he, he doesn't give a fuck for anything that's being said there. He just believes that that tactic will weaken his imperial adversary. I mean, he thinks, I think, in this kind of Bismarckian way. And, uh, and on top of that, there's, I forget which film it is. I think it's, it, it, I think it's hypernormalization of Adam Kurtz where he focuses on his, um, his spin doctor, who's been so central to his maintenance of power. And um, they, their whole strategy is to produce, even for the domestic population, massively contradictory messaging to keep everybody confused. So, you know, he really is a hall of mirrors type of guy. And um, I think he's very hard to negotiate with. Having said that, Biden should have been, you know, in, in this kind of diplomacy, this kind of crisis with a character like Putin, yeah, you gotta be strong. You gotta be like, we're, we're point A, the statement A, statement B, statement C. Not all that much more complicated. This is what we stand for. Even if it was bullshit, he has to really project that. And the projection of that, of course, can have impact diplomatically and, and uh, internationally. But you're pretty powerless when, you know, everybody's like they're getting defeated, they're getting defeated, they're getting slaughtered, or the U Ukrainians are defeating them. Clearly, they have not deployed their you know, A-list weapons, nor have they fully deployed their air force, nor have they made their air force assets vulnerable, okay? And they're not doing that, I think, specifically, because that continues to send the message to the United States, don't even think about it. Professor Kay, you, you think Biden is handling Ukraine properly, or you're I, on the fence? I honestly don't, I, I, I don't know what, what he's doing on these things. But my but there are so many other variables. It's like, for example, now that NATO is in the Baltic, in Poland and elsewhere. Those countries, those countries are asking themselves whether they can trust the United States to back them. 
So it's a very calculated effort. If, if negotiating with Putin isn't a matter of whether or not the Ukraine will be invaded alone, it's also a matter to what extent you're going to co- it's going to cost you in the in the far eastern edge of NATO, the support of those countries. You can say, well, they need the United States. Well, they may well need the United States. But the idea is to what extent they're going to also depend upon Britain, France or anywhere else. And and the Europeans just I mean, I, th- you know, this is so American centric, this kind of thinking. You know, I mean, the Poles and the others, they despise the they don't trust them. They despise them. OK. And as a consequence, that's part of the calculation. I mean, I, I just think that we just view this in terms of from the American point of view. And also, I, again, I, and I do just I mean, if you're telling me that that his handling of, of Ukraine is in any way affecting the polls, it's not. It's affecting the polls is the economic um, fallout from it. No, I'm talking about how it's affecting the Ukraine. I'm saying to Alan right now. All right. We'll disagree on that. Yeah. Okay. No problem. Uh, My my concern is the slaughter that's going on in Ukraine and efforts for a ceasefire. It it just feels like that should be our top priority to stop the killing. You're laughing, Alan Minsky. I'm reading the chat. I got to respond in the chat about um, I know, I, you know, Chris Hedges and Tom Hartman, when they're on RT, and I have other friends who do, you know, progressive media who've been on there and one or two are still on there. They're simply, I think they know what's up with it. I think they understand it. And they've made um, the decision that they think it's more valuable to have that platform to get their word out. They're not compromised in what they say on the station. Well, Hartman left RT some time ago. Okay. He left RT and Washington, D.C., by the way, both at the same same time. Right. All right. Uh, Not not uh, surprising that Biden is performing the way he is. We anticipated this a year and a half ago or two years ago. When was when was he crowned the nominee? About two years ago, two years ago. Right. Yeah, it's pretty much time flies everyone, when you're having fun in a pandemic. I'll tell you. Yeah, it's pretty much what uh, everyone warned it would be. Mm-hmm. This is. Yeah, not good. And you think, Professor K, before we go, we lose the House and the Senate game set match for American democracy. Well, I, it's hard to believe. Well, I don't see the Republicans as the as in any way usual kind of political party. They know very well that uh, they've got to do so, the, the January 6th thing is, you know, is is going to be addressed by them probably more more so than it's being addressed with these committee hearings. Um, I mean, it, it's hard to believe they're not going to basically empower the states to more effectively control their I mean, right now it's in the Constitution. They control elections anyhow. But it's it's all of it's just going to lay out. I mean, I remember Alan saying one time and I, or, or a number of other people that they'll probably impeach Biden. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They'll definitely do that. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's what I mean. It's going to it's going to be it's, it's all going to. By the way, that that might be the best thing to happen to Biden, not that he'd be thrown out, but uh, that it actually would build tremendous popular support for, you know, just a thought. I, w- I want to go back to the Nina thing. If you can, if you have time for us, David, I thought we would get back to that a little bit. Um, 
I think that, um, look, in, in 1994 um, and 2010, first midterm elections, Barack Obama, Bill Clinton, got, you know, the Democratic Party got slaughtered. And they both won re-election two years later. I think there is at least unconsciously, and probably not just unconsciously, among the Democratic consultancy uh, people, the, you know, the, main, the main consultants of the Democratic Party, they probably looked at those two years as a big boom, right? This is going to be great for them. The money's going to pour into the Democratic yeah. coffers because the evil Republicans are impeaching Joe Biden, whatever idiocy they'll do when they're controlling the Congress, right? Okay. Um, they alienate the progressive base of the party and the young people who make up so much of the progressive base. I don't know how you put that Humpty Dumpty back together again. I don't see how you have a um, majority of voters in the 2024 election if you completely alienate the progressives. So the people of Cleveland have an opportunity to um, uh, vote for Nina Turner on Tuesday and basically save the Democratic Party and potentially American democracy from the Democratic Party and the Democratic Party's instincts, at least the moderate Democrats' instincts, which is they would rather lose, even possibly lose badly, than compromise with something that basically threatens their gravy train, which is the fact that, you know, they get money pouring into their coffers from, you know, neo-capitalist institutions and American plutocrats um, to pay for the maintenance of the status quo and to not let anything like uh, labor relations, uh, workers' wages, um, that people participating in democracy enthusiastically because there's actually a political tendency where it wants to deliver something for them. You know, they don't want to see that happen. Goes right back to your 1970s um, uh, book that you have there where Jimmy Carter was uh, one of the people who was uh, declaring that there was too much democracy. So, right. you know, I think if Nina Turner wins on Tuesday, it's going to be incredible for Summer Lee on May 17th in Pittsburgh, for Jamie McLeod Skinner in Oregon on May 17th, hopefully Doyle Canning as well in Oregon, um, Erica Smith in North Carolina, Nita Alam in North Carolina, and then on the 24th, Jessica Cisneros in Texas and Vincent Fort in Georgia. I just, I just doubled the squad in size. And if Nina wins on Tuesday, those campaigns are going to get a boost. There's no way they'll be able to, it, you know, people will, even if it's just us creating a huge buzz about it, that they can't keep the progressive wing of the party out of the party. They tried to run Nina out. Nina will, will be back in. And that is to the benefit of the, the prospects of, for the Democratic Party in the 2022 midterms. Does Nina have that much pull? I think she has considerable pull. I think there are shitloads of young people out there who are like, I don't want to be in this party. Look what the fuck they're doing to Nina Turner. She's honest. She stands for all the right things within the system. And she's playing by the rules inside the Democratic Party. And the Democratic Party plutocrats, the people who really have defined the party's position ever since the DL DLC era, are like, we do not want you in. We're going to do everything under the sun to defeat you. When I opened up and I said, what is it? What does a vote in Cleveland cost? I was playing on the fact that right now they're pouring, I don't know, a couple of million dollars. I mean, the, the buy in, you know, for advertising must once again be huge expenditure of money. So what's the, what's the price of a vote in Cleveland is what I was saying. Yeah. In the chat, I just kept to the main candidates. Everybody I listed has their primary name. All right. 
Well, thank you, Professor Harvey J.K. Always a pleasure to see you. Pick up FDR on democracy and follow Professor Harvey J.K. on Twitter at Harvey J.K. Alan Minsky, Executive Director of Progressive Democrats of America. Thank you both. Thank you, David. Thank you. It's great to see you. That is our show for tonight. I want to thank all our guests. Uh, it was a great show. I want to thank Professor Pamela. Follow her on Twitter at Rutherford underscore PLR. Professor Ben Burgess, read his two pieces over at Jacobin. I want to thank the Hershenfelds, Dr. Philip Hershenfeld and Ethan Hershenfeld. Emil Guillermo. Read him over at ALDEF, the Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund, as well as the PETA podcast. Oh, hang on for one second. That is a cousin. Hang on. Uh, perfect timing. I uh, want to thank uh, Emil Guillermo, uh, the Reverend Barry W. Lynn, Dr. Joanne Lynn. I want to thank the professors and Marianne, Professor Marianne Cummings. Professor Ann Lee, Professor Jonathan Bick, and of course, Professor Adnan Hussein, and of course, Professor Harvey J. K. and Alan Minsky. Office hours is this Friday night, so sign up. I'm David Feldman reminding you to stay strong and protect the weak. <laughs> We're living every day, we're living every night in the USA of distraction. We wake every morning like the Rolling Stones, cause we just can't get no satisfaction. Democracy's in change, we could bury its remains, but infotainment culture has infected our brains. We're living every day, we're living every night in the USA of distraction. The wisdom we receive, the reality we perceive, is burned into our brains by cable TV. Scandal, crime, and disaster lead the news. Fear and white anxiety shape our views. The fourth estate has crumbled into an irrelevant heap. Critical thinking is all but asleep. Cause we're living every day, we're living every night in the USA of distraction. The pathological pursuit of power and profit drives everything in sight. Not sure we can stop it. Corporate plutocracy has risen to the top. We've lost the power to think, so we shop until we drop. We're surveilled and monitored while they keep us all distracted. So we never notice that our data has been extracted. We're living every day. We're
Thank you. 